Chapter One of Janet of the Dunes by Harriet T. Comstock. Recording by Roger Moline. Janet of the Dunes by Harriet T. Comstock. Chapter One. A sweeping curve of glistening beach, a full palpitating sea lying under the languid heat of a late June afternoon. The low red life-saving station with two small cottages huddling close to it in friendly fashion, as if conscious of the utter loneliness of sea and sand dune. And in front of one of these houses sat Captain Billy and his Janet. They too seemed alone in the silent expanse of waste and water, but it in no wise disturbed them. Billy was industriously mending a huge fish net spread out upon the sands. Janet was planning a mode of attack in order to preserve unto herself the very loneliness and isolation that surrounded them. In Janet's hands, Captain Billy knew himself a craven coward. Only by keeping his eyes away from the face near him could he hope for success in argument. And Captain Billy, with all the strength of his simple, honest nature, meant to succeed in the present course, if Janet would permit him. It was yet to be discovered how beautiful was the girl crouching upon the sands. So unlike was she to the young people of the station that she repelled rather than attracted the common eye. Tall, slim, and sinewy was she, with the quick strength of a boy. The smooth brown skin had the fineness and delicacy of exquisite bronze. Some attempt had been made earlier in the day to confine the splendid hair with strong strands of seaweed, but the breeze of the later morning had treated the matter contemptuously, and the shining waves were beautifully disordered. Out of all keeping with this brown ruggedness were Janet's eyes. Like colorless pools, they lay protected by their dark fringes, until emotion moved them to tint and expression. Did the sky of Janet's day prove kind? What eyes could be as soft and blue as hers? Did storm threaten? A grayness brooded, a grayness quite capable of changing to ominous black. Captain Billy, trained to watching for storms and danger, knew the signals, and now, for safety, lay low. The eyes were mild and sun-filled, the face bewitchingly friendly. But when Janet took to wheedling, Billy hugged the shore. You don't really mean it, Captain. Now, do you? I do that," muttered Billy, and he pulled the twine energetically. What? Send your own Janet off to the mainland to stay, except when she runs back? This last in a tone that might have moved a rock to pity. Yes, that Janet, and you mustn't come on too often, neither. Oh, Captain, and just when we got the blessed beach to ourselves, Mrs. Joe G and her kind gone, only the crew and us. Why, Captain, this is life. Now, Janet, tain't no use for you to coax. You're going on seventeen, ain't you? Seventeen, Captain, and eleven months. It's distracting the way you've shot up, clear distracting. And I ain't been and done my duty by you neither. Billy yanked a strand of cord vigorously. 
"'Yes, you have, Captain.' Janet's tone was dangerously soft. "'I'm the very properest girl at the station. Look at me, Captain Daddy.' But Billy steeled himself and rigidly attended to the net. "'Well,' he admitted, "'you're proper enough long some lines. I've taught you to conquer your eternal bad temper.' "'You've taught me to know its power, Captain Daddy.' warned Janet with a glint of darkness in the laughing serenity of her gaze. The temper is here just the same, and powerful bad upon provocation. A smile moved the corners of Billy's humorous lips. And the bedpost is here too, Janet. Lordy, I can see you now as I used to tie you up till the storm was over. What an eternal little rascal you were. The waves of tantrums rolled over you, one by one, your yells growing less and less. And by and by, you called out tween squalls, Captain Daddy, it's most past. There was a mist over Billy's eyes. You turn a little specimen, he added. But Captain, dear, Janet was growing more and more dangerous. I've been so good. Just think how I've gone across the bay to the corners to school. My, how educated I am. Storm or ice, I leave it to you, Daddy. Did I ever complain? Never, Janet. I've stood on the dock and watched your sail coming for the gale till it seemed like I would bust with fear. And the way you handled your ice boat in the pursuit of knowledge getting was simple miraculous. No, I ain't a frettin' over your learnin' gettin'. It's the usin' of the same as is stirrin' me now. With such education as you've got in spite of storm and danger, you ought to be shinin' over on the mainland among the boarders. Boarders, sniffed Janet, tossing her ruddy mane. Boarders. Folks have gone crazy mad over the city folks who have swooped down upon us, like a, a hawk. Every house full of those raving lunatics going on about the views and the the artistic desolation. That's what those dirty, spotty-looking things on the hills call it. Captain, you ought to just see them going about in checked kitchen aprons with daubs all over them, sunbonnets a-dangling on their heads, little wagons full of truck for painting pictures, and such pictures. Lorsy! If I lived in a place that looked like those sketches, they call them, I'd, I'd go to sea, Captain Daddy, to sea. But they be folks, Janet, and it's a new life and a chance, and it ain't decent for you with all your good points to be on the beach along with the crew all alone. Captain, I do believe you want to marry me off. Get rid of me. Oh, Daddy... Janet plunged her head in her lap and was the picture of outraged maidenhood. "'Tain't so, and you know it,' cried Billy. "'But Mrs. Joe G., before they sailed off, opened my eyes.' "'Mrs. Joe G.' snapped Janet, raising her head and flashing a look of resentment. "'I thought so. What did she suggest, that I might come to her house and wait? Wait?' Just think of it, Captain. Wait upon those boarders? 
She had suggested that, and something even worse, so Billy held his peace. It's simply outrageous the way our people are going on, the girl continued. They are bent upon beggaring the city folks. Beggaring them, really. They have no consciences about the methods they take to, to rob them. Janet, hold your tiller close. Oh, I know, Captain, but I do not want to take part in it all. I want to stay alone with you. Think of the patrols, Captain Daddy. I'll take them all with you, sunset, midnight, and morning. You and I, Daddy dear, under the stars, or through storm. Ah, I've ached for just this. Billy felt his determination growing weak. I've made arrangements, Janet. Captain David, he's going to board you, and you can look about. And if you see an opening to get a chance to better yourself, not in the marrying way, but turning a penny, why, it'll all help, my girl, and you ought to be having the chance with the city folks, what all the others is having. Oh, you sly old Captain Daddy. And do you realize that Captain Davy's Susie Jane isn't any joke to live with? You don't hear Davy tattling, but other folks are not so particular. Daddy, dear, I just cannot. And with this, the girl sprang into the net, rolled over and over, and then lay unsnarled in the meshes at Billy's feet, her laughing eyes shining through the strands. Eternal rascal, cried Billy. You think you've caught me, whined Janet. You think you've got me. Oh, Captain, I'm afraid of the city folks. Afraid, sneered Billy. My Janet afraid of anything. Yes, honest true. I do not want to be near them. I sent danger, not to them, but to me. Billy, bereft of his hand's occupation, looked out seaward. He was well-nigh distracted. Always his duty to this girl was uppermost in his simple mind, but his love and anxiety mingled with it. He no more understood her than he understood the elements that made havoc along the coast and necessitated his brave calling. He waged war with the sea to save his kind, and he struggled against the opposing forces of Janet that he in no wise understood, in order that she, as a girl among others, should have her rights. Wild little creature as she had always been, Billy had used all the opportunities at hand to tame her into a similarity to the other children of the station, and when he had failed, he gloried in the failure and grew more distracted. Braving opposition in the girl and the dangers of nature, Billy had forced the child across the bay to the school at the corners. What there was to learn in that primitive institution, Janet had learned, and much more besides, in ways of which Billy knew nothing. For years the quaint seaside village had lain unnoticed in its droning course. Ships, now and again, had been driven upon the bar outside the dunes, and at such times the bravery of the quiet crew at the government station was sung in the distant city papers. Now and again the superiority of the Point Quinton light would be mentioned, 
but Captain David never knew of it. He tended and loved the light with a fatherly interest. It was his life's trust, and David was a poet, an inarticulate poet, who spoke only through his shining light. The government was his master. David thought upon the government in a personal way and served it reverently. Then an artist had discovered Quinton by the sea. He took a painting of it back to the restless town, a painting full of color of dune, sea, bay, and hundred-toned hills, with never a tree to stay the progress of the unending breezes. That was sufficient. The artist was great enough to touch the heart, and Quinton was doomed to be famous. But it was only the beginning now. Every house in the village had opened its doors to the strangers, and every pocket yawned for possible dollars. Tents were pitched in artistic arrangement on the hills, but the hotel was not yet. Managers waited to see if the fever would last. While they waited, the village folk reaped a breathtaking harvest. Mrs. Joe G., the only woman who had lived at the life-saving station in her own home, packed up and went off with baggage and children to open the old farmhouse on the mainland and take boarders. Before going, she left food for Billy to digest. "'This be Janet's chance,' she said, standing with her hands on her hips and her sunbonnet shading her fair, pinched face. Nothing ever tanned Mrs. Joe G. "'She can turn in and help wait on table, or she can take in washin'. "'It won't hurt her a bit. "'Washin' will have to be done, and the city folks will pay.' Janet can make them fetch and carry their own duds. She can stand on her dignity, and wash money is as good as any other. Billy experienced a distinct chill at this last proposition. Why, he could hardly have told. During Janet's babyhood and early childhood, he had assumed all household duties himself. Later, he and Janet had shared them together over tub and table, but that Janet should wash for the boarders was harrowing. "'You think she's too good, Captain,' sneered Mrs. Joe G. "'But she ain't. She's wild, and she ought to get her bearings. She ain't any different from my girls, nor the others, though you act as if you thought so. You ain't as strong as you once was, Captain, and come the time when you pass in your last check, who's going to do for Janet?' And how's she gonna know how to do for herself? You ain't actin' fair by the girl. It's clear providence, the way the city folks has fallen, as you might say, right in our open mouths. There'll be plenty of chances on the mainland for Janet to turn a penny and get an idea of self-support. But she ought to be there and not stuck here. Mrs. Joe G. had hardly turned the point after this epoch-making speech, before Billy was starting for the light and the one friend of his heart. "'David,' he explained, viewing his friend through a fog of thick blue smoke, "'I want that you should take my girl. Once Janet is here, she'll be mighty spry about getting into something. I don't want her to take to washing or serving strangers, lest she wants to. 
but when experience and money is floating loose, my girl ought to be out with her net. Course, nodded David, and Janet's a rare fisher for these new waters. You'll keep your eye on her, David, knowing all you do? The furrows deepened on Billy's brow. David took his pipe from his mouth. God's my witness, I will that, he said. Thus things stood, while Janet, coiled in the meshes, lay laughing up at Billy. What do you think of your haul, Captain Billy Daddy? The man sighed. You wouldn't let those dreadful old sharks, they are sharks, Captain, you wouldn't let them hurt your poor little fish now, would you? The rippling girlish laugh jarred Billy's nerves. He must take a new tack. See here, Janet, do you mind this? You ain't just my child, Lord knows you ain't. You're hers. Hers? Yes. Ah, you mean my mother. The net lay quite still. Having no memory of the mother, Janet was not deeply impressed. I know, Captain. When you are in a difficulty, you always bring her in, what she would like and what she wouldn't. It's my belief, Captain, she'd have done and thought exactly as we told her to. Tain't so, neither. She had heaps of common sense. And as she got near port, she saw terrible clear, and she talked considerable about learning and how it could steer your craft better than anything else. And she lowed if you was gal or lad, after you got learning, she wanted you should go out into the world and test it. She wasn't oversought about the station. She had visited other places. Janet sat up and idly draped the net about her. I suppose if my mother had lived, she said, I would have listened to her, some. But, Captain Daddy, I reckon she would have gone off with me. Like as not, we would have taken boarders, but... Don't you see, Captain? I would have had her. True, and it's that what's held my hand many's the time. Your not having her has crippled us both. But a summer on the mainland ain't a-going to swamp us, Janet. With the comrade tied to David's wharf and me here, what's going to happen to a, a girl like you? Janet looked across the summer sea. What? Sure enough, Captain Daddy, just what? And I ought to be earning my keep. I'm going to set you up with some gal fixin's what I've saved for you. Your mother's things. You ain't never seen them. Suppose we take a look now. A summer with running over to the station will be real interesting, Janet. And you must tell me everything. There ain't no reason why you shouldn't sail over every little while. But I do hope you'll make yourself useful somehow. It will help by and by. And I'm getting stiff. He arose awkwardly and strode toward the tiny house. Janet followed, trailing her fishnet robe and humming lightly. The house was composed of three small rooms with a lean-to, whereof late years Billy had slept. From the middle room, which was the living room, 
A ladder, set against the wall, led to the loft overhead. The man slowly climbed upward, and Janet went after. The space above was hardly high enough for an upright position, so man and girl sat down upon the floor, and it happened that a locked chest stood between them. "'Janet, ye ain't never seen these things, have ye?' "'No, Captain Billy.' The mocking laugh was gone from the face. "'He ain't got no sense of curiosity about anything, Janet, not even your mother. Most girls would have asked questions.' This seemed like a rebuke, and Janet kept silent. "'Ain't you got no curious feeling about your mother?' "'Cap'n Billy, you haven't ever let me miss anything in all my life. I suppose that's why I haven't asked. I never knew her, did I, Captain Billy? You made up for everything. This unnerved Billy. That's logic, he nodded, and it's good-heartedness as well. But, Janet, I'm going to tell you somewhat of your mother. He took a key from his pocket, unlocked the chest, and raised the lid. Them things is hers he said reverently. Little frocks. Three he laid out upon the floor. Cheap, rather gaudy they were, but of cut and fashion unknown to the beech-bred girl. And little underthings, and a hat, and sack, shoes. Just look at them, Janet. Little feet they covered, but such willing little feet, always a-trottin' bout till the very last, so terrible afraid they wouldn't be grateful enough. Lord, but that was what she said. The pitiful store of woman's clothing lay near Janet, but she made no motion to touch it. And this is her. Captain Billy took a photograph from the bottom of the chest, unwrapped it from its covering of tissue paper, and handed it to the quiet girl opposite. This is her and as like as life. The same little hat on, what she set such store by. I ain't had the heart to show you this before. Janet seized the card eagerly. The light from a small window in the roof fell full upon it. Oh, she breathed. She was, why, Captain Billy, she was more than pretty. I think I should have felt her more if I had seen this. Maybe, Janet. Am, am I like her? Like as not, if you was whiter and spindlier, there'd be a likeness. An uneasiness struggled in Billy's inner consciousness as he viewed the girl. You're more wild-like, he added. I wish I had asked a lot about her. Janet whispered, and there was a mist in her eyes. "'I have been careless just because I've been happy. It seems as if we had sort of pushed her away and kept her still.' "'Well, it's her turn to speak now, girl, and that's what I've been steering around to.' "'You're hers, and—' "'And yours, Captain Billy, even if you have taught me to say Captain instead of Father.' It was her word for me, child, and you added daddy of your own will. 
"'My captain,' she used to say. "'It sounded awful soothing, "'and her so grateful about nothing. "'Sho, and she wanted ye to be help long o' me. "'Them was her words, and, Lordy, child, "'I'm willing to work and share with you, "'but saving is pretty hard "'when there ain't nothing much to save from, "'and if this summer boarding business "'is going to open up a chance for you, "'it ain't cause I want help, "'but she'd like you to have more things. "'Don't you see? "'And I just know you'll get your innings on the mainland.' "'I have been a selfish girl,' Janet murmured, "'holding the photograph closer. "'A human crab!' just clinging and gripping you, then running wild and fighting against you when you wanted me to learn to be useful. I think, Captain Billy, if you had shown me, my mother, and talked more of her, maybe it would have been different. Maybe not, with a soft sigh. I reckon everyone has to be ready for seeing. I don't just know how to... How to get my share from those, those borders. But I'll find a way. I mean to be helpful, Captain. I can't bring myself to wait on them. Mrs. Joe G. doesn't seem to mind that, but I do. And I hate to see them eat in crowds. But I'll find something to do. Put the clothes in the carpet bag, Captain Billy Daddy. I may not wear them over there, but I'd like to have them. May I take the picture? Yes, only be powerful careful of it. And don't show it around. Somehow, she seems to belong to nobody but just us two. End of chapter one. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Two of Janet of the Dunes. Recording by Roger Moline. Janet of the Dunes by Harriet T. Comstock. Chapter Two. Captain David began to climb the long flight of iron stairs. It was his custom to start early, in order that he might stop upon each landing and take a view of the land and water on his way up. As David got higher and higher. His spirits rose in proportion. Below were duty and care. Aloft was the light. That was his pride and glory, and the freedom of solitude and silence. When David began his climb, because it was the manner of the man to face life with a song upon his lips, he hummed softly, I would not live alway, no, welcome the tomb. He paused on the first landing and took in the satisfying prospect of his garden, edged around by summer flowers and showing a thrifty collection of needful vegetables. "'And only man is vile,' panted David, starting upward and changing his song. By the time the third landing was reached, care and anxiety were about forgotten, and the outlook upon the rippling bay was inspiring." And we put three shots in the lobster pots, three cheers for the witches three. Davy remembered only snatches of this song, but its hilarious tunefulness appealed to his state of feeling on the third landing. David chuckled, gurgled, and puffingly mounted higher. Looks like it might be a good crab season, he muttered. 
and I hope to gum the city folks won't trifle with the oysters out of season. Brightly gleams our father's mercy from his lighthouse evermore, but to us... Puff, pant, groan. He gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. David had reached the light. He always timed himself to the moment. When the sun dropped behind the hills, David's light took possession of the coming night. He stepped inside the huge lamp, rubbed an imaginary spot off the glistening glass, turned up the wick, and touched it with the ready match. Then he came forth and eyed the westering sun. That monarch, riding through the longest day of the year, was reluctant to give up his power, but David was patient. With hand upon the cloth covering, he bided his time. It was a splendid sunset. Beyond the hills, the clouds were orange-red and seemed to part in order that the round sun should have a wide course for his royal exit. The shadows were coming up out of the sea. David felt, rather than saw, the purpling light stealing behind him, but he had, for the present, to do only with the day. "'There was glory over all the land,' quoted the man. "'A flood of glory.' Then the sun was gone. On the instant the covering was snatched away, and David's light shone cheerily in the glory that at first obscured it. "'Your turn will come,' comforted the keeper, as if to a friend. "'They'll bless you, come darkness.' With that he stepped out upon the narrow balcony surrounding the tower to freshen up. From that point the dunes, dividing the ocean and the bay, seemed but weak barriers. The sea rolled nearer and nearer. "'Thus far and no farther,' whispered David reverently. "'The Lord don't need anything bigger than that strip of sand to make his waters obey his will. No mountains could be safer than them dunes when once the Lord has set the limit.' "'That looks like the comrade off beyond the point,' he went on. I'll take my beef without cabbage if that ain't Janet a-making for the light, and as late as this, too. Billy's told her about the change, and she wouldn't wait once she was convinced. She might have stayed with Billy till morning, the impatient little cuss. The sailboat was scudding before the ocean breeze. Its white wing was the only one upon the bay, and David watched it with a new interest. "'Coming over to make her fortune,' he muttered. "'Coming over to help fleece the boarders. "'By gum, I wonder, knowing what Billy knows, "'and having the handling of a craft like Janet. "'He didn't hold the sheet rope pretty snug "'as he headed her into this harbor.' "'The boat made the landing without a jar. "'The girl sprang out, secured the comrade, "'then shouldered a carpet-bag, boy-fashion.' and came up the winding path toward the lighthouse. David watched her, bending over the railing, until she passed within. Then he straightened himself and waited. The purple gloaming came. The light took on courage and dignity. The stars shone timidly, as if apologizing for appearing where really their little glow was not needed. Then softly, "'Captain David, are you on the balcony?' "'Who be ye coming on the government property without permission?' 
growled David. Janet came out of the narrow doorway and flung her arms around the keeper's neck. Captain Davy, I've come off to be adopted. I had to stop downstairs to make my room ready and pay Susan Jane two weeks in advance, but I've got business with you now. Bring out a couple of chairs, Captain. This is going to be a long watch. David paused as he went upon the errand. The money is what sticks, Janet. Money atween me and Billy is a ticklish matter. Don't lay it up again, Susan Jane, girl. The conniverin' in money ways and the holy book is all that Susan Jane has since she was struck. It's all right, Captain David, if it were only my money. And it soon will be, Davy, it soon will be. I've just waked up to the fact that I ought to be helping along instead of hanging on Captain Billy. Seventeen, and only just waking up. I've come over to the gold mine, Davy, and I'm going to do some digging for myself. David sighed and laughed together. It was a rare combination, and one for which he was noted. Presently he came out with the chairs. The two put their backs to the light. David took out his pipe, and Janet bracing her feet against the railing and clasping her hands behind her head, looked up at the stars. Next to Captain Billy, this man beside her was her truest friend. "'Going to help wait at some table?' asked David between long, heartsome puffs. "'Nope.' "'Maybe washin'?' "'Nope.' "'Anything in mind special?' "'Yep.' What? I'm going up to the hills and learn to paint pictures. By gum? Yes, I can at least see things as they are. All I shall have to do is to learn to handle the brushes and mix the paint. By gum. And, Captain David, I know what you all think. You think me a useless kind of girl, willing enough to hang on Captain Billy and take all he can give. And I know that you think him soft and maybe silly because he hasn't been sterner with me. But you're all wrong. Captain Daddy and I haven't been wasting our time. We've got awfully close to each other while we've lived alone and had only ourselves. I've been thinking a long time of how I could help him best. I didn't want to come over and, and, what shall I say, well, plunder the city folks. That's what everyone is doing. Sometimes I'm sorry for them, the city folks. It seems like we ought to treat them more as visitors than as ships that have been tossed up. Lord, spluttered David through his smoke. They know how to look after themselves. Yes, and when I think of that, I'm afraid of them. They'll get something out of us for all the money they spend. And, Davy... I don't want them to get it out of me. Get it out of you? David struck his pipe on the railing, and the sparks fell into the night like a shower of stars. Janet nodded her head. Yes, get it out of me. All the same, if I'm going to help make my living, this seems the only way, so I'm going in with the rest. But I want to choose my own path. Davy, did you ever see my mother... Of course you did. She was pretty, but I'm a lot better looking. 
Captain Billy's been telling me about her. Telling ye about her, all? David asked faintly. Oh, I reckon not all. He was choking while he talked, and I hated to ask him particulars. How old was I when she died, Captain Davy? Ye weren't no age at all, child. As your little skiff hove into sight, hers set sail. Ye didn't any more than hail each other in passin'. Oh, tell me more, Davy. Twas an awful night ye chose, Janet. Wind off sea and howlin' like mad. Sleet and rain minglin' and porridge ice slammin' onto shore. Billy had the midnight patrol, and fore he started out, he arranged that we should keep one eye out toward his cottage. I happened to be on that night, and if we saw a light in the lean-to winder, I was to rouse Mrs. Joe G. Long about two, I saw the light, and I made tracks for Mrs. Joe G.'s. The wind almost knocked us down as we set out for Billy's. I waited in the lean-to, and Mrs. Joe G., she went into the bedroom. Go on, Captain Davy. I wish I had known always about Mrs. Joe G. She didn't mind the storm. Somehow I never thought of her like that. "'Twas only human, Janet. Her and your ma was the only females at the station. Long about four, Billy came a-staggerin' in. He had seen the light shinin' in the winder. He was coated over with ice, ice hangin' to his beard and lashes, but, Lord, how his eyes was glitterin'. I couldn't say a blessed thing. Gum, there wasn't a thing to say. I just gripped him like a loony, and he gripped me, and there we stood, a-starin' and a-starin'. "'Why don't you go in?' I asked. "'And why didn't he?' Janet was struggling with an inclination to cry. "'Why didn't he?' David, fearing he had ventured upon dangerous ground, muttered, "'He said he couldn't. Them was his own words. "'Billy was always queer.' Just then, Mrs. Joe G. came into the living room. She had you, we didn't know it then, for you was just a round bundle, in her arm. Mrs. Joe G. always speaks to the point when she does speak, Davy continued, and all she said was, This is all that's left, Captain Billy. The mother's gone. Oh, my captain, murmured Janet, and only tonight I have heard this. "'Now don't take on, Janet,' David clumsily stroked the pretty head that had found a resting place upon the iron railing. "'It was because Billy hated any taken on that he kept mum. "'Him and me and Mrs. Joe G., we have always acted as if nothing unusual had happened. "'You had a stormy voyage, child, and Billy wanted that you should have calm while he was in control.' Oh, Captain Billy, my poor old daddy. And I've been a wild, uncaring girl, David. Never taking hold like the others. Just following daddy about and being a burden. And to think it was... It was boarders that aroused me. Oh, Davy, it makes me sick. Now see here, Janet. David got up and walked twice around the little gallery. 
I ain't a-saying but what you ought to be helpin' yourself and takin' anxiety off of Billy, but I do say that it ain't gonna ease Billy any if you go gallivantin' off to the hills with any fool notion that good looks is gonna help you. They always help, Captain David, always. Janet's assertion came through a muffled sob. You mustn't think I care for my looks myself. I'd just as soon be as peaked and blue-white as Mrs. Joe G.'s Maud. But I know pretty looks are just so much to the good. Or bad, broke in David. Well, have it that way. But it is according to how you use them. I'm going to use my good looks wisely. By gum, muttered David. This was his escape valve. When other words failed, by gum eased the tension. "'You ain't much on looks, Janet, when you come to that,' he said presently. "'You ain't tidy nor tasty. You ain't a likely promise for what a handy woman ought to be. You're powerful breezy and uncertain, and you're unlike what folks is used to.' "'Davy!' Janet came in front of him, and the light fell full upon her. "'Davy, you just listen and see how wise I am. "'Do you know why the city folks have come to Quinton? "'We never, at least not many of us, "'saw anything very splendid about the hills, the dunes, and the bay now, did we?' "'The fact is, we didn't.' "'Well, these people are wild about them, "'because they are unlike the common things they are used to. "'I am like Quinton, Davy.' I know it way down in my heart. You won't catch me fixing up like city folks and looking queer enough to turn you dizzy. Quentin and I are going to be true to ourselves, Davy, and you'll soon see if my looks do not help. By gum, sighed David, and remembering his vow to Billy to watch over this girl, he sighed again and ordered her below in no very gentle voice. End of chapter 2 Recording by Roger Moline Chapter 3 of Janet of the Dunes Recording by Roger Moline Janet of the Dunes by Harriet T. Comstock Chapter 3 Janet was aroused the next morning by hearing Captain David creaking across the floor of the living room with his daily burden in his arms. The girl was neither deep asleep nor wide awake. She was never uncertain of her whereabouts or identity once she had crossed the borderland. The early sun was creeping into the east window of her tiny room on one side of the living room of the lighthouse. On the opposite side was Captain David's sleeping apartment, into which he carried his helpless wife every evening before he had to go up aloft and out of which he bore her to the chintz-covered rocker every morning after he had come below. For ten long years David had known this sorrow, and he knew that it was to be his until death spake the final word. "'It seems to me, David,' the querulous voice was saying, "'that the sun up your way rose mighty late today.' "'There, there, Susan Jane,' "'Tis the same old sun as rises and sets for all. "'Had a bad night, Susan Jane?' "'Bad night? 
That shows what sympathy you have for me, David. All my nights are bad. Bad as bad can be, unless they be worse. Well, Susan Jane, let's hope that a bad night argues a good day. There, are you fixed, reasonably comfortable? Perhaps the pillars ought to be a mite higher. How's that? And now, if you want to read a bit, I'll fix the breakfast. I got some biscuits overnight. Give me the Bible, David, and my money box. There, open to the same old chapter. Thank the Lord, that chapter is all on one page. Since he thought it wise to take the usefulness from my members, I'm glad he made folks print my favorite chapter so there's no need of turning over. Land knows who'd ever think of waiting on me. Come now, Susan Jane, I'm always willing, when I ain't on government duty. Government duty or sleep, man is all alike. How would you feel if you was stricken like me? Powerful bad, Susan Jane, powerful bad. You bear your lot uncommon patient, Susan Jane. I'm never overlooking that. But if you put your mind to it, wife, you'll see that if I do my duty, I must sleep some. Howsoever, Mark Tapkins will have his turn tonight, same as usual. And I can set with you this evening. The government is powerful generous, Susan Jane, to give this every other night shift. Generous, huh? There, David, do get the meal. I guess if you had laid awake all night, you'd have considerable craving in your stomach for vittles. I've a real sinkin'. So, I must get a double wriggle on, Susan Jane. David stumbled over a stool on his way to the stove. He was dizzy from sleepiness, and he too had a sensation of sinking. So, I'd be getting monstrous awkward, he muttered apologetically. I hope I ain't waked Janet. Suppose you had, snapped his wife. You think that more important than my nerves? I don't more than half like Janet coming here. If it hadn't been for me, I know you'd taken her for nothing. No matter if I do have to go to the poorhouse on account of your shiftlessness. I, stricken and helpless, she can come here for nothing? I just know, David, that it would be a real release for a great strong man like you to be rid of a poor stricken wife. But I guess you'll have to bide the Lord's will, whether you want to or not. At this point, David spilled a kettle of water he was bearing from the pump outside the door to the range. By gum, Susan Jane, he said cheerfully. I guess no one but you could put up with a blundering old feller like me. You better reconsider and stay to see the game out. Two eggs this morning, wife, or one? Two, David. You didn't think to scrimp me, did you? If one egg has got to be given, you'd better begin on yourself or Janet. Come, come, Susan Jane. There's two apiece. And six for company. Company? David, have you had the heartlessness to invite company here without asking me? Lord, Susan Jane, can't you take a joke? I only meant eggs is plenty. The draft's good this morning. That's a sign of clear weather. The biscuits is riz fit to kill, Susan. I never had better luck. 
That comes of having a handy wife to train you. I'm glad you can see some good in me, David. Susan Jane was sniffling. I think Janet is downright lazy and trifling, lying in bed when a struck woman like me can have ambition enough to be up and doing. You're one in a hundred, Susan Jane, but then it ain't more'n fair to state that Janet's a boarder, according to your own placin'. Oh, that's right. Blame me for miserliness and excuse her for slackness. She's perfect. I'm the sinner. Now, Susan Jane. Oh, I can see through a person if he ain't too dazzling. Susan Jane drank from the cup of coffee that David held to her lips. I suppose you'd like to take a tray into her, David? Now, Susan Jane, don't be so amusing. It's wonderful how you keep your spirits. Spirits. David, I suppose you're speaking sarcastic. You think my mind ain't right. You're treating me like a child. The woman turned from the cup, weeping audibly. Janet, at this point, noiselessly arose and made a hurried toilet. Sickness, physical weakness of any kind, was repulsive to the girl of perfect health and outdoor nature, but one thing she realized. While she stayed at the lighthouse, she must share David's burden. Her sense of loyalty to David made this imperative. She must help him how and when she could, and she must be as silent as he in regard to it. "'Good morning,' she cried presently, going into the living room. "'Here, Captain David, take your place at the table. I'll do the rest. You won't mind, Susan Jane, will you, if I boss a little? I'm so used to bossing my Captain Billy.' "'Tain't decent for a great girl like you, Janet, to call Billy in that fashion. Father seems good enough for the other girls around here.' "'I like my way better.' Janet smiled over the plate of biscuits she was bearing from the range. "'I'm saucy and bossy, Susan Jane, but I've good points, too. Here, I'll spread your biscuits and fix your eggs. David, you finish your breakfast and go to bed. I'll feed Susan and tidy up.' David cast a grateful look at her, and Susan Jane turned to her breakfast with an appetite that was one of the few pleasures left to her stricken existence. All that morning, to the accompaniment of Susan Jane's complaints, praise of herself, and disapproval of Janet's appearance and manners, the girl did the housework, prepared the midday meal, and thought her busy thoughts. At twelve o'clock, David issued forth from the bedroom. He was heavy-eyed from sleep and disheveled as to looks. "'By gum!' he exclaimed, going out to Janet on the porch. I suppose you wanted to go up to the hills this morning and peddle your good looks. I clean forgot your ambitions. I was that sodden with weariness. No, Davy, it's all right. I want to get my breath first. I'm going to bluff head this afternoon. I may not have many more chances. I hear bluff head is going to be open, too. Yes, Mr. Devant sent word down to Eliza Jane Smith to have the place ready, biding the time he might come. But seems like I heard that Eliza Jane ain't going today. 
she's taking washin' in for the boarders and making money out of it. Eliza Jane'll get top lofty if she finds she ain't naturally dependent on James B. It don't do for some women to know their worth. Janet laughed. It helps others, she answered lightly. When the dinner dishes were disposed of, Janet took her sunbonnet and started off for Bluff Head. The day was hot and the road dusty. The sunbonnet, as a feminine requisite of old Quinton, was desirable, but Janet swung hers from her arm, thereby satisfying Mrs. Grundy's demands and not interfering with her own rights. At one o'clock in the Quinton of the day, the city boarders were eating en masse, and the Quintonites, in various capacities, were serving them. So the girl on the highway had the place to herself. The lighthouse rose red and gleaming from Captain David's garden spot. The bay, blue and rippling, spread in and out of its tiny sub-bays where the land stretched like five fingers of a hand, with the blue water in between. To the west lay the hills in their artistic desolation, and to the north of them, the bluff, with Mr. Devant's long-closed house gracing the summit. It mattered little to Janet whether Eliza Jane Smith was in command of Bluffhead or not. The past would never have been as sweet as Janet knew it, had she depended upon Eliza Jane's movement to govern her ingress and egress to the place. Going rapidly along, the girl presently came to the grounds of the big house. Years ago, attempts at landscape gardening had been indulged in, while the master of the place fancied to pass his summers there, but years of recent neglect had all but obliterated the marks of culture. Wildness was all over, but it was the wildness of former refinement. Past the sundial ran the girl, and around to the rear of the house. Then she burrowed under a dense rose bush and pushed her way through a basement window, almost hidden by the undergrowth, the sash of which swung inward at the familiar pressure. It was but a moment's work to scramble through, and then run up the dark, disused stairway. The place had a moldy smell, but it was neat and orderly, and the weekly airings, given by Eliza Jane, saved it from dampness. The silence and absence of human nearness might well have daunted one, but Janet, the only living thing, apparently, in the deserted house, felt no qualms. She went directly to the library. There was little else of interest in the place to her. For years, this spot had been her secret treasure nook. When, as a little child, she had entered the place with Eliza Jane, it was not as other children, but with an inborn yearning to see and touch those wonderful rows of books. She was permitted to dust those she could reach, and her touch was reverent and gentle. The pictures had at first fascinated her. Later, the district school teaching had given her power to understand the words. Then had dawned the new heaven and the new earth. Like a miser with his gold, she guarded her joy. She discovered the unfastened window and timed her visits when she was sure of privacy. And so she had trod, undirected and like the wild creature she was, the paths of literature. 
The Devant Library, gathered through generations, was stored in the country house that had originally been built as a family home. But the sons of the race were rovers, and often years would slip by without a personal inspection. James B. and Eliza Jane were the guardians, and there was little need of a master's anxiety while those two were in command. Janet glanced about the library, and her face grew radiant. She inhaled long breaths. The odor of the leather and old paper thrilled her. She mounted the little steps and took a book, with unerring touch, from the fifth shelf when she sprang lightly to the floor and went with her prize to the shelter of a deep bay window. Softly she raised the sash and drew in the sweetness of the June day. "'It's good,' she murmured. "'Heavenly good!' Then she nestled among the cushions on the window seat, and, shielded by the heavy curtains from the emptiness of the room, she entered her paradise. The key that opened the gateway was a rare edition of Shakespeare, the play Romeo and Juliet. A tiny scrap of paper marked the place of the last reading. The girl's eyes, blue now as the summer sky, fell upon the words of delight, and instantly... Quinton was forgotten, Quinton and all its familiar worries and small pleasures. Janet of the Dunes was Juliet of Italy. A crunching of gravel upon the driveway startled the girl cruelly. "'I believe I have a key, Saxton,' said a deep, firm voice. "'Yes, here it is. I can let myself in. Drive back to the station and wait for the baggage train.' See that everything is carefully loaded on the wagon from the livery. You can get me a bite when you return. Stop at the corners and bring back enough food for tonight. Tomorrow we'll set up housekeeping. I'll make myself comfortable. And, oh, Saxton! Yes, sir? Stop at the post office and ask for mail. Janet's blood rose hotly. God, she whispered. Then she smiled feebly. She could not see the speaker. He was at the front of the house. She heard the wheels outside turn and go rapidly away. A grating of the lock on the long, unopened front door sounded next. Then a rapid stride brought the stranger to the library. Rather a quiet welcome home, the man, believing himself alone, spoke aloud and laughed unconcernedly. "'There's always a feeling of companionship in books. "'Everything looks in good condition.' "'He gave a comprehensive glance around the room. "'This was no stranger, but the master of Bluff Head. "'When Janet was six, she had last seen this man, "'and he had changed less since then than had she. "'From her shelter she eyed him as he flung traveling coat, "'hat, and dress suit case upon a divan.' and himself in a deep leather chair. He was tall, handsome, and elegant. The iron-gray head pressing the chair back was one to draw the second glance from a stranger as a matter of course. The clear, blue-gray eyes took in the walls lined with books. The white hands, clasped in front of the broad chest, showed nerve force and strength. Janet, trapped and desperate, 
first contemplated a leap from the open window, but that method of exit was discarded upon second thought. It would definitely end all further expectation of reaching the world of books. While there was hope in other directions, she must choose more sanely. She ventured a cough. So slight a sound in that silence might well have shaken the strongest nerves. The man in the chair, however, did not move. But his eyes fell instantly upon the alcove. The parted curtains, now that the girl raised herself forward, gave a full view of the slight form and vivid face. The calm eyes from the chair wavered an instant and the nostrils twitched. Then the man laughed carelessly. "'Won't you come out and be friendly?' he said. "'Thank you.' Janet came forth, book in hand, with eyes full of amusement. There was an awkward pause while the man gazed steadily at her. Then Janet spoke. "'I, I suppose you've come now to stay?' It sounded brusque and unmannerly, but it was the only remark that occurred to her. "'I had thought of making rather a stay.' The eyes rested upon the bright face. "'However, possession is nine-tenths of the law. If you say the word, I'll skedaddle.' "'Oh,' panted Janet, "'I pray you pardon me.' The sentence sounded Shakespearean in the gathering confusion. I only thought, do you not see? I suppose you are Mr. Devant, and I know you would end, end... What, pray? I'm not uncompromisingly final. I've been known to let things run on. Why, you see, I've been in the habit for years of crawling in your cellar window, coming up here and reading your books. I began it when I was a very little girl. It comes to be a kind of habit. The man laughed with keen relish. You quite flatter me, Miss... Miss... He paused. Oh, Janet. Janet of the Dunes, you know, Captain Billy's Janet. You may not remember me, but I saw you once, years and years ago. I was at the light, David's light. You came visiting there. I called you Mr. Government. Miss Janet, do take a seat. Permit me. He arose and with courtly grace placed a chair for his companion. I recall you perfectly. The mistake you made in my name came to be a joke and byword after I went home. You saw me snooping around the light and thought I was the government, inspecting Captain David's domain. It all comes to me quite clearly. I remember you put your back against a certain closet and intimated in no doubtful language that it was private property. You were a bewitching small child, Miss Janet, if you will pardon an old man's freedom of speech. I am delighted to renew our acquaintance. Janet flushed. I presume, counting upon your memory of my inspection of the lighthouse, you felt free to inspect my house? Are the books to your taste, Miss Janet? They have been my greatest joy in all these years. A serious tone and a sudden moisture of the blue eyes touched the man. He spoke in a sincerer manner, looking more sharply at the glowing face. 
You are a book lover by nature, I see. Yes, I never see a book, but I feel as I do when I stand by the sea on a foggy morning. I can see nothing, but I know that everything lies hidden in the fog. I wonder what kind of a day lies there, and what the day bears. So it is with a book. I open the covers, and the fog slowly melts away. Yes. A smell of the sea stole into the room window, and the man took a long breath. You have read wisely, I hope, he said. I began with the pictures. Then I spelled out the words in the books on the bottom shelf. I've worked my way up. I'm on the fifth shelf by the door now. I do not seem to be able to get any further than this. She passed the book to him. I've been at this book three whole months. I sort of hoped, please forgive me, but I sort of hoped I might get to the sixth shelf before you came back. Shakespeare, mused the master of Bluffhead. And he's held you three months, Miss Janet, after you've waded through heaven only knows what? Yes, he makes me forget everything. I cannot explain, only he sings to me, and he talks to me, and he makes me a hundred people all in one. Miss Janet, heaven forbid that a mere master of bluff head should close the gates to this genius's Eden to such a lover as you. Allow me. He handed out the key that had given him entrance to his home. Permit me to give you royal freedom to what, surely, is more yours than mine. A cellar window has been honored enough. The doorway is not wide enough for so true a worshiper. I do not understand you. I feel you are laughing at me. Heaven save us. No, my child, I mean simply this. Come at your own sweet will and read to your heart's content. If you will graciously permit me, I most gladly will wander with you through these. He waved his hand toward the shelves. I may be able to point out some new pleasure paths. I am certain you can make me love old ones better. If I am absent from Bluff Head, I will leave orders that you are to be undisturbed while you honor this room. I trust my old friend of the light as well? Yes, but, oh, how can I thank you? By returning, my dear child. There, I hear Saxton. How the time has flown. He arose, and Janet slipped to her feet and passed from the room. Devant called after her. Goodbye for the present, Janet of the Dunes. For a moment, the girl paused. Goodbye, Mr. Government, she replied, and was gone, leaving a trailing ripple of laughter as a memory of the strange meeting. End of Chapter 3 Recording by Roger Moline Chapter 4 of Janet of the Dunes this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Janet of the Dunes by Harriet T. Comstock. Chapter 4. Janet, where you going? Over to the hills, Susan Jane. 
Everything rid up? Everything. I never felt my powerlessness so much as I have since you come. I'm sorry, Susan Jane. It must be hard to see others active if one is tied as you are. Try not to look at me. Not look at you? Ha! Huh. Gals need watchin'. I know it would suit more'n you, like as not, if I'd been struck blind as well as helpless. But I ain't blind. I see all that's going, and more, too. Janet sighed. The atmosphere of the light below stairs was depressing. What's Mark Tapkins hanging round for? It was his turn at the light last night, Susan Jane. Land's sake, I know that. Didn't I hear David snoring fit to bust till morning? But Mark didn't used to lap his turn clear on to the next forenoon. Janet, do you know what I think? No, Susan Jane. I think Mark Tapkins is shining up to you. Do you, Susan Jane? Janet was struggling with her hair. Yes, I do. And I feel it's my place to tell you that it ain't a bad chance for you. Mark's a steady, slow fellow, but he ain't lacking. You're dreadful giddy and don't take to houseways. Mark's father is the best housekeeper I know on. He's sort of daft, but all the sense he has left has gone to cooking and managing a house. He ain't old, and the soft-headed kind last longer than keener folks. It would fit into your ways right proper. Mrs. Joe G.'s girl couldn't stand it. She is so brisk and contriving, and Mrs. Joe G., being right here on hand, has hopes of working Maud Grace off on some border. But you ain't got nobody to pilot you, Janet, and you're queer and unlikely, except in looks, and some doubt's the worth of them. As long as Mark is leaning toward you, I think it my duty to head you toward him. Thank you, Susan Jane, but I'll pilot myself, please. The girl's face showed an angry flush. Shall I open the Bible for you before I go? Yes, you know the place? It falls open to the page, Susan Jane. Thank you. And please put the money box where I can see it. Was it one or two weeks you paid for? Two, Susan Jane. Now, I must be off. Tell David not to wait dinner. Wait dinner, sniffed Susan Jane. Well, listen to them airs. Wait dinner. I'd like to see anyone, boarder or saucy jade, as would make me wait dinner. Janet had fled before the rising storm. There she goes, sails set and full-rigged, and Mark Tapkins following on a hind like a little lopsided tug after an ocean steamer. Poor, helpless Susan Jane looked after the two, all her irritable, action-checked misery breaking through her eyes. Lord, she moaned, I don't want to live, and yet, for all I know, this may be better than nothing. I don't want to be nothing. Just looking on is better than that. Janet, striding along the woodpath beyond the light, heard the shambling steps behind her. She turned and saw Mark. He was tall and lank. 
He leaned forward from the shoulders loosely, and his face had the patient, dull expression of a faithful but none too fine breed dog. "'Where are you going, Mark?' the girl turned. "'Long o' you, Janet. I've... I've got to say something.' "'Oh, please don't, Mark. I've been hearing things since sunup, and you've been in the light all night. You're in no condition to say things.' "'Yes, I be too, Janet. I always feel keener after a night awake. Since I've sought up in the light, I've been considerable spryer, or maybe it's you.' Janet heaved a sigh. "'Mark,' she pleaded, "'there isn't an earthly thing you can say that I want to hear this morning. I'm going to the hills on business, and I must be as calm as I can.' "'It's them hills as has made me come to the point.' Them hills is bristling with city folks, men and women. I've heard what you're aiming at, going up to the hills to get a job of some sort. You're innocent, and you're a gal, Janet, and I'm a man, and I've spent six months in the city, and I know its ways, and I know men. You're too good-looking, Janet, to mix up with what's on the hills. The mixture of foolishness and wisdom the effort to protect in man fashion what was weak moved Janet strangely. Mark, she faltered, you need not be afraid. I know I do not understand, and that helps. If I thought I did, there might be danger. It's just the same as if I were James B. going up there to peddle, well, clams. You need not fear a bit more for me than for him. Mark gazed stupidly at the glowing face. "'I guess I must love you,' he said at last. "'Things come kind of slow to me. I was always one to drift along with the tide. But when I plump into a rock, I get some jarred, same as others. I went to the city that time to see if I could get my bearing at a distance. But when I come back, I sort of lost the channel and took again to drifting. But this here hills business has livened me up considerable. Did you ever think what I left Pa for and went to the city, Janet? I thought you wanted to see the world, Mark. Well, I didn't. Quinton is world enough for me. I went to see if I could get, off there alone, a proper sense of just what I did want. I wanted to choose a course for myself, independent of Pa, but save us. I hankered after Pa so, and I came nigh to perishin' for his cookin'. I come nigher, though, to perishin' from trying to get something like it once while I was away. A gleam of thin humor crossed the dull face. What was that? Janet asked, thankful for any side path that led away from the danger point. Crawlers! Mark laughed a rattling, unmirthful laugh. Crullers, I got thinking of Pa's one day, and I went to a pasty shop, and I says, Have you got crullers? The gal behind the counter says, Yes, how many? I recallin' Pa's, and feeling weak in the pit of my stomach from hunger, I answered back, Three dozen. The gal leaped back a step, 
Then she hauled out a bag about the size of a bushel and began shoveling in round humpy things, most all whole in the center, but considerable sizable as to girth. I was up to city ways by then, and I weren't going to show any surprise if she had loaded an oyster boat full of cakes on me. So I paid up without a word and went out of the shop shouldering the bag. It took me about a week to get rid of them crullers, groaned Mark. And I've told Pa since I come back that he'd better learn to make city crullers for the city trade this summer. Counting holes and puffy air, they pay better than Pa's solid little cakes. Janet was laughing merrily. Why, Mark, she said presently, you've got an idea. Tell your father to make his crullers for the city trade. He'll make his fortune. Put a sign on your gate and teach the boarders what crullers really are. Mark was not heeding. I vum, he went on presently. While I was down to the city, what with poor food and not enough of it, and homesickness fit to kill, I thought I seed my course clear. I had a job opening oysters. And I worked, I can tell you. About all the city folks eat oysters, and I seed a good bit of life down at my shop, and I learned city ways and badness. Then I got sick and come home, thinking I was ready to settle down, and then I got to drifting, and so it went till now. And when I heard about you going up to the hills and knowing what I'd do about city ways, I just reasoned out that I must love you, else I wouldn't mind so much. I ain't no great shucks, but I can watch you, and no one shan't harm you, and Pa's more'n willing to see to the house and cook, no matter who comes in as my wife, and you can run wild, and no one will have the right to hinder, and I'll stand off and watch, and that's something. Oh, Mark, please, please don't. The poor fellow's dumb effort to protect her was an added heartache to carry to the hills. You must not, Mark, dear. You don't want a woman to watch. You want one to watch with you, one whom you love and who loves you. Put that sign out for crullers, Mark. I know you can make money, and some day a good, helpful girl will come your way. No, Janet, Mark's patient voice sank drearily. If you won't let me watch over you, I'll watch without your leave. I won't bother you none, but I thank God I've got city ways to meet city ways. I'm plumb shamed of the way our gals is acting with the boarders. I'm a good watcher, Janet. They had come to the dividing of the ways. Can't I go on, Janet? No, Mark, you must go home and sleep. Goodbye, Janet. Till tomorrow. Goodbye, Mark. She watched the slouching figure out of sight. With all my watchers, she faltered, I feel like a ship riding near the bar with the crew's eyes upon it. And then she went, less courageously, on the upward way. The path ran uphill and down dale, with always a steady rise. The water of the bay lay blue and smiling round about the hills. The scrub oak, the blueberries, the luxuriant wild rose, and variegated grasses 
made color so exquisite and rare that the only wonder was that the hills were not crowded with adoring nature worshippers. The never-ceasing breeze came caressingly over the flower-strewn stretches. Nothing stayed its course, and there was health-giving tonic in its breath. Beyond, where Brown Brother raised its superior height, the artist colony had pitched its tents. Toward that settlement, with her daring request, Janet walked. As she neared it, her brave heart grew weak and weaker. How was she to word her proposition? What was she to offer in return for instruction that was to help her to fame and fortune? She feared every moment that she might meet a little wagon drawn by a sun-bonneted, long-aproned woman, or a man not less picturesque. She sat down to consider. And then, to make thought easier, she lay at full length, closing her eyes and dreaming luxuriously. The summer day lured her senses deliciously. Even the late experience with Mark was mellowed by the present delight. The memory of the recent encounter with the master of Bluffhead stirred her pulses to a quicker time. Ah, life was glorious. Life was full, in spite of it all. It was like the sea in a fog or an unopened book. She had only to wait and smile and love, and life would expand into a perfect day. Something drew the girl to a sitting posture. A nameless fear was upon her. She glanced around, and near her, upon a knoll, sat a man, a young man. No little wagon put its seal upon his calling, but the broad hat, set well back from the handsome face, had a distant but fatal mark of the artist colony upon it. The stranger had a board firmly placed upon his knees, and even as he gazed at Janet with a devouring intensity, he was working rapidly with a long, slim brush. "'What are you doing?' The question was torn from the girl without reason or forethought. "'Painting a picture!' The voice was solemn, almost to absurdity. "'A picture of what?' Outraged imagination arose to the fore. "'The spirit of the dunes. Keep still a minute, then I'll let you see it if you want to.' "'Yes, I do want to.' Dignity of a new order was born within Janet at that instant. This probably was a lesser being than the wagon-loaded geniuses. Their work was not unknown to the girl, nor had it escaped her scorn. If this meaner devotee of art had mangled her into a hideous likeness of herself, she would resent it, and with reason. Slowly she arose and went up behind the man. What she saw stayed anger and all other emotions, save wonder. Surely the hills, with all their real color and outline, were ensnared upon that square of paper. Never was there a truer reflection of the bay. Janet could almost feel the breeze that swayed the scrub oaks and wild roses in the picture. But that marvel was the least. Who, what was that in the soft dimple of the little hill? A being of grace, of beauty, and of a wildness that was part of the hills and wind. In the final estimate of any picture, two artists must bear part, 
the one who has wrought and the one who appreciates. These two looked now upon the exquisite sketch. How do you like it? The man did not turn or raise his eyes, but his voice brought the quick color to the smooth brown cheeks. Do, do I look like that? As near as mere man can reproduce you. If I had a magic brush and heaven's own paint pots, I believe I could have done better. I wish you had stayed a half hour longer, but thank God I've at least caught a hint of you. I look like that? Amazement thrilled through and through the low voice. You look like that, and I am grateful for the best criticism I could ask. What's the matter? What in thunder is the matter? For Janet had sunk down beside him, hid her head in her folded arms, and was sobbing as if her heart would break. What in... I say, Miss... Miss... What shall I call you? For heaven's sake, tell me what I've done. Oh, you've dashed every bit of hope I had to... to earn money, and... and fame, for Cap'n Daddy and me. The young artist laid his sketch tenderly aside to dry. It was too precious to endanger, even in this disturbed moment. Once it was safe, he stood his full height of six feet two, put his hands in his jacket pockets, looked down upon the heaving body of the spirit of the dunes, and said firmly, "'You've got to explain yourself, you know. I don't want to use force, but really you must look me in the face and try to make me understand.' Janet lowered her hands at once and gazed upward with her eyes full of distress and apology. "'I do not know what you will think of me.' I'm ashamed, indeed I am. But, well, you cannot understand. I never minded so much when I saw the things the others did. Their pictures didn't look like anything real, anything like our dunes and the hills. And I thought I could learn, at least, to do such pictures as theirs and get money. But you've shown me another kind. I can never, never learn to make such pictures as that. Her sorrowful gaze fell upon the sketch, drying nearby. And you, you seem to be taking something away from us. Something that is ours, not yours at all. What right have you to take the hills, and me, without paying well for the privilege? During this harangue, the man had stood motionless gazing in growing astonishment upon the radiant, uplifted face which was swept by passion's clouds as the June sky was swept by softer ones. "'By Jove!' he muttered at last, and a smile broke upon his handsome, browned face. "'You Quintonites make us pay well for all we get. "'You swoop down upon us like a cloud of vultures or witnesses.' but it's driving the bargain pretty hard when you set a price upon what we see in it all and what heaven meant should be free. As for you, he paused and threw himself full length upon the sand and laughed good-humoredly. I beg your pardon. 
I really had no right to put you in the picture without your permission. I thought, as true as heaven hears me, that you were like, well, the other girls of the place, and they coaxed to have themselves taken, as they call it. Now that I hear you speak, I see that you are different, and I beg your pardon. Upon my word, I do. And what's more, the sketch is yours, unless you give me the right to keep it. I'm afraid I cannot make you understand my position, but the temptation to put you in the picture was too much for mortal painter man. Janet's face cleared slowly. If you mean I'm different from the other girls because I speak differently, she said slowly, I can tell you that it is simply because I've listened and read more. I hate to use words badly when they sound so much better right. I practice, but I'm just a Quinton girl. Oh, I see. You have higher aspirations? That is why you wanted to learn to paint? No. At least that isn't the real reason. I want money. Great Scott! There was mockery and a new pleasure in the man's voice now. He was open to revelation in regard to Quinton characteristics, and he sensed an original type before him. You to tell me in this brutally frank manner that you want money? You with that face? A flush tinged the bronze of Janet's cheeks again. Yes, I want money she said defiantly. Some get it by waiting on table. Some feed you and wash for you. I cannot do those things. I just cannot. Heaven forbid. But there must be some way. The frank, almost boyish tone disarmed the listener. His smile fled, and when he spoke, the mockery had departed. His better nature rose to meet the blind need in the girl's desire, and his artistic sense guided him to a possible path. "'I wish you would give me some name to call you by,' he said. "'You have mentioned Cap'n Daddy. Am I to understand that your name is... is... "'My captain's name is Morgan. I'm Janet.' "'Thank you, Miss Janet. I haven't a card.' but Mr. Richard Thornley presents his compliments. The humor of the situation began to dawn upon the girl. We are all captains down here, she explained. We each have our captain. Mine is over at the station on the beach. I'm staying just now with Captain David at the light while I'm looking for something to do. Miss Janet, I have a business proposition. Thornley folded his arms. "'I've had an inspiration. During the three-quarters of an hour that you lay upon the sands, I saw you, not only as I saw you then and caught you, but I saw you flitting through several pictures. I even named the pictures Spirit of the Dunes. I advise you for your own good, Miss Janet. Do not struggle to learn to make daubs.' It never pays. It's hard enough to make the best go. But you can help me, and together we'll create some pictures that will set the town gaping. What do you say? 
I do not understand. Well, sit for me. Be my model. Let me put you in my pictures. I'll pay you well, and if I sell the pictures, you'll have a kind of fame to offer your Captain Daddy that no girl need be ashamed of. Have you caught my meaning? You mean, if I sit here upon the hills... Sit, stand, or lie among them, Thornley explained. You'll paint me and pay me, and then take your pictures to the city and sell them? Try to, Thornley laughed easily. I'm one of the few fortunate devils who has sold a picture or two. My hopes for the future are good. I'll do it, cried Janet. It's about the easiest way to get the boarder's money I've heard of yet. The laugh that rang out made Thornley stare. I did not know anyone could laugh in quite that way, he said. It sounded, well, it sounded like part of the air and place. Miss Janet, he spoke slower, feeling his way as he went. I'm going to ask you to keep this business arrangement private. The other artists would be quick enough to filch my prize if they could. No one else shall paint me, Janet assured him. If I see a little wagon, I'll pull down my bonnet. Thank you. And those on your side, too, Miss Janet. You're Captain Daddy and that Captain of the Light. I'd like to surprise them by and by. Is it a go? Oh, yes. The frank innocence in the girl's face again stirred Thornley. It's a go, if my watchers do not interfere. Your watchers? Yes. I'm considered rather a, well... Something like a ship that's likely to be wrecked. I don't know why folks are always thinking I may go to the bar, but they do. And several of them have an eye on me. I can almost feel Daddy's eye way over from the station. And there's Davy. I shouldn't wonder now if he were looking at me as he hauls the oil up to the lamp. And Susan Jane, chair-ridden as she is, has eyes that go out like a devilfish's feelers. And then there's Mark Tapkins. I'm afraid you'll have trouble with Mark's eyes. Thornley was laughing uproariously. You open a vista of human possibilities that makes me about crazy, he said. Your associates must all be Arguses. But I like not, Mark. Just where does Tapkins come in? Most everywhere. Janet joined in the carefree laugh. She felt perfectly at her ease with this stranger now. Born and reared where equality and good fellowship existed, she knew no need of caution. To dislike a person was the only ground for suspicion. To like him was an open sesame to heart and confidence. And Janet liked the stranger immensely. Mark comes in most everywhere, she repeated. You'll have to look out for Mark. He loves you, I suppose? Thornley forbore to laugh, and he searched the frank face near him. Now, whatever made you guess that? He is not quite sure himself. He's never sure of anything, 
and I never suspected it until lately. You're rather keen. Well, we'll escape Tapkins's eagle eye. Forewarned is forearmed. Now, see here, partner. Can you blow this whistle? Thornley took a small golden watch charm from his fob. It seemed a toy, but when Janet placed it to her lips and blew, it emitted a shrill, far-reaching call that startled her. "'I'll prowl on these parts every day when it doesn't pour cats and dogs,' Thornley explained. "'And when you can escape the watch, come to the hills, blow the whistle, and presto! Change! I'll be on the scene before you can count twenty. "'Miss Janet, fame and fortune yawn before us, actually yawn. "'And now, may I keep this?' He picked up the sketch and came close to the girl, his shoulder touching hers, as they looked at the picture together. "'Yes,' Janet said softly, the beauty of the thing holding her anew. "'Yes, you've made them your very own, the hills and me, and the sky and the water. It's very wonderful. I never saw anything like it. If you only forget, it is easy to imagine that this is a reflection. Thank you, Thornley moved away. Thank you. That's about the greatest praise I've ever had. This is only a water sketch, too. Wait till you've seen it in oil. I've a shanty over there, he pointed below them, where a hollow, opening toward the bay, held a tiny building in its almost secret shelter. I'm generally there when I'm not tramping the open. Would you, uh, well, would you mind letting me pose you there some day? Oh, no, Janet beamed delightedly. I'd love to see the inside of your shanty. I dare say it's enchanted, and besides, she showed her white teeth deliciously. I do not believe Mark could watch me there. She rose and picked up her sunbonnet. "'The sun has passed noon,' she said ruefully. "'And I've a good three miles to walk. "'Good-bye, Mr. Thornley. It's been a wonderful morning.' She started rapidly down the hill. Thornley waved to her as she went, until a friendly hillock hid her. End of Chapter 4 Recording by Roger Moline Chapter 5 of Janet of the Dunes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Janet of the Dunes by Harriet T. Comstock. Chapter 5. Well, my boy, to think of you drifting down here. Have a cigar and put your feet on the railing. I tell you, you may travel the world over, and there isn't an easier posture known than the Yankee one of feet higher than head. John Devant and Richard Thornley sat upon the wide veranda of Bluff Head, and Thornley, being thus given the freedom of Yankee position, planted his feet upon the high railing, tipped back his broad arm chair, and inhaled the smoke of his host's good cigar. "'You've caught the language of the place already, I see, Mr. Devant. 
Had we met anywhere else, another word would have done. Drifting applies here. No one runs down to Quinton, or happens down. One just naturally drifts. It's a great place. You like it, eh? Mr. Devant let his eyes rove over the wealth of color and wildness, and puffed enjoyably. It's immense. Strange, isn't it, how a place can lie slumbering for generations, right at our doors, and no one has sense enough to look at it. And after all, it is while it is sleeping, or beginning to stir, that it charms. Two years from now, when the rabble get onto the racket, the glory will be gone. Think of picnics on the hills. Imagine a crowd rushing for the dunes, and the bay thick with sails. No, let's make the best of it while we may. Mr. Devant laughed. I'll give it five or ten years, he said. My grandfather had a vision of its future prosperity. He bought acres here for a mere song. He built this house, hoping the family would find it comfortable for the summers. My father liked it so well that he settled the library and general fixtures for a home, living winters at a hotel in town. But the old place was too lonely for me in the past. I'm just beginning to have visions, like my forebears. I'm sick of travel. Town life ought never to charm a natural animal except during the months of bad weather. My boy, I believe I'll settle down at fifty and take to land speculation. I'll buy up round here, keep the grip of the rabble off, and preserve this spot for the pure in heart and them who have clean hands. It'll be a missionary work, Thornley rejoined lightly. Who turned your eyes hitherward, Dick? Why, John Mason. He saw Chatterton's famous picture and came down and discovered this garden spot. Poor old Mason. With his money pots and his struggling love for beauty and simplicity, he is sore distressed. He wanted to build a cabin on the dunes and live here summers, but Madam and the girls almost had hysterics. They have just built a gingerbread affair at Magnolia, and so Mason added a den to the structure. A huge room overlooking the sea. It has space left on the wall for a big picture, and Mason gave me an order. Go down to that heaven-preserved spot, he said. Get the spirit of the place and put it in my den. I don't mind the price. Stay down all summer, but get it. Do you think you can? asked Devant. Thornley's gaze contracted. I think I have, he replied, slowly flicking the ashes that had accumulated upon his cigar. Good. That means more glory. In this sordid age, and with an uncomprehending public, you've had rare fortune in getting rid of your work, Dick. Your pictures are sellers, I hear. How proud your father would have been. My old friend was one of the few men I have known who set a price upon genius above money. Yes, I wish father and mother could have known. It's often a bit lonely. But there is Catherine. At least, I suppose there is still Catherine. Yes, slowly. There is still Catherine, and our relations are the same. 
She's watching my stunts in art. She's proud of you? She's proud of my success, Thornley smiled. There's a difference, you know. Oh, yes, but Catherine is young. I'd like to see the child again. Is she as pretty as her childhood promised? She is very handsome. Full of life and dimples? Oh, she's giddy enough. Superb health and undiminished scent for pleasure. Catherine is an undoubted success. I must have her down. My sister is coming at the month's end. I'll write to Catherine tonight and plead my friendship for her parents. Where is she? And I'll tell you you're here. She's at South End with the Prescotts. For some moments the older and the younger man smoked in silence. The sun set in due time, and Captain David's light appeared. "'What a living thing a lighthouse is,' said Thornley. "'That and an open fire have the same vital human interest.' "'I believe you are right. When I find myself bad company, I always have a fire built if the temperature is below seventy. Since I came here, I've taken to this side of the veranda late afternoons, and I grow quite chummy with Captain Davy's light. Mr. Devant got up, stretched himself, and took to pacing the piazza slowly. "'You know David of the Light?' asked Thornley. "'As a boy, I knew the characters round about here, somewhat. I'm trying to reinstate myself in their good graces. This place produces strange and unexpected types.' "'Yes, I found a pimpernel flower on the hills today,' said Thornley, irreverently. "'Even the flora is startling.' "'You found what?' "'A pimpernel. It's a common wild flower in some sandy places, but a strange enough little rascal to be seen just here. It's called the poor man's weather glass. Where it grows most common, it is not especially noticeable.' but it almost took my breath this morning. It's in keeping with the surprises of the surroundings. Devant laughed. Well, he said presently, it must be a relation, same family, you know, of a pimpernel of a girl I've discovered here. Thornley again contracted his brows. Solitary flower? Shutting up at approach of storm and all the rest? he asked. "'Solitary flower, all right,' Devant rejoined. "'I'm not up on plantology, but I've studied humans, off and on, and I cannot account for this one. I don't know whether, in my position as friend to you, I should bring this odd specimen to your notice, but I'd like to have you, as an artist, pass judgment upon her beauty. "'I might have the storm's effect upon this pimpernel of yours,' Thornley put in make her hide within herself. I fancy storms would not daunt her. I don't know but that she would rather enjoy them. Thornley yawned secretly. Handsome, is she? Not only that, said Devant. I suppose she is wonderfully handsome. She has grace, too, and a figure, I should say, about perfect. But it is her mental makeup that staggers me. 
She talks in one way and thinks in another. She clings to her G's, too, in spite of local tradition. She hasn't a passing acquaintance with ain't, or the more criminal ain't. Her English is good. She reads like a starved soul, for the pure pleasure of it, and she thinks like a child of ten. By Jove, she was here in my library the day I arrived. She had a secret method of getting into the house by a cellar window, had done it for years. She almost froze my blood when I saw her. I thought I'd struck a ghost for certain. She was reading Shakespeare, said she hadn't been able to get beyond him for three months. She began to read when she was little, at the bottom shelf, and has worked her way up to the fifth. And yet, with all that, she's a simple child, Dick. Smollett and Fielding and heaven knows who else are on the third shelf. Lord, cried Thornley, and laughed loudly. Who is this Pimpernel? Janet of the Dunes. Captain Billy's girl. Been brought up like a wild thing. Sails a boat like an old tar. Swims like a fish. Motherless. Old Billy, a poor shoat, according to the gossip. The women have a sort of pitying contempt for him. The men keep their mouth shut. But you can fancy the training of this girl. I'm always interested in heredity, and I'd like to know the girl's mother. Something ought to account for my pimpernel. Thornley was rising. "'I'll try to account for my flower, Mr. Devant,' he said. "'I dare say some untoward wind bore it from its original environment. "'It may be that the same reasons exist in the case of this flower of yours. "'Good night. "'Stay to late dinner, Dick. "'You know you don't want to go back to a dish of prunes and soggy cake. "'Better stay.' "'No, thank you just the same.' I'm going to bunk out in my shanty tonight. I've got a chafing dish there. The prunes were undermining my constitution. Good night. Devant watched him until the shrubbery hid him. I'll get Catherine down as soon as I can, he mused. And for his father's sake, as well as his own, I'll try to keep him and the Pimpernel apart until then. His engagement to Catherine is a safe anchor. But while Davy's light shone friendly-wise upon Bluffhead, it also hid its duty by a lonely little mariner putting off from Davy's dock. It had been a hard day for Janet. Susan Jane, with almost occult power, had seemed to divine the girl's longing to get away. "'Border or no border,' the helpless woman had snarled. "'I reckon you've got something human about you.' If you can't stop and do for me, I'll call David. I've had a bad night, and I ain't going to be left to myself. There's stirring doings going on, but no one comes here to gossip. I'll stay, Janet had sighed, remembering David's worn, patient face when he staggered toward the bedroom an hour before. But I cannot gossip, Susan Jane. I don't know how. And all the other folks are busy cooking, feeding, washing for, and waiting on the borders. City folks come high, Susan Jane. 
Well, if you can't gossip, Janet, there is them as can. Thank God, when he took the use of my legs and arms, he strengthened my eyes and ears. I can see and hear considerable, though there is them who would deny me that comfort if they could. What ails you and Mark Tapkins? Nothing, Susan Jane. Yes, there be, too. He's more womble-cropped than ever. They say his pa is making a mint of money selling them crullers of his'n. Who would have thought of Mark's being smart enough to set his pa on that tack? The way these city folks eat anything that is given is scandalous. They must have crops like yellow ducks. Have you heard about Mrs. Doji's Maud Grace? No, Susan Jane. Janet stirred the cake she was making by Susan's recipe energetically. You're deep as a bulkhead, Janet. I bet you're envious. Envious, Susan Jane? Envious of Maud Grace? Oh, you have had your eyes open, eh? You just asked me about her, Susan Jane. Oh, did I? Well, it's simply amazing how Mrs. Joe G. is developing a business talent. Actually keeping her girl dressed up to entertain the boarders. Evenings. She's got someone to help wait in the dining room, and she cooks. Joe G. sails the boarders, when they pay him enough, and that girl just sparks around and acts real entertaining, evenings. I shouldn't wonder with such a smart ma if she caught a bow. I do wish, Janet, since you ain't got no one but Billy, and everyone knows he's got about as much gumption as a snipe, I do wish you could land one of these boarders. They must be real easy from what I hear. I don't want them. Course you don't, and you don't want to work for your living, and Mark ain't good enough for you. You'd better look out, Janet. I tell you for your good. It ain't safe for you to trust your leanings too far. So the day had passed. The afternoon had brought Mark Tapkins with his gloomy face, too, so Janet had been obliged to give the hills a wide berth and only darkness brought relief. Susan Jane was bewailing her woes in David's patient ears. It was Mark's night in the light. So, unseen and unsuspected, Janet loosed the comrade, unfurled the white wing before the obliging land breeze, and made for the station. It was a glorious summer night, full moon, full tide, and a steady west wind, heavy with the odor of the hills. As the little boat darted ahead, Janet's spirits rose as poor David's did, when once he parted company with the burden of Susan Jane's peevish egotism. She looked back at the light and thought, with a little sigh of weariness, that she was free from the watchfulness of the three within its walls. Only the light has an eye upon me. Kind, good light. Captain Daddy and I do not need you tonight, but come storm, then God bless you. It was not the girl's intention to run up to the station dock. She knew that Captain Billy had the midnight patrol going east. So she planned to make for the little cove, midway between the station and the halfway house, 
and take Billy by surprise and assault. She chuckled delightedly as she constructed her mode of attack. She was hungry to feel the comfort of Billy's understanding love and trust. The more she had to conceal from Billy, the more she yearned to be near him. The comrade, responding to the steady hand upon the tiller, shot into the cove. The girl secured the boat and ran lightly over the dunes to the seaward side. Then she lay down among the sand grasses and waited. She seemed alone in God's world. The moonlighted ocean spread full and throbbing before her. The sky, star-filled and blue-black, arched in unbroken splendor. The waste and solitude held no awe for this girl of the station. They had been her heritage, and were natural and homelike to her. Under summer skies and through winter storms, she knew the coast's every phase of beauty or danger. It was hers, and she belonged to it. A common love held them together. She crouched close to the sandy hillock. The night was growing old. The tide had turned, and still she sat absorbed in thought and tender memory. How beautiful the world and life were! She took from her bosom the tiny whistle, which had been for five long, delicious weeks her power of summoning unlimited joy to herself. What a new element had entered into her existence! How powerful and self-sufficient she felt! As she recalled her part in those wonderful pictures that were growing day by day in the shanty on the hills, her blood rose hotly in her young body as she lived again under the calm sky those weeks of perfect bliss. Suddenly, the girl sat upright, put the whistle in its hiding place, and strained her eyes toward the station. Yes, there came Billy. He was striding along. Head bowed, except when conscientiously he gazed seaward, scanning with his far-sighted eyes the bar where danger lay, come storm or fog. But could there be danger on such a night as this? Billy, faithful soul, had not a nature attuned to the glory of the night, but he had a soul sensitive to a brother's need. If he gave heed at all to the summer beauty. It was merely in thankfulness that all was well. Help! Help! Billy stopped suddenly and raised his head. Help! Help! Here's a poor little brig on the bar. A smile of joy overspread the man's face, a smile that drove all care and weariness before it. Ye little specimen! He called. What do you mean by burrowing in the sand and scaring one of the government officials clear out of common sense? Come here, you varmint! My captain! The strong young arms were about the rugged neck. You were just going to send up a costin light now, weren't you, Daddy? No, I were not. I don't waste nary a costin on a worthless little hulk like you. Come on, girl. I've been taking it easy. I ain't as young as I once was. We must make the halfway in season. Tain't the first time we've took the patrol together, is it, Janet? He held the girl's hand in his, and she 
accommodated her step as nearly as possible to his long, swinging gait. "'Kinder homesick?' he asked presently. "'Kinder you sick. I wanted to be near you. I wanted you,' Janet whispered. "'Dern little cosler,' chuckled Billy. "'I know what you're up to. Ain't got nothing to do yet over on the mainland. Just a lazy little torment. And you want a cousin your Captain Billy. Why can't you join the army that's plain fleets in the city folks? They be the easiest biters, according to what I hear, that has ever run into these shoals. Regular dogfish, one and all. Oh, I pick up a penny now and then. Janet pursed her pretty mouth and set her head sideways. I made enough to pay Susan Jane for last week in this. Susan's an old leech, Cap'n Billy. It's simply awful to see her greed in money matters. Sitting in her chair, she can manage to want more, strive to get more, and make more fuss about it than any other woman on the mainland. You have to live with Susan Jane to appreciate her. Oh, poor Davy. We never really knew what a hero he is, Daddy. He's splendid. It had been necessary, unless Susan Jane was to receive double pay for her boarder, that Janet should inform Billy as to her money-getting. But once the fact was stated, the girl hurried to other thoughts in order to divert Billy. How'd you get your money, Janet? A serious look came into the man's face. It's uncommon clever of you to help yourself on, if the money only comes in a God-fearing way. Captain Daddy, Janet drew herself up magnificently. Do you take me for Maud Grace? No, I don't. I'm taking you for my gal, and it's my duty to see that you don't forget your training over on the border-struck mainland. But what's wrong long of Mrs. Joe G's gal? Nothing, except she keeps dressed up to entertain the boarders and takes tips. That's what she calls them. Tips? Billy wrinkled his brows. Yes, money for doing nothing. Captain Daddy, I work for my money. Doing what? Billy's insistence was growing vexatious. Daddy, don't you ever tell. Janet danced in front of him and walked backward as she pointed a finger merrily. The moonlight streaming upon the girl showed her beauty in a witch-like brightness. It stirred Billy in an uneasy, anxious fashion. There ain't no call to tell anyone, he said. You and me is enough to know. Us and them what pays you. Captain Daddy, I'm a model. A model what? Janet's laugh rose above the lapping water sound. Why, Daddy, don't you think I'm a model everything? No, Billy shook his head. I ain't blind, gal. Ye ain't what most folks would call a model, I'm thinking. Well, the artists think I am. The artists? Them women in bonnets and smutchy pinafores? Gosh! For a moment, Janet's truth-loving soul shrank from deceiving Billy, 
but her promise to Thornley held her. She stopped her merry dance and came again beside him, clasping the hard hand tenderly within her own. "'What do they think you're a model of?' asked the man, and his face had lightened visibly. "'Oh, just what their silly fancy tells them. Only, don't you see, Daddy, dear, they don't want anyone to know until the pictures are done. It would spoil the—the—' "'Well, I cannot explain. "'But they want to spring the pictures upon folks by and by.' "'Cordin' to what Andrew Farley tells,' grinned Billy, all amiability now. "'No one will be likely to know you from a scrub-oak stump when the pictures is done. "'Andrew says when he thinks of all it costs to paint a boat "'and then sees the waste of good, honest paint up on the hills, "'it turns his stomach sick.' Well, long as it is innocent potterin' like that, Janet, I don't know, but as you're considerable sharp to trade your looks for their money. It rather goes again the grain with me to have you get the best of them. But, Lord, as the good book says, a fool and his money is soon parted. And so long as they're sufferin' to part with theirs, I don't know but what you have a right to barter what cargo your little craft carries as well as others would have less agreeable stores on board. Janet laughed merrily. Mark Tapkins was on yesterday, Billy continued. He says Bluff Head's open, and Mr. Devant and a party is there. Must be quite gay and altered on the mainland. Janet's face clouded. Captain Daddy, she faltered, I'm going to tell you something else. "'You're considerable talky, it seems to me,' Billy eyed the girl. "'Captain Billy, have you ever wondered why I talk better than most of the others at the station?' "'I don't know as I would allow that you do,' Billy replied. "'You talk differenter somewhat, but I don't know as it's better.' "'Well, it is. And it isn't all the teacher's doings either, Daddy.' for Maud Grace and the rest never changed much. But for years, Daddy, I've been crawling in the cellar window of Bluff Head when no one on earth knew, and I've read five shelves of books. I've thought like those books and talked like them until I seem to be like them. And, Daddy, the day Mr. Devant came home, he found me in his library room reading his books. Ejaculated Billy, and stood stock still. "'Did he fling you out, neck and crop?' he gasped at last. "'Daddy, he's a nice old gentleman.' "'Old? He ain't daughterin' yet, and he used to have a bit of pepper in his nader. "'What did he do?' "'Do? Why, he gave me the key to his front door. "'He reads with me and tells me what to read. "'We're great friends.' "'Ye tarnal specimen!' Billy was shaking. "'I see you've caught the mainland fever, eh, gal? "'You don't want to bide on the dunes long o' old Billy now, eh?' "'You blessed old captain!' Janet struggled to hold her prize. "'I'm perfectly happy, and I had to come over here tonight and tell you.' "'Janet!' Billy's eyes were dim. 
I keep wishing more and more that you had a ma. I ain't never thought openly on it for years, not since you was first born. But as you grow into womanhood, you seem as helpless as you did then. I wish you had a ma. The little halfway house was in front of them. Andrew Farley, who served on the crew at the station beyond, was in the doorway. "'What you got in tow, Billy?' he called jovially. "'Just a tarnal bit of driftwood, Andy,' Billy rallied his low spirits. "'Hello, Janet,' Andrew recognized her. "'How comes you can leave the mainland? I thought everyone who could stuck there to see the show. "'By gracious, Billy!' You just ought to see how things has altered. The two men exchanged the brass checks. Then, before returning to their stations, they stood chatting easily. Been up to the hills lately, Janet? The girl flushed. Not very, she replied. Come on, Captain Daddy. I'm going to stay on and sleep in the cottage tonight. Them artists, Andrew continued, turning slowly in his own direction. Them artists is smudging up the landscape just scandalous. One of them wanted to paint me the other day, and I held off and let her. Lord, you should just have seen what she'd done to my likeness. I nearly burst when she showed me. I ain't handsome. None ever accused me of that crime. But I ain't lopsided and lantern-jawed to the extent she went. She said I had a loose artistic pose. Them was her words, but I ain't so loose that I hang crooked. Janet slept in the cottage on the dunes that night, and when the men rose to go through the sunrise drill, she ran down to the beach, across the sand hills, and set her sail toward the mainland. She had had her breakfast in the station with the men, and, recalling her difficulty in escaping Susan Jane the day before, she headed the comrade away from the light and glided toward the hills. Mark Tapkins, turning down the wick as the sun came up, saw the white sail set away from home, and something heavier than sleep struck chilly upon his heart. He knew from past spying where Janet was going. End of Chapter 5 Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter 6 of Janet of the Dunes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Janet of the Dunes by Harriet T. Comstock. Chapter 6. Janet, used as she was to the keen, sweet air of the hills, stood, after securing her boat, and drew in deep breaths of the fragrant morning. She had taken off her shoes and stockings, for the dew lay heavy upon the ground, and these, wrapped in a fishnet, were flung across her shoulder. There was a good half-mile to tread before the little hut could be reached bodily, but the whistle's call, going on before, would open the gates of paradise if Thornley were there. The girl did not put her doubt to the test just yet. There was bliss in dallying with the joy, the bliss of youth, innocence, and unalloyed faith. 
Thornley might have stayed, as he generally did, at his own boarding house or at Bluff Head. Janet had learned of his intimacy there, although she had never imagined Mr. Devant's ingenuity in trying to keep them, at first, apart. If Thornley were away from the shanty, Janet knew the hiding place for the key. She could enter at will, and the secrets of the treasure house were not hidden from her. "'Lock the door after you, whether you are in or out,' was Thornley's command. "'No one must know until the very last.' and the girl would have cheerfully defended the place with her life. Over sandy hillocks she went gleefully. The artist in her was throbbing wildly. She had a new inspiration for Thornley's brush. She led his fancy in riotous joy. Where his genius grew slack, hers urged him to renewed effort. The morning came up ruddily from the sea. It came with a south wind playfulness which tossed the girl's glistening hair with free touch and kissed the glowing face into richer beauty. Presently the little secluded hut came into view. The very next hollow held it. Janet stood upon the last hill, drew out her whistle, and with smiling lips that with difficulty formed themselves to the task, sent forth her call. The musical note penetrated the stillness. A bird rose affrightedly from a nearby bush, but it and the waiting girl seemed to have the hills to themselves. "'So much the better,' murmured Janet, sparkling with excitement. "'It will be all the more surprising.' She ran rapidly forward, secured the key, and opened the door. Then she obediently locked it again, and stood within the room, gazing tenderly at every beloved object. It was just as Thornley had left it. He had waited all day for the girl. He had wanted her to pose in the open, but she had failed him, and he had evidently devoted himself to the picture he was painting, as he had told her, for his own private use. "'My Pimpernel,' he called it, and rough as the work was at that stage, it was full of beauty and promise. It was Janet, little more than sketched, to be sure, but a startling likeness, and the wreath of pimpernel flowers on the glorious sun-touched hair had evidently been the artist's last work. The throne-like space with the cushions and low divan upon which the girl posed was in full view, with Thornley's jacket and pipe lying carelessly upon it. The curtain, which always hung over the picture for Mr. Mason, was drawn aside. Apparently the man had had less reason to hide that from any chance visitor. Janet walked over to the table and raised the cover of the chafing dish. "'He ate at the boarding house,' she whispered. "'Else I'd have to wash this. He's scandalously untidy.' She picked up a glass and sniffed. "'Wine,' she announced. "'Wine for a party. And cracker crumbs.' company. I wonder who. One, two, three, four wine glasses. Bluff headers. Then the smile trembled before the memory of Mr. Devant's proud, haughty sister and the young lady unlike anyone the dune-bred girl had ever seen before. Not even the most gorgeous boarder in the least resembled her. She was so icily cold, so calmly beautiful. So exquisitely dressed in white, white always, 
with a dash of gold to match her smooth, shining hair. No power could draw Janet to Bluff Head after the one visit during which the two ladies had frankly and condescendingly taken stock of her, evidently in consequence of remarks made by the master of the house. For the first time in her life, Janet had felt the resentment of being looked down upon. Had she a particle of malice or suspicion in her nature, the resentment might have rankled and grown into hate for the girl had all the pride and independence of the place. As it was, she had withdrawn into herself, like the flower to which she had been likened, and had vanished from sight. "'I won't wash the glasses!' The laugh rang merrily like the laugh of a child. "'Let her wash her own glass, and soil her pretty frock.' But this declaration of independence did not prohibit a general tidying in other respects. The north window shade was rolled up and the sash raised, the easel drawn out into place before the low stool, and the jacket and pipe arranged conveniently at hand for the master when he should appear. "'And now,' rippled the girl, "'I'll give him a surprise and a shock.' First she went outside, relocked the door and hid the key, then nimbly entered the hut by the north window. Once inside again, she closed the window and, trembling with excitement and hurry, ran to the posing platform and flung herself among the cushions. Then she spread her hair loosely over the sea-green pillows that rose around her. The net was caught up and draped about the slim, graceful body. Eyes and small brown feet showed between the meshes. The conceit was deliciously bewildering. When all was arranged, she cautiously let fall the shielding curtain and waited. "'He'll come early,' she whispered. "'Oh, very early. And I wonder what he will call this picture.' The night's patrol and the mastering of Billy had tired the girl. The couch was sleep-enticing, the pillows dream-bringing, and the day was yet young. So Janet slept, a vision to touch any heart, one to stir an artist to holy rapture. How long she slept Janet never knew, but the grating of the key in the lock awakened her. Her heart beat wildly, and the blood ran riotously in her veins. The door opened, someone spoke, and then, as if before a north blast, all the glow and glory of Janet's joy froze within her. "'Wasn't I clever to watch where he hid the key, Mr. Devant? And how utterly good of you to enter the conspiracy and help me find him out. I know he has an immortal picture somewhere here. He wants to spring it upon you and me, along with the herd, by and by.' But we wish to be partakers in the pleasure of preparation, do we not, Mr. Devant? The musical voice had a ring in it not altogether lovely. Stand aside, Mr. Devant. See, he must have brought his work out after we left yesterday. It was orderly enough then, but look at it now. Let us examine this upon the easel. But first, open the door. I smell stale wine. The untidy fellow has not washed the glasses. Mr. Devant opened the door and said with a half-laugh, 
I'm not quite sure how Dick will like this, Catherine, but while the cat's away... Ah! The word came sharply. Mr. Devant, look here. The two were standing before the easel. Good Lord! cried the man. The Pimpernel! Catherine, this Dick of ours has prepared a surprise for us, sure enough. He evidently had reasons for holding us at bay, Mr. Devant. A thinly veiled sneer was in the low, even voice. He has been using that wild, odd young creature of yours as a model. And he has never told you? I greatly fear our sly Dick has been, well, deceitful. "'Oh, my dear girl,' Devant reassured her. "'You do not understand. "'Dick has probably had to procure such a model upon terms of secrecy, "'not on his own account, but hers. "'You do not know these people. "'They are not above taking money, but they make their own terms.' "'Terms?' again the scornful tone. "'Yes, my dear. Why, what do you think would happen if I called my cook Eliza instead of Mrs. Smith? Starvation, my dear, actual starvation. And I carry my own laundry to Mrs. Abner Snow's, carry it and fetch it. This girl now might be willing to pose, and you must admit that she is a raving beauty. But she would hold Dick to a cast-iron vow never to let anyone know.' What's more, I can take my oath, knowing these people as I do, that the girl never sets her foot in Dick's shop without a bodyguard of at least one captain, perhaps three or four. Let us see if he has any more secret. There was relaxation in the clear voice. Let us hurry. Dick may be here at any moment, and I do so want to get ahead of him, just to punish him for his underhand methods. Janet heard the two turn. She knew they were coming directly to the platform. Once, the slow, fine voice had regained its smoothness, once in New York I dropped in at Dick's studio when he did not expect me. I wanted him to take me out to luncheon, and I had the oddest experience. Oh, Mr. Devant, look at that bit, pinned to the wall. That is really exquisite. Well, as I was saying, I stole in upon Dick. I called from the outer room that it was I. I wished afterward that I had not. And then I ran into the studio. As quick as a flash, Dick dropped a curtain, just like this, between me and his easel. I was determined to see what he had been painting, but he positively forbade it. He said it was a painter's prerogative to warn even. Love from that holy of holies. I often wonder what was behind the curtain. I realized from that moment that if you want to see a great artist's best work, you must override his modesty and secretiveness and tear the screen from his altar. With a light laugh, the girl now drew aside the sheltering curtain with playful, dramatic force and lay bare the secret that it hid. Janet did not move. Her great, startled eyes, dark, intense, and passion-filled, stared helplessly at the two who, transfixed, returned the stare in frozen silence. 
So rigid and death-like the model lay in the meshes of the net, so beautiful and graceful in her motionless pose, that for an instant the intruders could not trust their senses. Then the woman found voice and action. "'I fear,' she said slowly, coldly, and distantly, "'I fear we really have intruded where we have no right, Mr. Devant.' Then she laughed a rich, rippling laugh. "'And the captains! Where are the captains, my dear Mr. Devant? They seem to have omitted the captains today. Pray, let us go at once. I would not interfere with Dick's future fame for all the world. I can quite understand why artists hide their best work at times.' Without a word, Mr. Devant dropped the curtain. Janet heard them go out, heard them lock the door, and realized that they hid the key. She tried to get up, but the intention was only mental and died without an effort. A physical sickness and bodily weakness held her. To lie still was the only course possible, but the thoughts rushed madly through the awakened mind. In that hour, womanly instinct was born. The instinct that armed itself against suspicion and another's contempt. Shame, for what was not real but suggested by a coarser mind, hurt and blinded her. The child in Janet had been killed by that white, cold woman, and what arose was more terrible than the slayer could have imagined, for this new creature scorned the innocence and weakness of that lately crushed childhood. It held in contempt the poor, vain, cheap thing that had offered, actually offered, itself to a being that came from a world that knew and had power to despise. Wave after wave of torment engulfed the poor girl as she lay without a struggle in her net. The apple of understanding had been forced between her lips by the refined cruelty of another woman. Instinctively, Janet found a sort of dumb comfort in the memory of the look she recalled in Mr. Devant's eyes, but while life lasted, her soul would shrivel at the memory of the glance which that proud, beautiful girl had cast upon her. The lovely face upon the sea-green pillows paled and flushed as the flood of growing knowledge gathered force. The eyes grew dark and terror-racked, and misery claimed the newborn woman. Then again the key grated in the lock. Strengthened by the perception that was now hers, the girl sprang to a sitting posture and drew her feet beneath the shelter of the coarse red skirt. The net ensnared her further, and so she sat, caught fast in the meshes and in the terror of her condition. Thornley entered the room, closed and locked the door. Then he opened the windows wide. His eye and ear would warn him of intruders, and the breath of the summer day he must have. Janet heard him stop before the easel, then his laugh, contented and youth-filled, rang clearly in the little room. "'Beauty!' he muttered. "'Great heaven, what almost weird beauty! My Pimpernel, you'll make me famous!' Then he whistled gaily, hung up his coat and hat, did not the listening girl know every movement? 
drew on the old paint-besmirched jacket, and filled his pipe. "'Dirty wine-glasses,' he muttered. "'Bah! How the stale wine befouls this air! Outside you go to await your purification!' The glasses were set jinglingly upon the window-ledge. Then Thornley came to the curtain and flung it heedlessly back. "'Good Lord!' he ejaculated and staggered away. The panic-stricken face that met his paralyzed him for the moment. Then he laughed. "'Pimpernel!' he drew nearer. "'Dear child, you are as full of surprises as this glorious day and the hills. You've brought me a new sensation, a heaven-sent inspiration. What a partner you are! God bless you!' "'Don't you touch me!' Janet warned off the extended hands. Her arms were free, and they must serve her now. "'Janet, what ails you, child?' "'I do not know. I cannot think. Only I know you must not touch me. And—and I'm not a child any more.' Then tears came, a wild, remorseful flood. The girl swayed upon the couch, torn by the emotions that lashed her cruelly. Thornley stood apart. Something undefinable held him to his place. He recalled the first day he had met this strange girl upon the hills, and her tears then. But these were different. In a subtle, unspeakable way, he realized that something startling had brought about this changed condition from yesterday's Eden-like life. "'I wish you could tell me what is the matter,' he said pityingly and quietly. He did not move toward her, but his tone, with its sympathetic reserve, did the one thing he longed to do. It drew the girl's trust and confidence. The storm of sobs lessened. The hidden face was raised, and the burden of fear and distress lifted slowly. "'They have been here,' the words came upon the crest of the last sob. "'They who?' Thornley's eyes contracted. "'Mr. Devant and the one he calls Catherine.' "'Great heavens! And you let them in?' "'They found the key and came in.' Thornley muttered something inaudibly. "'They wanted to see your pictures.' They saw everything, and me. Again the misery spread over the vivid face. Thornley was unable to take his eyes from that pitiful gaze, but for a moment his own position in this play held part. "'What did they say?' he asked at length. "'Mr. Devant said nothing. I cannot remember what she said, but whatever it was, it made me know that she thinks me... Oh, what can I say? Something too awful to bear. And you, you knew what women like her might think. That is why you made me promise not to tell. That is why you kept the door locked. You knew how the people like her would scorn me. And yet you would not save me. Oh, I know it was because of your pictures. You would let folks like her think what they wanted to, so long as you got what you wanted. The brief confidence in him was gone. 
There was a power in this fury that shook Thornley as he listened. The blazing face of outraged womanhood confronted him, and the accusation brought truth and torment with it. "'Get what I wanted!' he groped blindly in his soul for an honest answer as to what he had wanted. "'Yes, what you wanted. You wanted my face because it is beautiful, because I was like this place, the hills and dunes. You thought me like them, just a thing to put upon your canvas to make you rich and famous. But I am a girl, like that girl up at Bluff Head. I am as good as she. My God! Thornley looked at the bowed head that sank again beneath the waves of passion. His eyes grew dim and his face paled. His soul had answered and had passed judgment that gave him grace to breathe freely. Janet, he said gently, my poor girl. I am going to wait by the door until you get out of the net and into your shoes. Then come to me. I have much, much to say to you. He did not offer, by thought or motion, to assist her. He turned and sat guard by the open door, puffing vigorously at his pipe. Janet disentangled herself and put on her stockings and shoes. Then, shod and with a strange dignity, she crossed the room and stood beside the man, leaning against the jamb of the door for support. Thornley looked up and smiled. Then he shook the ashes from his pipe, placed it in his pocket, and offered Janet his stool. She shook her head. "'I'll sit on the sand,' she said, and sank down outside the door. "'My poor Janet,' Thornley began, "'I do not know what to say. I want to make you understand, and I am afraid I may make further mistakes.' I see I have wronged you. In a sense, I've been a bungling fool. But as true as God hears me, I didn't want you upon my canvas for any low or mean reason. I swear that as truly as I ever spoke. It seemed my right to make live what I saw in you. Maybe it was not my right. I begin to fear it was not. But it seemed so at first. I don't know how to say it, but somewhere I have read a thought like this. When an artist enters his studio, he hangs up his passions with his coat and hat. You won't understand that. No woman can, perhaps, and not many men. But it's true, as surely as heaven hears me, and it accounts for a deal of good as well as bad. That is the way I felt. I was greedy to catch you as I saw you. I wanted no one to share the triumph. I never thought of women like Catherine or men like Mr. Devant. I did think of the Quinton folks, and that is the only reason I locked the door. Please try and believe that, my dear girl. If I had one unselfish thought, it was for you and for your people not for the others like those at Bluff Head. I could have told them all about it when my pictures were hung at the Academy, and that would have ended it. The girl upon the sands sat with hands clasped around her knees. Her dark, clear eyes never wavered from the speaker's face, 
and Thornley saw trust and a growing calm rising in them again. "'If I had gone far enough in thought,' he continued, "'I might have hoped that such beauty and power as you have "'would have made you great and strong enough in nature "'to want to help make these pictures, in spite of everything. "'I believe in a slow, dull way "'I did think that about you once in a while. "'I know I never meant to harm the woman in you, Janet. "'Believe me, I swear that.' His eyes met hers and never faltered. The girl drew a long breath. Then she shivered slightly and sighed again. "'I... I think I see, a little, what you mean,' she quivered. "'You thought I was better than I am. Higher, nobler than some folks, because I am so... so beautiful?' Not a shadow of common vanity rang through the words. "'You thought I would be glad to help in your pictures "'and never care what others might think, "'others who cannot understand? "'You are a great artist, "'and you thought me an artist, but in a different way. "'Oh, it comes to me just as Davy's light comes "'of an early morning, when the fog lifts.' What a mean, wretched thing I have been to let stings hurt when that splendid picture waits for me. A radiance spread over the wistful face. Thornley was dazzled and could only stare helplessly. See? She had arisen and stood before him in all her strong, young beauty. You need me? Without me, you cannot make your splendid picture? Thornley shook his head. "'It is not the money you want, nor just the fame, but you want to give the world a great joy.' "'Yes, yes, as God is my witness, Janet, that is my desire.' "'Then I will help. Oh, forgive me. Come, please, come. Only—' Here she smiled pitifully. "'Please leave the door open.' It shall never matter again. Nothing can change things now. Thornley staggered to his feet and half extended his hand to draw the girl in. Then something stayed him. I cannot paint today, Janet, he whispered. Something has changed. Perhaps the old longing will return, but I must not trust myself until I know. Go, little Pimpernel. "'You are the greater artist of us two. "'I'm very sorry the day is spoiled,' she returned brokenly. "'If I had only known more, it would have been different. "'It seems as if I cannot ever forgive myself.' "'She turned and went sadly over the hills with never a backward look, "'and Thornley gazed after her with yearning eyes. "'She was taking with her... what?' inspiration? Yes, but something deeper and more vital was passing with that vanishing form. What was it? What had occurred to change the summer sunlight to drearest gray? End of chapter 6 Recording by Roger Moline Chapter 7 of Janet of the Dunes. 
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Janet of the Dunes by Harriet T. Comstock. Chapter 7. Late August hung heavily over Quinton. The city folks, who counted their year's playtime by two weeks' vacation, had come and gone in relays. The artists, never tiring of the changing charms of this new-found beauty spot, gave no heed to the passing season. Only cold and acute bodily suffering could attract their attention. Good, poor, and indifferent reveled in the inspiration-haunted hills and magnificent sweep of shore. The natives counted their gains with bated breath and dreamed visions of future summers that made them dizzy. Poor Susan Jane was the only woman, apparently, upon the mainland who had swung at anchor through all the changed conditions. Susan, who once had been the ruling spirit of the village and station. Susan, whose sharp tongue and all-seeing eye had governed her kind. Susan had been obliged to gather such bits of driftwood as had floated to her chair during the history-making season and draw such pleasure from it as she could. The strain had worn upon the paralyzed body. The active mind had stretched and stretched for material until the helpless frame weakened. The sharp tongue was two-edged now, and gossip that reached Susan Jane assumed the blackest color. Her searching eyes saw through everything and gripped all secrets. David Songs, as he mounted the winding stairs, took on a soberer strain. Sometimes he omitted, even at the top, his hilarious outburst to the lobster pots, and his sigh and laugh combination was an hourly occurrence. Janet noticed it all. She was alive to the atmospheric chill of the village, though in no wise understanding it. She was troubled and fretted by many things, but she went her way. The money she had earned by posing she dealt out in miserly fashion to Susan Jane, while at the same time she assumed many household cares to ease David, whom she loved. There was no more money coming to her now, for after the scene in the hut upon the hills, Thornley had gone away for a week, and upon his return he had told Janet he would send her a message when again he needed her. The man's tone had been most kindly, but it seemed a rebuff from which the girl had not been able to recover. Once or twice she had stolen to the hut, when she was sure the master was away. Always the key was in its hiding place. Softly she had gone in and stood in the sacred room. The same picture stood ever upon the easel, the same beautiful, unfinished picture. Upon one visit the girl had taken a rare pimpernel blossom she had found in a lonely hollow and laid it on the empty stool before the canvas. It was still there when she went again. Faded and neglected it lay before the shrine, and the message never came that was to call her to the hills. The people of the village, too, were different. They were busy and took small notice of the girl. Business, Janet thought, was the only reason. Mrs. Joe G. in particular was changed, but it had been a hard summer for Mrs. Joe G., 
and when, after many attempts to secure Janet as waitress, she had failed, she turned upon the girl sharply. "'You might be doing worse things,' she snapped. "'You're growing more and more like your ma, and it ain't to your credit.' That was the first inroad the oncoming wave of sentiment had made in the bulkhead of local reticence. Janet started. "'What do you mean?' she asked. "'What I say. And what's more, Janet, if you can't turn in and be useful to them as was good enough for you before, you can stop away from us altogether. I don't want Maud Grace to get any fool notions in her head.' Once Janet would have turned upon such an attack, but somehow the spring of resistance was checked. After all, what did it matter? But she took her mother's picture from the carpet bag that night and hid it in her blouse with the long silent whistle. More and more she remained at the lighthouse. Seldom even did she sail over to the dunes, and never unless she felt strong enough to leave a pleasant impression upon Billy. Over all this, Mark Tapkins watched and brooded, and he slouched more dejectedly between the light and his father's little home. "'I tell you,' he often confided to his inner self, "'city life is blightin'. "'When I was there, it took the breath out of me, "'and now it's come to Quinton. "'It's knocked a good many different from what they once was.' With this oft-repeated sentiment, Mark reached his father's door one day, and through it caught the smell of frying crawlers. Old Pa Tapkins was realizing his harvest from the borders by acting upon Janet's suggestion to Mark. From early sunrise until the going down of the sun, Pa, when not necessarily preparing food for three regular meals, was mixing, shaping, frying, and selling his now-famous cakes. People, in passing, inhaled the fragrance of Pa's cooking and stopped to regale themselves and take samples to friends who were yet to be initiated. Pa and his crullers were becoming bywords, and they often helped out where meals at the boarding place failed and conversation lacked humor. As Mark stepped into the kitchen, not only his father, but Captain Billy hailed him. "'Hello, Captain Billy!' cried Mark. "'Come off for a change, have you?' "'Yes, yes,' Billy replied through a mouthful of cruller, hot enough to make an ordinary man groan with pain. "'Yes, yes, I've come off to see the doings.' "'Well, there is considerable goings-on,' Mark nodded, and calmly helped himself to a cake that was still sizzling. "'There don't seem to be no signs of letting up on us.' "'Now, Marky,' heard Pa from the stove, "'that ain't puttin' the case just as it is. "'Looked at from some points, we are the clutchers.' "'Pa was a mild little man with a round, innocent face "'and flaxen hair rising in a curly halo about it. "'His china-blue eyes had all the trust and surprise "'of a newly awakened baby. "'Life had always been to Pa Tapkins,' a mild series of shocks, and he parried each statement and circumstance in order that he might happily recognize it if he ran across it again, or, more properly speaking, 
if it struck him a smarting blow again. Pa never ran at all. As nearly as any mortal can be stationary, Pa was. But in the nature of things, passing events touched him more or less sharply in their progress. It ain't all their doings, Marky, now, is it? Like as not it ain't, Pa. Sold many crullers today? I've sold all I've made up to this batch, Marky, and I've been puttering over the heat since the morning meal. Well, I'll lay the things on for the noon meal, Pa. You tend to business. But you ain't slept, Marky. Up all night and no sleep next day? Twon't do, Marky. Now will it? I'll sleep come night time. Mark seized his third almost boiling cruller and turned to Billy. You ain't seen Janet, have you? Billy looked guilty. No, and I ain't a-going to this trip. Mark, how is things at the light? Squally as to Susan Jane. Seeing others spry while she's chained by the stroke ain't hadn't to Susan Jane's Christian qualities. Stormin' at Janet? Janet comes in for her share, but David gets the toughest blasts. I don't see how Davy weathers it and still keeps a song and a smile. And him doing another man's stint, too, Pa put in, dropping a brown ring on the floor, spearing it adroitly again, and flipping it upon the paper-covered platter. If William Henry Jones hadn't gone down in that squall thirty years ago, and if Davy hadn't thought it was his duty to carry out his mate's plans, I'm thinking Susan Jane might have been different, and Davy might not have had such tormenting experiences. At least that is how it struck me thirty years back, and it strikes me so yet. Billy nodded appreciatively. "'Tain't always wise to tackle somebody else's job,' Mark joined in. "'That's what come to me in the city. "'City jobs ain't for you, that's what I said to myself. "'Salt air was in my nostrils, the sound of the sea in my ears, "'and I couldn't any more hear to the teaching of city ways "'than the city folks can learn of us here on the coast.' "'Again Billy nodded. "'He felt his spirits rising.' as he looked upon this man of the world and knew him as a friend. "'Draw up, Pa and Cap'n Billy,' Mark had collected a large and varied repast. "'Have some cold fowl, Cap'n, and a couple of taters. Lay hold of a brace of them ears of corn. Over half a yard long and as near black as purple ever is. Inside they're white and milky enough.' Have some blackberry pie, along with your fowl, Captain. Tain't every day you can get pa's cooking, and I believe in mixing good vittles. It's what Nader does. Billy took everything suggested and ate it indiscriminately, and this example was ably followed by his hosts. Mark! Billy, after a long but significant silence, sat back in his chair and wiped his mouth on the back of his hand. "'Mark, I'm going to ask you to join me in a rather shady job. Do you happen to know the particular women painters as is using Janet for a model?' 
Mark strangled over a kernel of corn and stared, teary-eyed, at Billy. "'Model?' he finally gasped. "'Model? Why, Captain, that ain't no word to tack on to Janet. Models ain't moral or decent. I learned that in the city from a painter chap as used to come into the shop and eat oysters when he could afford it.' Billy's face lengthened. "'Tis mong friends I speak?' Billy dropped his voice. Both men nodded. Well, Janet is a model to some of them dirty aproned women painters. And I want to see just how they've took her and what they calculate to do with the picture. Andrew Farley has been modeling for them, and Andy's count of how he looks in paint ain't pleasant. I don't know as I want Janet showing up in the city kind of unsightly. During this explanation, Mark's countenance had assumed an expression of intense suffering. Bits of gossip arose like channel stakes in the troubled water of his misery. Like the bits of red cloth which marked the states in the bay, Susan Jane's emphasis of such gossip fluttered wildly in this hour. Through the channel, clearly set by these signals, was a wide course leading direct to a certain hut upon the hills of which silent, watchful Mark knew. "'She ain't no model, Captain. Don't say that,' he finally managed to get out. "'That's just scandalous gossip.' "'She told me herself,' Billy brought his tilted chair to the floor. "'And I got to keep this visit secret. "'But since the gal ain't got no mother,' I've got to do double duty. Knowing how up in city ways you are, Mark, I thought maybe you'd pilot me on this trip. I'm terrible clumsy with strangers, especially women, and I want to do what's right. Taint a woman. This declaration was wrung from Mark. What's that? Billy sprang from his chair. Now, Marky, do be careful cautioned Pa. Don't make no statement you can't stand by. Nation, that bat is burning. I said twarn't no woman painter has done, Janet. If she has been a model, and twar you has said that, she's been one to a man. The horror on Billy's face was pitiful. Can you locate him? he asked in trembling tones. Mark nodded. "'Come on, then.' In silence, the two departed. Pa hardly noticed them. The burning fat claimed his entire attention. Mark strode ahead toward the hills, and Billy, with the swing of the lonely patrols, brought up the rear. It was the dining hour, and Quinton was almost deserted in the hot August noon. "'Don't let's get hit up,' advised Mark presently. City folks is powerful clever about keeping cool inside and out. I'm already het, panted Billy. Let's take it easier. Mark paused in the path and wiped his streaming face. They did not speak again until Thornley's hut was almost at their feet. Billy's face was grim and threatening, but Mark's showed signs of doubt and wavering. His recollections of city calm and coolness were not uplifting in this emergency. 
folks in town had always outwitted Mark by their calmness. Thornley's door was set open to strangers and whatever air was stirring. He himself was sitting inside, his back to his coming guests and his eyes upon the unfinished picture upon the easel. Remnants of a chafing-dish meal were spread upon a small table, and silence brooded over all. It was only when Mark and Billy stood at the door that Thornley turned. The look of expectancy died in his eyes as he saw the weather-beaten countenance of Billy and the shame-faced features of Mark. "'I do not want any sitters, thank you,' said he. "'We don't want to sit.' "'Billy replied firmly and clearly. "'I beg your pardon?' Thornley smiled pleasantly. "'You see, nearly all of them do. Won't you come in?' "'It's cooler outside,' ventured Mark. "'There isn't much difference,' said Thornley, rising courteously. "'I'm Captain Billy Morgan.' "'This statement appeared to interest Thornley immensely.' "'I'm glad to meet you,' he answered. "'Are ye a painter-man?' asked Billy. "'I've been dubbed that occasionally,' Thornley laughed. "'What can I do for you?' "'Did you ever have a model?' Mark broke in breathlessly, feeling he must help Billy out, no matter what his own feelings were. "'I've even been guilty of that.' "'Did ye ever have my Janet?' Poor Billy's trouble, knowing no restraint of city ways or roundabout methods, rushed forth sharply. Thornley changed color perceptibly. "'Come in,' he urged. "'The glare is really too painful.' The two awkwardly stepped inside. Then Mark's eyes fell upon the canvas. Captain, he groaned. "'Look at this!' The two men stood spellbound before the easel, and Thornley watched them curiously. "'It's her!' muttered Billy. "'It's her! Poor little thing! She's just drifted without a hand upon the tiller!' The visitors forgot Thornley. "'I didn't think I had more'n the right to watch, Captain.' Mark's voice was full of tears as he said this. "'You had the right to shout out a call to me, lad. "'You'd have done the like for any little skiff you'd seen in danger.' "'Then he turned upon Thornley. "'What right have you got to steal my gal's looks? "'And what tricks have you used to get em "'and her happiness along with em? "'Thornley winced. "'Her happiness?' he asked helplessly, "'not knowing what else to say. "'Yes, her happiness.' Don't you suppose that I, what has watched her since she came into port, watched her and loved her and sought hopes on her, don't you think I know the difference twixt her happiness and the sham thing? Good Lord, breathed Thornley. Are you speaking truth? Billy drew himself up with a dignity Thornley shrank before. There ain't anything but the truth good enough to use when we're talking to my little gal, he said quietly. He felt no need of Mark nor knowledge of city ways. Mark was still riveted before the picture. Slow tears were rolling down his twitching face, 
the calamity that had overtaken Janet was like death, and this lovely smiling face upon the canvas was but the dear memory of her. "'I never meant to harm her,' said Thornley presently. "'I cannot hope that you will understand. It has only recently come to me, the understanding. I have always thought the artist in me had a right to seize and make my own all that my eyes saw that was beautiful. Lately, the man in me has uprisen and shown me that I have been a fool, a fool and a thief. "'That's what you are,' blubbered Mark. "'That lasts what you are. You've taken Janet's good name, you've taken her happiness, and you've taken her from us.' Thornley's color rose, but a look at the speaker's distorted face hushed the angry words that he was about to utter. He turned to Billy as to an equal. "'Captain Morgan,' he said quietly, "'I have done nothing to harm your daughter's good name in the eyes of any man or woman. That I swear before God. In that I yearn to make her wonderful beauty add to my reputation, I plead my blind selfishness.' But, above all, I wanted to give to the world a pleasure that you can never realize, I think. And I believe your daughter is great enough to give all that I ruthlessly took without asking to help me give the world that picture. His own eyes turned to the pure, exquisite face. Like as not, she would, Billy replied. Like as not, she would. "'Was there ever a woman as wasn't willing to fling herself away "'if a man was reckless enough to point the path out to her? "'And do you think I'm going to let you take my Janet's dear face "'into that hell place of a city "'and have folks staring at her, "'folks what ain't fit to raise their eyes to her? "'Ain't you done her enough wrong without taking her sacrifice "'if she's willing to make it?' "'Good God, man, I'm willing to do all I can.' That picture is worth hundreds of dollars to me, and untold pleasure to many besides. But I am willing to do with it just what you think best. Then cut it open, Mark. Billy's tones rose shrilly. Slash it top and bottom, and don't leave a trace of Janet. Mark drew from his pocket a huge clasp knife. He trembled as he opened it and stood back to strike the first blow. "'Stop!' Thornley sprang between him and the canvas. "'Stop! I could easier see some savage devastate the beauty of these hills. "'Wait! I swear to leave it as it is. "'I swear that no eyes but ours shall rest upon it, but you shall not destroy it.' Command and power rang in Thornley's voice. Mark wavered. Billy hung his head. "'After all,' he groaned, "'we ain't none of us got the final right. "'Janet's my gal, but her beauty is hers and God Almighty's. "'Keep the picture till such time as my Janet can judge and say. "'The time will come when she'll get her bearings with full instructions, "'and then she'll judge among us all.' "'The two rough men turned toward the door. "'When she tells you,' Billy paused to say, "'She'll be wiser than what she is today, 
poor little critter. Thornley watched the men, in stern silence, until they passed from sight. Then he went back to the easel. Pimpernel, he whispered brokenly. Poor little wildflower. Out of place among us all. He drew a heavy cloth over the radiant face, and, with reverent hand, placed the canvas against the wall in the darkest corner of the room. Late that afternoon, Billy's boat put off for the station in the teeth of a rising gale and amid ominous warnings of thunder. Susan Jane grew more irritable and nervous as the storm rose. She feared storm and lightning. "'Janet, ain't that Billy's sail crossin' the bay?' she said. Janet came to the window. "'Yes, it is,' she faltered. "'And he's going on.' "'Well, what do you suppose?' "'Ain't he got to get back by sundown? "'Twould be a pretty pass if he'd come off at sundown.' "'But he's been off all day, likely as not.' Janet's lips quivered. "'Well, suppose he has. "'Are you going to be one of them tormentin' women "'who is always nagging a man about what he's doin' "'and what he ain't a-doin'? "'Where's David?' He's gone up into the light, Susan Jane. The woman turned anxiously toward the window. It's an awful storm rising, Janet. Wind off sea, but changing every minute. Draw the shade. I'm fearing the ocean will rise high enough for us to see the breakers over the dunes. I ain't seen the ocean for thirty-odd years, and I ain't going to now. Her voice rose hysterically like a frightened child. I just won't see the ocean. Janet pulled the green shade down and hid from her own aching eyes the vanishing sight of Billy's struggling boat. But her loving heart went with it as, spurning the wind and darkness, it made for the dunes and duty. All day, the girl thought. All day, and not to let me know. Oh, Captain Daddy, what mischief have you been up to? The quivering smile rose over the hurt, but anxiety lay deep in the troubled heart. A crash of thunder rent the air. A blinding flash of lightning turned the black bay into a molten sea. Janet could see it through the glass of the outer door in the entry. Janet! Yes, Susan Jane? Come away from the draft. I think you might know how if you got struck by lightning, I couldn't do a blessed thing but look at you. Janet came into the darkened room. Light the lamp, Susan commanded. I ain't going to save oil when I'm in this state. Oh, Janet. A splintering crash shook the house. Did you ever hear the like? It's pretty bad, Susan Jane. But the girl was thinking of the little boat struggling in the bay, the strong hand upon the tiller, and the faithful heart, fearless in the midst of danger. "'Janet, since you ain't got no nerves, can you read to me and sort of drown the storm? I'm powerful shaken. I can't run if the house is struck. I can't do nothing but just suffer.' The woman was crying miserably. 
I'll read to you, Susan Jane, and the storm's passing. I can count now. How many? How many, Janet? A blinding flash showed around the green curtain's edge and dimmed the light of the kerosene lamp. One. Two. The awful crash stilled the word. Tain't fur enough off, Janet, to trust any. Oh, God, help me! If I could only put my hands over my ears! But the poor helpless hands lay white and shriveled in the woman's lap. Here, Susan Jane, shut your eyes tight and lean your head upon my shoulder. There. Now, when I see the flash, I will cover your ears. That will help. Janet! A mildness stole into the peevish, whining voice. Janet, times is when I see that Billy weren't all wrong in his bringing of you up. He's sort of left the softness like a baby in you. The hidden eyes did not see the glare, but the thin form quivered as the girl's firm hands were pressed over the sensitive ears. It's kind of muffled-like, panted the woman. In between, Janet. Can you say any of it? Your chapter, Susan? Yes. David knows the most of it, and nights, bad nights, he says it when he ain't so plumb sleepy he can't. I'll say what I can, Susan Jane. The gray head nestled close to the strong young shoulder. The nagging woman rested, breathing deep. The fierce storm was rolling away. Darkness was giving place outside to the sunset glow which, during all the terror and gloom, had lain waiting. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. Janet's voice repeated the words slowly, tenderly. Their beauty held her fancy. Davy explains that, Susan's muffled word came dully, this way. He says the old happy time, when William Henry and me was young and lovin'. You know about that? Yes, Susan Jane. Well, that was the first heaven and earth for us, and it's passed away. The woman was sobbing as a frightened child sobs when fear and danger have passed and relief has opened the floodgates. I don't know how William Henry is going to bide a new heaven without any sea, Janet. He sought a lot by the sea, always a-going out when it was the wildest and trickiest. He used to say he'd like to go to glory by water, and he did, he did. I wasn't none older than you be, Janet, when he went down, and the cruel waves kept him kept him forever. There, there, Susan Jane, you know they did not keep the part you loved. That part is safe where there is no more sea. Solemnly, the girl spoke as she smoothed the throbbing head. Yes, like as you're not right, Janet. And he'll find another comfort in that heaven. He was the patientest, cheerfulest body and never a quick word for me. Janet, don't you ever tell, but I'm afraid to see the ocean. I'm afraid, because I'm always a-thinkin' his dead white face might come up to me on a wave. 
poor Susan Jane. It will never come to harm you. I would not fear. I love the sea. If it had been my William Henry, I should have watched for his face shining in the beautiful curly waves, and had I seen it, I would have stretched out my arms to him, and we would have gone away, to glory, together. Not if the face was a dead face, Janet. A horror rang in the words. Somehow, the girl replied, I could never think it dead if it came that way. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That's it, Janet, Susan Jane's voice trailed sleepily. The former things are the things what has the tears, and the pains, and the hurts, and they must pass away before there can be any kind of a heaven that's worthwhile. I wonder, drearily, I wonder how it will seem when I ain't got any pains nor any tears and when there ain't any more black nights to think about them in. I'll feel terrible lost just at first. It will be about as hard for me to get used to doing without them as it will for William Henry to do without the sea. I guess we'll all have considerable to do to learn to get along without the former things, whatever they was. Maybe some of the joy will be in learning all over. Janet, I'm powerful sodden with weariness. Weariness is one of the former things. A whimsical humor stirred the words. Sometimes the former things get to be dreadful foolish day after day. Let me carry you to the bedroom, Susan. Janet had assumed this duty in order to spare David the nights he must go up aloft. The thin, light body was no burden to the sturdy girl. There, Susan, and see, the storm has passed. The evening glow was shining in the bedroom window. "'and I will undress you just as easy as easy can be "'and put you so upon the cool bed. "'The shower has cleared the air beautifully. "'Now are you comfortable, Susan Jane?' "'I'm more comfortable than what I've been for a time past. "'Leave the shade up to the top, Janet. "'I like to see the gleam of Davy's light when it is dark.' I like to think how it helps folks find their way to the harbors where they would be. Janet, that was a terrible queer thing you said about the face in the wave. The girl was folding the daily garments of the tired woman and placing them where David's bungling hands could find them for another day's service. What was that, Susan Jane? She stood in the fair, full light of the parting day. "'About it not being a dead face. "'That's been the horror of it, all these years. "'It has always been a dead and gone face. "'That's why I hated the sea. "'But if—' "'And a radiance spread over the thin, wasted features. "'If it should be that William Henry came back to me, "'alive and smiling as he always did, "'why, like as not, I'd put my arms out.' Then she paused, and the voice broke. 
no, I could not put my arms out. But I could smile like I've most forgotten how to do, and I could go with William Henry anywhere, same as any other loving woman. I never thought about his face being alive in the wave. But, do you know, it's a real pleasant idea, that of seeing the sea again, and William Henry a-smiling and waving his arms like he used to when he was bathing. I declare, it's a real grateful thought. Janet! Yes, Susan? I wish you'd go up into the light after you've cleared the settin' room and tell Davy good night. I forgot to say it when he started up. We'd had some difference about money. Least Davy had. I never had any different idea about it. It's him as changes. Go get the box, Janet, and put it under the bed. If it wasn't for me, I guess Davy would know. It was after sunset when Janet, hearing Susan Jane's even breathing, felt herself free. She stretched her arms above her head and so eased the tension. The manner of bearing life's burdens by the people of the dunes was but an acquired talent with her. The first and natural impulse of the girl's nature was to cry out against care and trouble, to make a noise and act. It was second nature only that had taught her to assume silently and bear secretly whatever of unpleasantness life presented. "'Oh, Captain Daddy!' she had once cried to Billy, when something had stirred her childish depths. "'Why don't we yell and kick and scare it off?' "'Tain't sensible with them as lives near the sea, Janet,' Billy had calmly returned. "'The sea teaches a powerful pointed lesson long of them lines. "'Troubles is like the sea. "'When they is the worst, they do all the shouting and roaring themselves.' and you just might as well pull in your sail and lie low. When they is passed and the calm sets in, tis plain shallowness to use yourself up then. Folks in cities don't learn this lesson. They ain't got no such teacher, and that's why they wear out sooner and have that unsettled air. They think noise and bustle of their making can do away with troubles, but it can't, Janet. So, like as not, the sooner you learn, the better. Janet thought of this hard lesson now as she stretched her strong young body and quelled the rebellious cry upon her lips. I'll go up and bid Davy good night, she whispered half aloud. Then lower. Good night, my Captain Daddy. You've reached the dunes safely, but you'll have to own up some day. She waved in the direction of the station. "'How dark the water looks!' she suddenly cried. "'Stars in plenty. Where is Davy's light?' White and fear-filled, she sprang toward the stairs and ran lightly upward. Slower she went after the third landing. Anxiety added to weariness stayed the eager feet. If the light were not burning, what then?' Just below the lamp and gallery was a tiny room with a table, chair, small stove, and little glass lamp. Here, between the times that David inspected his light, he sat to read or think. 
As Janet reached the place, the darkness was so dense she could see nothing, but with outstretched hands she was feeling her way to the door leading to the steps into the light when she touched David's gray head as it lay upon his arms folded upon the table. He was breathing deeply and audibly, and the girl's touch did not arouse him. Whatever the matter was with David, Janet's first thought was of his sacred and neglected duty. She ran on and into the lamp. She struck the match and set the blaze to the wick. Then, when it was well lighted, she darted outside and withdrew the cloth. The belated beams shot into the night as if they had gained strength and power from the forced delay. "'God keep the government from knowing,' breathed the girl. "'It was only a little while, and it ought not to count after all the faithful years.' Weak from fear and hurry, Janet retraced her steps to David. He was still sleeping as peacefully as a child. Under his folded arms was an open book. Janet recognized it as one that Mr. Devant had given to David recently, a little book of poems of the sea, poems with a ring and rhythm in them that bore the golden thoughts to Davy's song-touched heart. The man had fallen asleep like a happy boy, forgetting for the first time in his life his duty. Janet lighted the little lamp upon the stand and drew up a stool. The minutes ticked themselves away upon Davy's big, white-faced clock which hung against the wall. Eight, eight-thirty, eight-forty-five. Then David sat up and stared with wide-opened eyes right at Janet. A moment of bewilderment shook his awakening senses. Then he gave his sigh and laugh. "'By gum!' he said. "'Just for an instant, I thought I'd forgot my light.' "'It's all right, Davy,' Janet nodded cheerfully. "'Course,' Davy returned the nod. "'Course, you don't suppose I'd light my lamp first, do you?' "'Never, Davy.' "'It's bad enough to be napping.' Like as not, the government would turn me out, and with reason, if it caught on to that. I don't know, but I ought to confess. But, Lord, I was that worn. Long with Susan Jane's being more ailin' than usual, and the thickness of the air with the shower, that after I saw everything was shipshape, I guess I flopped some. I'll forgive myself this once, but if it happens again, Davy Thomas... You'll write to the government, sure as you're born, and tell them what a blubberhead you are. Janet laughed and stretched her arms out until she clasped David's rough hands. I'll go up and take a look, said the man. Stop till I come down, Janet. I've got something to tell you. I came up to tell you, the girl called after him, that Susan Jane sent good night to you. She did that? Davy paused upon the step, and his face shone in the dull light. Janet nodded. Then Davy went to inspect his lamp. But to us he gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. Janet smiled as the cheerful words floated back to her. Presently David returned. Everything is as it should be, he chuckled. Clear night, 
but changin' breeze and the light doin' its proper duty. Janet, while I slept, I had the darndest dream. I can't get rid of it. I read once how the surest way to get rid of an idea was to dump it on another. Dump away, Davy. It made me feel kind of like I did long ago, and then Susan Jane sendin' that good night up sort of fitted in. Janet, I've been dreamin' about William Henry Jones. Janet nodded. William Henry seemed recently to have assumed shape and form to her. He had been but a name in the past. I saw him a-comin' up the stairs just as plain as day, like he used to come when he came off, and ran up to me if I happened to be haulin' oil up to the balcony or cleanin' the lamp or what not. His face was shinin' same as it used to. By gum, I never see such a face as William Henry had. It always seemed to be lit from inside. I've come for Susie, he said. He was the one as ever called her that, and I ain't heard it since he went down into the sea that morning he was blue fishing. I've come for Susie, and I want to thank ye for caring for her like what ye have. Them was his words, as true as gospel, and they was terrible comforting. For, Janet, I ain't told it to another soul, not even to Billy, but I always loved Susan Jane for myself. When William Henry won her, I wasn't ever going to let on, but when he got drowned and Susan had to hustle to keep life in her body, I just out and begged to take care of her for William Henry. I told that lie, Janet, because I darnst tell her I wanted her for myself. I didn't never care whether she loved me or not, after I knowed she loved William Henry anyway. But when he went, I wanted to take care of her and keep her from the hardest knocks, and I wanted it for just myself. After a while, I talked her into it. She weren't never strong, and work and grievin' made her an easy mark for sufferin', and so she let me take care of her. But always it has laid heavy on my mind that I hadn't acted just fair to William Henry. And sometimes... When I've been settin' out in the balcony, freshenin' up, I've planned it all out how I'd see him a-comin' over the dune some day, comin' out of the sea what swallowed him, with an awful look of anger on his smilin' face, cause I'd got his Susie on false pretenses, as you might say. It's got kind of wearin' on me a-late, but Lord, when I saw William Henry tonight, he was more shinin' and smilin' than ever. And when he thanked me like what he did, I nigh busted with pleasure. And then, as you told me about Susan Jane's good night, I just sent up a prayer out there on the balcony, a prayer of gratefulness for all my blessings. Dreams is queer stuff, Janet. Tain't all as should be counted, but then you don't count all the folks and happenings that pass you in your waking hours. But when a dream, or a person, or an idea comes along, as means a comfort or a strengthener, I take it that it is a sort of duty to clutch it and make it real. When you ain't got nothing better, dreams is powerful uplifting at times. Gum! David drew his shoulders up and 
plunged his hands in his pocket, as if about to draw comfort from their depths. Gum, Janet! Tain't often I get duty and pleasure mixed, but you stop here, and after I take another look at the lamp, I'm gonna run down and say goodnight to Susan Jane. I know how she's lying awake, thinking and thinking of the past. Dreams don't seem to come much to Susan Jane. David paid his visit to the light, then descended the stairs while Janet took up the book of poems and turned the pages idly. David's dream and all that had happened seemed to still her. How long she sat by the dim lamplight, she took no thought to find out. The words of poem after poem passed under her eyes unheedingly. Once she went into the light, saw that all was well, and came back to the book. Presently, David emerged from the stairway. Janet was facing him, and the expression of his eyes brought her to her feet and to his side. "'Davy, what is it?' she demanded. "'He has come.' "'Who?' "'William Henry. He's taken her.' "'No, no, Davy, it is not so.' She is only asleep. David shook his head, and his eyes had a dumb agony in them. Taint so, Janet, and she's smiling like she used to. I ain't seen that smile on her face in over thirty year. That's the way she used to look when she heard me coming in the gloaming and thought it was him. No, Janet, she wears William Henry's smile. Janet darted past him, but he stayed her. I want you should sit by her till sunup. There's a brisk storm settin' in again, and tain't fit for you to go for anyone. And I've got to mind the light. Stay long of her, Janet. I'm glad she ain't got to suffer any more or nothing. A sob choked the deep voice, and seemed to follow the fleeting girl as she ran down the winding stairs. Davy had placed the living room lamp upon the table by Susan Jane's bed. By its glow, Janet looked upon the woman under the gaudy patchwork quilt. Apparently, she had not moved since Janet had placed her there. Without a struggle or pain, she had gone forth. "'Oh, Susie!' the old forgotten name slipped from the girl's quivering lips. "'Oh, Susie!' I just believe you saw his live, shining face on an incoming wave. And when the wave went out, it took you both to glory. But, oh, my poor dear, lonely Davy. Then the bright head bowed upon the coverlid. Susie, oh, Susie, I am so glad I held you while you were frightened. If I hadn't, I should never have forgiven myself. It was all I could do for Davy and William Henry and you. End of chapter 7 Recording by Roger Moline Chapter 8 of Janet of the Dunes This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Janet of the Dunes 
by Harriet T. Comstock. Chapter 8 Susan Jane's funeral cast all other events into the shade. It was the all-important topic of conversation and interest. David alone really grieved for her. The others had suffered too keenly from Susan's tongue and complaints to feel any honest sorrow in her passing. Her giving them the opportunity for so comfortable and gratifying a funeral was, perhaps, the one thing she could have done to cause them to respect her memory. Janet saw poor departed Susan in a belated halo of romance, and Janet was in the mood to be deeply touched. She no longer saw Susan old, helpless, and ugly, full of small meannesses or sour criticism. She saw her only as the young girl, little older than herself, for whom long ago William Henry had always a smile and a gentle nickname. It was beautiful to the trouble-touched girl of the dunes to think that the old lover came back for his sweetheart and paused before claiming his treasure to thank poor Davy for his years of patient love and service. "'And he understands, I know,' Janet murmured, placing some autumn flowers near Susan Jane. "'He is glad that dear Davy could have the joy that seemed to us all a burden. That's the way it is when the former things have passed away.' The girl's tears fell among the flowers. "'Such things do not matter, then. "'But here they do. "'Oh, they matter most of all.' "'Mrs. Joe G., her boarders gone "'and her body weary from the summer's strain, "'gathered her neglected social charms together "'for Susan Jane's funeral. "'There would be a reunion of all Quinton that day. "'There would be a repast worthy the minister's donation.' Eliza Jane Smith had offered her services as housekeeper pro tem. "'And a mercy, too,' snapped Mrs. Joe G., lapping a plaid shirt-waist over her scrawny chest. "'Janet's about as useful as such times as a flounder. Lord save us! How I have fell away this season! We've cleared two hundred dollars, and about all my heft. Maud Grace!' "'Yes, Ma!' Maud Grace appeared, bleached out and thin, her eyes red from weeping and her voice shaky. "'What in land's name is the matter with you?' Mrs. Joji paused to gaze at the sodden face of the girl she had sacrificed much for during the season. "'Susan Jane,' faltered Maud. "'You ain't mourning for her, are you?' "'No, ma'am, but I don't want to get to her burying.' I ain't got no appetite for corpses. They always make me faint. Well, you're going, faint or no faint. So look after the children and get them ready. Land of love, I should think the sound of the stillness up at the light, after Susan Jane's clatter, would bout knock David out. I will say for him that he's earned his reward. Do stop sniveling, Maud Grace. You look as if you, instead of me, had frizzled over the cook stove all summer. It's bad enough to think you didn't land a bow, without looking as if you felt it. That Janet's goings-on hasn't served her neither, but she ain't gonna gloat over you while you've got a ma what can steer you straight. 
you get into your best clothes and perk up a bit. You can boss it over Janet. Her name is a sounding symbol, or soon will be. She's got her mother in her strong. It's sort of wrung out of me since Janet's acted up so, though I had meant to keep my own knowledge. I don't know as she's done anything much, Ma. Just traipsed on the hill some and turned her nose up at borders, mostly. Mr. Fitch said... A weak color flushed Maud's face for an instant. Mr. Fitch said she felt herself high and mighty. But that ain't no crime. Mr. Fitch's name was one with which to conjure in the Gordon household. Like as not, he was running after her. Mrs. Joe G. was adjusting her memorial pin, a dreary piece of jewelry, composed of the hair from the heads of several dead and gone relatives. But Janet wasn't after his kind. She was a model. The woman whispered this information, glancing hurriedly at the small children, whom Maud was now getting into their clothes. "'What's that?' whispered the girl in return. The hints about Janet were gathering force, in order to break after the excitement of the funeral was over. But Maud, with anxieties of her own, had heeded them but slightly until now. "'It's a thing no Quintonite ain't gonna stand for,' quivered Mrs. Joe G. "'Tain't proper. I guess Cap'n Billy had better have kept her over to the station.' "'But what is it?' insisted Maud her voice almost drowned in the shriek of one of the twins, whose long, thin hair she had jerked by way of emphasis. Under cover of the scream, the mother replied, "'Tain't fit to talk about for a self-respecting girl, but I don't want you should have anything to do with Janet after today.' "'Spell it,' pleaded Maud, shaking her younger sister into a sobful semi-silence. F-I-G-G-E-R, spelled Mrs. Joe G. in an ominous murmur. Maud Grace's flat, expressionless face took on a really imbecile blankness. Figure, she repeated over and over. Figure? That's worse to understand than model. I don't see why you can't talk plain talk, Ma. Cause I told you, whisper or shoutin'. "'Tain't the thing for plain talk. "'But I wanted to give you a weapon "'in case Janet takes to crowing over you, "'and she ain't above it. "'She's worse off than you be.' "'With this, Mrs. Joji marshaled her host "'and set out for the light. "'It was late in the day "'after poor Susan Jane had been laid away "'in the little graveyard back of the white church "'that David slowly mounted the lighthouse stairs pausing as usual upon every landing. There was no song upon his lips now. For the first time in thirty years, Davy felt that song was impossible. All smiling and many-colored, the landscape spread before him at every opening, but the man sighed without the laugh. "'The higher up I get,' he panted, "'it seems I feel heavier-hearted.' I ain't got nothing now, nor evermore shall have. I've had my turn, and when I reach t'other side, I can't expect poor William Henry to share her with me. Thirty years I had her, 
and of course I can't complain. I ought to be thankful William Henry didn't begrudge me them years. And I am thankful. Yes, I am thankful. And somehow, I believe the good God ain't going to let my heaven be blighted. In some way, he's going to set it straight for us three over there. Maybe Susan Jane will kind of hanker after the care I gave. Maybe she's got kind of used to it. And maybe, since there ain't any marriage, or given in marriage, maybe she'll have love enough for us both. This conclusion brought a joy with it that radiated the honest face. "'That's the way out,' he murmured, standing upon the little balcony and facing a sunset so gorgeous that the world seemed full of glory. "'It's come to me as plain as William Henry come three nights back. It's borne in upon me that most all of life's riddles get answered when you get up high enough to leave hampering things below.' Downstairs, the loss of Susan Jane kills everything but the heartache. But up here... Davy walked around the light and looked tenderly at the land and sun-touched bay. Up here, where Susan Jane never came, I can see clearer, being accustomed to having it out alone with God, so to speak, for the last ten years. And now the sun was gone. Its gladsome farewell to Davy in the light made the smile gather on the wrinkled face. "'Your turn'll come,' he said smilingly in the old words. "'Your turn'll come.' Then he went down to the little waiting room, lighted his own lamp, and took the book of poems from the table. He was ready for his next duty. He was soon lost to all but the swinging thought in the ringing lines. Davy was himself again. Then suddenly he was aware of a hand upon his shoulder. So tense were his nerves that had he looked up and seen either William Henry or Susan Jane, he would not have been surprised. But it was Janet, and her eyes were full of brooding love. Davy, she said, do you remember how I used to play Hungry Man with you when I was a little girl? I do that, Janet, the cheerful old face beamed. Have you had any supper, you used to ask. Have you had any supper, Mr. Hungry Man? Let's play now, the girl laughed gently. Have you had any supper, Mr. Hungry Man? Why, I can see you just as plain as plain, Davy. You used to stand inside the lamp, and the lenses made you long and thin and dreadfully starved-looking. "'But once I got outside the glass, I plumped up quick enough,' Davy returned. He saw the look in Janet's eyes that called for bravery in him. She was pale and pitiful, and he turned comforter at once. "'It's all dependent upon the position you take, how you look to others.' Once you get outside of most things, you straightway freshen up and get likelier looking. You've had no supper tonight, Mr. Hungry Man. Janet put her face close to Davy's. I ain't suffering for food, Janet. You never own to any suffering, Davy, but look here. She ran to the landing and brought in a large tray neatly spread with food. "'It isn't leavings,' she explained, 
placing the dishes before him. Eliza Jane's cooking is for company, mine for Davy and me. I made the biscuits myself. Aren't they flaky? They are that, nodded Davy. Flaky don't do them justice. They're flakes. And that coffee. By gum, Janet, that smells like coffee. Davy, it is coffee. The girl was glowing, and her eyes shone blue in the lamplight. I'm going to eat with you, Davy. She drew up a stool. Eat and talk. Davy fell to with a suddenly awakened appetite. But Janet watched him above her clasped hands. Presently she said, Davy, who is going to, to... She was about to say, keep house for you, but, recalling Susan Jane's helplessness, she said instead, Who is going to keep you from being awfully lonely now? Why, Janet, Davy's full mouth hampered his speech, I reckon I'll have to stay lonely straight on to the end. I've had my life. Davy, will you share me with Captain Billy? Davy gulped his mouthful and tilted his chair back. I'm a masterful hand at sharing folks, Janet, but someone sides Billy may have something to say as to this bargain. There's Mark now. No, Davy, there's no one, and that's the end of it. I'm a, well, a failure in getting anything to do from strangers, and so I thought if you would let me, I'd share with you and Billy, and by working very hard I'd make my board and keep. The sweet face quivered. Ain't the painting business paid, Janet? Davy, during sleep-filled days and lonely nights up aloft, had caught no drifting gossip to disturb him. No, it hasn't paid, the girl drooped forward wearily. Billy said you was helping a woman painter. The women have all gone now, Davy. That's the worst of foreign trade, comforted David. You can't depend on it. No, but I mean to be a good housekeeper, Davy. I'm going to make you and my Cap'n Billy Daddy just cozy. I reckon I'm better fitted for home trade. Like as not, Janet, like as not. Most women are, if they only get convinced for it's too late. Well, I'll be powerful thankful to have you around. Tain't any way for a man to live without the woman's touch. Sometimes I've fancied that's what makes women restless. Men don't credit them with enough importance. You've eaten a fine supper, Mr. Hungry Man. Davy had eaten it all. And now I'm going downstairs to make things homey. I wish the sun rose earlier. Good night, Davy. She bent and kissed his seamed and rugged cheek. Good night, Janet, and God bless you. At every window on the way down, the girl stopped to look out at the stars that were thick in the early autumn gloaming. She was aware of a lack of joy in life. One has to know sorrow and trouble to recognize and classify it clearly. Knowledge was coming slowly to Janet. Hope had buoyed her up, 
the hope that Thornley would let her prove that she was stronger and braver than that silly creature he had once thought her. But, as time dragged on, and no call came from the hut upon the hills, hope died. Then she had seen Thornley drive past her one day with that white girl from Bluff Head. The pale, exquisite face had suddenly grown scarlet at the sight of Janet by the wayside, and Thornley had stared right ahead, taking no heed. Since that day, the lack of joy had grown apace. She had gone to the hut upon the hills and hung the tiny whistle upon the door latch. She would never call him again. She had not looked for the key. She had not thought of entering. No longer had she a right there. Billy had deferred his explanations to the girl after his visit to the hut. The sudden death of Susan Jane had postponed the day. At the foot of the lighthouse stairs, Janet paused and held her breath. Someone was moving about the rooms. Someone with a candle, for the flickering shadows rose and fell upon the inner chamber wall. The room in which Susan Jane had died. No fear of a robber stirred Janet. The time had not come when Quentin must fear that. It could not be Mark Tapkins. He might be foolish enough to use his off-night haunting the light. His actions were curious of late. But had it been Mark, he would have been sitting patiently on the outer steps. Janet waited a minute, and then went noiselessly into the sitting-room, and tiptoed to the bedroom door. Then she started back, nearly dropping the tray of empty dishes. The intruder was Maud Grace. She held a lighted candle, and she was hunting, evidently, for something, for she looked under the bed, in each drawer, in the closet, and at last she got down upon the floor and thrust her hand beneath the bedclothes. It was not her actions alone that startled Janet, but the dumb look of misery upon the pale, stupid face. Maud Grace! The crouching girl gave a muffled cry and then sat upright, clasping her hands closely. What are you looking for? It seemed an odd way to put the question. It sounded as if Maud were in her own room and had only misplaced some article of clothing. Her money! The words were clear and hard. Susan Jane's box! I know what you think, Janet. You think I'm a thief. But I've got to have money, and I'll pay it back. Come out in the sitting room, Maud. I'll light the lamp, and then we can talk. The calmness of tone and words gave the girl upon the floor courage to rise and go into the next room. There she sat down in Susan's old rocker and waited until Janet made a light. Then they faced each other, Janet taking her place upon the horsehair sofa. "'You're just as bad as me,' cried Maud suddenly. The steady look Janet bent upon her angered and repelled her. You ought to understand how it is. I don't know what you mean, Janet replied. But I'm not bad enough to steal a dead woman's money. Maud turned a bluish white and her misery-filled eyes fell. I had to have money. I daren't ask Pa or Ma. 
I can't tell anybody, but I've got to have money to go away. I could have sent it back somehow once I got away. Where are you going? Janet's voice had the ring of scorn in it, though she tried to think kindly. Ah, you needn't put on them airs, Maud was trying to keep the tears back. You ain't any too good with your modelin', and you, you, a figure. This did not have the desired or anticipated effect upon Janet. She looked puzzled. Somehow you sound as if you were talking in your sleep, Maud Grace, she said. You don't seem to have any sense. But you've got to explain about the money. At this, Maud sprang from the chair and flung herself beside Janet. She must have help, and this girl, doubted by all the moral village folks, was her one hope in a desolate hour. I've got to go after him, she sobbed. After him? Janet could not free herself from the clinging arms. Yes, Mr. Fitch. Ah, oh, Janet, if you was good like all the rest, you couldn't understand. But all day I've been thinking how you would stand up for me if you knowed. He made love to me, Mr. Fitch did, and now he's gone, and he don't write, and I know he's never coming back. Something tells me. And, oh, Janet, I've got to have him. I have, I have. I only meant to take the money till I got to him. I found his card in his bedroom after he went. He didn't tell me true where he lived, but the card's all right. And I've got to go. The girl's thin voice was hoarse with emotion. She clung closer, and her breath came hard and quick. A loathing filled Janet as she listened a loathing made bitter by the insinuation of her similarity to this poor, cringing creature beside her. "'You don't want him if he doesn't want you, do you?' she asked slowly. "'I do that!' Maud's tone was doggedly miserable. "'Even if he is trying to get away from you?' The memory of the weak, boyish boarder at Mrs. Jo G.'s added force to this question. Yes. Then shame on you, Maud Grace. I wouldn't say such a thing as that if I were to die. Maybe, the wretched girl groaned, maybe you ain't just like me. Somehow I can't think you are. But, Janet, it's worse than dying, this is. I've got to go. The poor pleading face was raised to Janet but its dumb agony met no understanding emotion. A stir outside caused both girls to tremble with fright. "'I've heard every word you've said,' Mark Tapkins stood in the doorway opening upon the porch. "'I was a-settin' out there, sort of watchin' and thinkin' of other things and not noticin' what was passin', till all of a sudden it come to me that I had been a-listenin' and takin' in what wasn't intended for me. I'm glad I did. His slow face lifted proudly. I'm glad I was used, so to speak, for this end. Maud Grace, you ain't got any call to bother Janet no more. 
I understand you. His eyes rested upon the forlorn girl, and she shrank as before fire. I understand, and this is man's work. You come along home, and tomorrow you give me that card of his'n, and I'll travel up to town and fetch him back. Mark, Janet was on her feet, her eyes blazing. You mustn't help her in this foolish business. You have no right to interfere. You have no right here. She shall not make herself so ridiculous as to send for a man who is trying to get away. Mark looked at her gently, patiently. Pshaw, Janet, he soothed. You leave things you don't understand to them as does. I'm going to fetch that feller back. I know his kind. The city breeds him. Maybe the bracin' air down here will help him. Come along, Maud Grace. It's natural enough for me to take you home from Janet. Janet made no further effort to change Mark's intention, and he and Maud went away together. When Janet heard them close the garden gate, she went into the bedroom, took the money box that poor Maud had so diligently sought, from the top shelf of the closet and put it in a bureau drawer. Then she turned the key in the drawer for the first time in all the years. End of chapter 8 Recording by Roger Moline Chapter 9 of Janet of the Dunes This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Janet of the Dunes by Harriet T. Comstock. Chapter 9. Well, it's a relief to me, Dick, to know that you do know. Mr. Devant shrugged his shoulders and laughed lightly. Catherine and I have had a sneaking desire to ask you if you'd found us out, but we waited for you to make the first move. I'm slow to move in any game, Thornley replied. I rather think it comes from my chess training. When a child begins that pastime, as you might say, in his cradle, with such a teacher as father, it's apt to influence his character. Exactly. Have a cigar, Dick. It's beastly lonely to puff alone. Thanks, no. I've smoked too much in my hut in the hills. Being alone always drives me to a cigar. The two men sat in the library at Bluff Head. A fire of driftwood crackled on the hearth, and a stiff wind roared around the house. Of course, we had no right to enter your studio, Mr. Devant spoke slowly between the puffs of smoke, except the right that says, All is fair in love and war. I admit that I was shaking in my boots that day for fear you might come in upon us. Catherine was braver than I. You must own, Dick, that you hadn't treated the girl quite fair. I do not grant that, Mr. Devant. I think Catherine had no cause for complaint. Good Lord! A doctor's wife might quite as well feel herself aggrieved because her husband's dissecting room is closed to her. "'Come now, Dick!' Devant threw his head back and laughed. 
It's carrying the thing too far when you liken the pimpernel to a disagreeably defunct subject. It all goes to the making of one's art. That is what I mean. It belongs to the art and need not be dragged into public to satisfy a woman's morbid curiosity. Or a man's? The laugh was gone from the face of the older man. Or a man's, since you insist. Thornley looked into the depths of the rich glow upon the grate and took small heed of his companion's changed expression. And your model gave us away? I beg pardon? Thornley drew himself together. What did you say? I said your model, the Pimpernel, told you? It must have given the little thing a bad half hour to be found out. It killed her childhood, the young man returned. It died hard, and it wasn't pleasant for me to witness, but, thank God, the woman in her saved her soul from utter annihilation. Somehow, I have always wanted you and Catherine to know this. Thank you. You have told Catherine? No, I'm leaving tomorrow. I'm going to tell Catherine tomorrow night. I waited for her to speak first to me. I hoped she would to the last. All might have been different if she only had. Perhaps Catherine is generous enough to forgive you unheard, ventured Devant. No woman has a right to forgive a man in such a case if she suspects what Catherine did. The keen eyes drew together darkly. How do you know what Catherine thought, Dick? The older man was growing anxious. A woman thinks only one thing when she strikes that kind of a blow, Mr. Devant. The effect of the blow upon the object was proof enough of its character. I happen to be in at the death, you know. Dick, you're a man of the world. This sort of sentiment is not worthy of your intelligence. Catherine is a loving girl, and naturally a bit jealous of you and your dissecting room. You must realize she had cause for surprise that day. Why, the little devil looked like a siren, and the bare feet in the net were breathtaking. I think, under all the circumstances, for Catherine to overlook it in silence proves her a large-hearted woman. Or an indifferent, determined one. Dick! I feel rather more deeply, Mr. Devant, than you have perhaps imagined. This means much to me. I have never had but one ideal of womanhood that I have cared to bring into my inner life. My mother set my standard high. Your mother was an unusual woman, my boy. The unusual is what I have always admired. You are too young to be so unelastic. I'm too young to forego my ideal, Mr. Devant. Presently, Saxton entered the room with a tray of glasses and a bottle. After he was gone, Mr. Devant took up the subject anxiously. I was your father's friend, Dick, your mother's too, for that matter. I do not want you to do a mad thing in the heat of resentment. Catherine Ogden is a rare woman, a woman who will be the one thing needful to make your success in life secure. Her fortune will place you above the necessity of struggling, 
You can paint as genius moves and give the public only your best. She is beautiful. She loves you, is proud of you, and knows the world, the world that may be yours, in every detail. She is your ideal, my boy, your ideal, lost for a moment in the fog. Thornley listened, and suddenly Janet's simile recurred to him. It comes to me just as Davy's light comes of an early morning when the fog lifts. The memory brought a tugging of the heartstrings. You have scattered the fog, Mr. Devant, he answered. I own I was in rather a mist, but you bring things out most distinctly. And you will not go to Catherine at once? You see, I am presuming upon old friendship and a sincere liking for you. I only wish there were a night train. Thornley gave vent to a long, relieved breath. You hold to your purpose, Dick? I feel that but for me this might not have occurred. I should have restrained the child that day. I shall tell Catherine all, Mr. Devant. I am sure she will ask me to release her from a tie that can be only galling for us both. You will be playing the fool, Dick. A note of anger rang in the deep voice. A fool, and something worse. Gentlemen do not play fast and loose with a woman like Catherine Ogden. I am sorry you judge me so harshly, Thornley flushed. I should hardly think myself worthy the name of man if I followed any other course. To marry Catherine with this between us would be sheer folly. To refer to it must in itself bring about the result I expect. I have no desire to enter Catherine's world, and she has no intention of adopting mine. She has always believed I would use my success as a step to mount to her. That her world is less than mine has never occurred to her. But if the girl loves you? She does not love me. Had she loved me, she must have spoken since, that day. Mr. Devant arose uneasily and walked about the room. Then he came back and drew his chair close to Thornley's. "'Will you take a glass of my wine?' he asked huskily. Thornley was about to decline, but changed his mind. "'Thanks, I will,' he said instead, and the two sipped the port together. "'Dick, this has shaken me a bit. I feel that I have an ignoble share in the whole affair.' I'm getting to be an old man. I can claim certain privileges on that score, and if life means anything past forty, it means sharing its experiences with a friend. I'm going to speak of something that has never passed my lips for nearly twenty years. You are very kind, Mr. Devant. Thornley set his glass down and thrust his hands in his pockets. I appreciate your friendliness. But please, do not give yourself pain. If life means anything under forty, it means getting your knocks at first hand. He tried to smile pleasantly, but his face fell at once into gloomy, set lines. I'm afraid, Mr. Devant went on, 
keeping his eyes upon his companion's face and guiding himself thereby. "'I'm afraid some quixotic idea of defending this little pimpernel of ours moves you to take this step. Believe me, nothing you can do in that direction, unless indeed you have gone too far already, can avail if you seek the girl's happiness.' A deep flush rose to Thornley's cheeks, but the proud uplift of the head renewed hope in the older man's heart. "'You say,' he continued, toying with his glass, "'that to drag Catherine from her world would be ruinous to her. "'To drag this child of the dunes from her world would be, "'to put it none too harshly, hell. "'I've looked the girl's antecedents up since that day on the hills.' I've had my bad moments, I can assure you. It's like trying to draw water out of an empty well to get anything against their own from these people down here. But I had hopes of the girl's mother. I pin my faith to ancestry, and I am willing to build on a very small foundation, providing the soil is good. But the mother in no wise accounts for the daughter. She was a simple, uneducated woman, with rather an unpleasant way of shunning her kind. James B. Smith, my gardener, permitted me to wring this from him. He doesn't fancy Captain Billy Morgan, thinks him rather a saphead. He hinted at a necessity for the marriage of this same Billy and the girl's mother. It's about the one sin the Quintonites know as a sin. They come as near going back upon each other for that transgression as they ever come to anything definite. The girl is the offspring of a stupid surf man and a nondescript sort of woman. She is not the product of any known better stock. She is, well, a freak of nature. You cannot transplant that kind of flower, Dick. The roots are hid in shallow soil of a peculiar kind. If you planted her in, well, in even your artistic world, she would either die, shrivel up, and be finished, or she might spread her roots and finish you. I've seen more than one such case. Thornley shook himself as if doubtful what he should reply to this man who, above all else, in his own fashion, was trying to prove himself a friend. "'Thank you again, Mr. Devant,' he said at last, haltingly. "'I suppose all men as old as you are sincere when they try to help us younger chaps by knocking us senseless in an hour of danger. "'But it's better to let us see and know the danger.' We'll recognize it the next time. All I can say is that I have formed no plans for after tomorrow night. I've got to get out into the open if I can. I rather imagine my art must satisfy me in the future. Devant went over to a desk between two bookcases, opened it, and took something from a private drawer. What do you think of this? he asked handing Thornley an old photograph. "'I should say,' the younger man looked keenly at the picture, "'I should say that it was an almost ideal face of a certain type.' "'Of a certain type, yes.' Devant came closer, 
and leaned over his companion's shoulder. "'The coloring, of course, is lacking. I never saw such glorious hair and eyes. The eyes gave promise of a nobility the woman nature utterly lacked. That girl, Dick, has wrecked my life.' Thornley handed the photograph to Devant. He felt as if he were in some way reading a private letter. "'Your life does not seem a wrecked life,' he said confusedly. In a vague way he wished to repress a confidence that he felt, once told, might wield an influence over his own acts, and this his independence resented. "'You have always appeared a thoroughly contented, successful man.' Devant laughed bitterly. Then he idly placed the photograph in a book and closed the covers upon the exquisite face. Thornley hoped that would end the matter, but his companion was bent upon his course. He stretched his feet toward the fire and looked into the heart of the glow with sad, brooding eyes. "'Happy!' he ejaculated. "'Happy! It is only youth that estimates happiness by superficialities.' A smile, a laugh, a full pocketbook. You think they mean happiness? They are often the outward expression. Or counterfeits. Have you ever read Peer Gint, Dick? Yes. Ibsen has a gloomy charm for me. I read all he writes in about the same way a child reads goblin tales. I enjoy the shivers. You remember the woman who gave Pere permission to marry the one pure love of his life, but stipulated that she should forever sit beside them? Yes, Thornley smiled grimly. That was a devilishly Ibsen-like idea. It was a truer touch than the young can understand. Those ghostly women of an early folly often sit beside a man and the later purer love of his life. Some men are able to ignore the gray specters and get a deal of comfort from the saner reality of maturer years. I never could. That girl, he touched the closed book as if it were the grave that concealed her, has always come between me and later desires for a home and closer ties. Her wonderful eyes, that looked so much and meant so little, have held me by a power that death and years have never conquered. She died then? Thornley could no longer shield himself from the undesired knowledge. He must hear the end. Yes, she came from near here, poor little soul. I can never get rid of the impression that her death was hurried, not only by trouble, but sheer homesickness. You cannot fit these slow, quiet natures into the city's whirlpool. I was a young fellow, down for the summer. I was ensnared by her beauty and hadn't sense enough to see the danger. She followed me to the city, took a place in a shop, and was about as wretched as a seagull in a desert. I was fool enough to think it a noble act to befriend her, and so I complicated matters. My father must have found out, though I was never sure of that. 
Father was a man who kept a calm exterior under any emotion, but he sent me abroad, and I, not knowing that he had discovered anything, dared not confess. I meant to come back at a year's end and set all straight in some way. Good God, set things straight! How we poor devils go through the world, knocking down things, like so many ten-pins, and solacing ourselves with the fancy that when we finish the game, we'll set the pins in place again. We never get that chance, Dick. Take my word for it. Whatever the plan of life is, it isn't for us to set up the game. We may play fair, if it is in us, but once we get through, we need not hope for any going back process. When I returned at the end of two years, I could not find her. It wasn't love that set me upon the search for her, Dick. I always knew that. But I think it was the one decent element that has ever kept me from going to the deepest depths. I got discouraged, finally, and took our old family lawyer into my confidence. Did you look down here? Thornley asked slowly. The tail had clutched him in a nightmarish way that shook his nerves. They didn't come back here, my boy, once they tread the path of that poor child. They simplify morality in Quinton along with all else, and the one unpardonable sin suffices for them. They grade their society by their attitude toward that. But old Thorndyke took this place into consideration as a beginning, for he aided me in my search when he was convinced of my determination. And you never found her? Thornley was leaning forward, with hands close clasped before him, his face showing tense in the red glow of the fire. Thorndyke did. Ah! Yes, the poor little thing had been rescued after a fashion. Soon after I left her, a fellow who had always had a liking for her, a chap who had worked in the shop with her, was willing to marry her, and she consented. You wouldn't think she could, quite, with those eyes, but she did. The man was good to her, but the city and other things were too much, and she lived only a short time. There was a child. I wanted to do something for it. I had a passion of remorse then, but Thorndyke told me that the child's best interest lay in my letting her alone. She was respected and comfortable. For me to interfere would be to throw dishonor upon the dead mother and a cloud upon the child. All had been buried and forgotten in the mother's grave. About all I could do to better the business was to keep my hands off, and that I did. Devant's head drooped upon his chest, and Thornley felt a kind of pity that stirred a new liking for the man. "'You think the lawyer told you the true facts?' he asked. "'True in every particular?' Devant started up and turned deep eyes upon the questioner. "'Great heavens, yes! You do not know Thorndyke. He was about as cast iron an old Puritan as ever survived the times. He was devoted to our family and served us to his life's end 
as counselor and friend. But not for the hope of heaven would he have lied. No, that's why I confided in Thorndyke. I could not have trusted anyone else. I knew he would never respect me afterward. He never did. But he served me as no one else could, and I bore his contempt with positive gratitude. But you could never forget? Thornley spoke almost affectionately. The older man looked up. No, and as I grow older, I thank God I never could. We ought not forget such things as that. We ought to expiate them as long as we live. I have grown to take a kind of joy in the hurt of the memory, a kind of savage exultation in the suffering. So perhaps can I wipe out the wrong in this life and get strength, of a better sort, for the next trial on beyond if there is another trial. I suppose every man wants to show and live the best that is in him. Not many get the chance here, from what I see. I reckon that is why we old fellows have an interest in the younger ones. It goes against the grain, if we have a sneaking regard for you, to see you quench the divine spark with the same galling water we've gone through. "'Going, Dick?' "'But the other had risen "'and was holding out his hand "'in a confused but eager fashion. "'Yes, Mr. Devant, and thank you. "'You're not an old man. "'I sincerely wish that you might someday, "'well, you understand, "'not forget exactly, "'but get another trial here. "'Too late for that, Dick. "'Can't you stay overnight?' No, I'm going to the hills. I've some last things to do there. And tomorrow, Dick? I'm going to Catherine. The two men looked keenly into each other's eyes. I'll meet you then at the train, my boy, at 7.50. I've business in the city. I always put up at the Holcomb. Look me up after you've seen Catherine. Good night, Mr. Devant, and again, thank you. Devant walked with Thornley to the outer door and then to the windswept piazza. It's sharp tonight, he said. I'll soon have to give up Bluff Head. Davy's light has got it all its own way tonight, not a star or moon to rival its beauty. A time back, I fancied one evening that the light failed me. It was only for a few moments I imagined it, but it gave me quite a jog. I suppose it was the state of my nerves. One can rely upon Davy. He's a great philosopher in his way. His lamp is his duty. His lamp and that poor crippled wife of his who has just died. Davy is one of the few men I've met, Dick, who seems to have played the game fair and has never tried to comfort himself with the hope of going back. "'I'm ready for the next duty,' he said to me the other day with his old rugged face shining. "'There's always another duty ready at hand when you drop one as finished.'" The master of Bluffhead watched the straight young figure fade into the night. Then he turned again to Davy's light. 
"'The weight of a dead duty,' he muttered. "'That's what anchors a man. "'It isn't in the order of things to trust a man with a new duty "'when he failed with the last. "'There isn't any light to guide a man that's anchored by a dead duty.' Then Devant went back into his lonely house and sat down before the dulling fire to think it out about Thornley. "'He'll never go to anyone but me after he's seen Catherine,' he thought. "'He may not come to me. It all depends upon how deep the thing has gone. But in case he needs anyone, I'd better be on hand. I may serve as a buffer, and that's better than not serving at all.' End of chapter 9 Recording by Roger Moline Chapter 10 of Janet of the Dunes This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline Janet of the Dunes by Harriet T. Comstock Chapter 10 Janet had conquered the art of crocheting in order that she might construct a tam-o'-shanter cap. It had been a difficult task, and the result was far from satisfying. Dropped stitches and uneven rows were in evidence all over the creation of dark red, with its bushy little knot on top. But Janet had an eye for the impressionistic touch, and as she glanced in the mirror of Susan Jane's bureau, the general effect was gratifying. Under the dull red, the splendid dusky gold of the girl's hair shone exquisitely. Janet had trained the rebellious locks at last to an upward tendency, and the mass was knotted loosely beneath the artistic headgear. The eye for color had never been lacking in this girl of the dunes. Nature had taught her true, but Thornley had, later, assisted nature and no French modiste could more accurately have chosen the shade of reddish-brown to suit the complexion that had Janet selected from the village store her coarse flannel for blouse and skirt. The skirt was long now, and the heavy shoes were worn religiously through heat and cold. There was to be no more absolute freedom for Janet of the dunes. David had come down from his light, heavy-eyed and weary, Mark Tapkins's absence caused extra duty for David, but the man would ask for no other helper. It would seem like disloyalty to Mark. Janet took a turn now and again to relieve David, and that helped considerably. The girl had borne her share the previous night, but her face showed no trace of the vigil. "'Sprucin'?' Davy paused. Tired as he was, the girl's beauty caught and held him. "'Some. I've set your breakfast out on the table, Davy, and the coffee is on the stove.' "'You're getting to be a master hand at cooking, Janet. I don't believe Pa Tapkins can beat your coffee. Expecting Mark back?' There was a double interest in this question. "'I haven't heard a word, Davy.' "'Goin' visitin'?' "'No, Davy. Nobody seems to want me to come visiting. "'The summer's doings have sort of rent Quinton asunder, "'and in some way I've managed to fall in the crack. "'I don't know what I've done.' 
she smiled a crooked little smile and gave the artistic Tam a new angle. But I'm rather frozen out. Mrs. Joe G.'s Amelia made a face at me yesterday. I shouldn't have noticed it, for the creature's hideous anyway, but she called an explanation after me. I've made a snoot at you, she screamed, and would have said more, but Maud Grace pulled her in. No, Davy, I'm going up to Bluff Head. It's empty, Davy said, moving between stove and table clumsily. Eliza Jane's there, and James B. I wonder if they're going to shut the house for the winter? asked Janet. Like as not, Davy nodded and spoke from the depths of his coffee cup. Janet bethought her of the cellar window and the old unbroken calm, and she sighed yearningly. Goodbye, Davy. She came behind his chair and snuggled her soft cap against his cheek. I'm going up to have a good reading spell. Then, after dinner, let us, you and I, if Mark should happen back, go over to the station to see Cap'n Billy. Something's the matter with my Cap'n Daddy. He's keeping off land like an ocean steamer. Davy, he's got a cargo aboard, take my word for it, that he doesn't want us to know about. Like as not, he's taken to pirate ways, and we've got to get aboard, Davy, sure and certain. By gum, ejaculated David, what an eye you've got for signals, Janet. I've been doubting Billy's actions for some time, and if Mark comes back, I'll join you going over to the dunes. What's Mark called to the city, he asked suddenly. You'll have to ask Mark. The girl was halfway down the garden path as she answered. Probably following the city trade. Not much, muttered Davy, going into the sleeping room. Mark's got his stomach full of city once for all. He hates it worse than pison. Down the sunlit path went the girl to the oak thicket which lay between the light and the road that stretched from the village to Bluff Head. Not a soul was in sight, and the crisp air and glorious view gave a new kind of joy to Janet that was distinct from pleasure. She felt that even if trouble crushed her, she would always be able to know this satisfaction of the senses. She paused at the entrance of the woods and looked back. The path was strewn with a carpet of leaves. Here and there a tall poplar stood majestically above its stunted comrades of pine and scrub oak, but looked gaunt and bare, while under the humbler brothers bore a beauty of blood-red leaves, or the constant green. Janet smiled, recalling an old belief of her childhood. She had asked Pa Tapkins once why the oaks were so very little. Pa Tapkins had his explanation ready. It had borne part in his boyhood and was a fully confirmed fact in later life. It all comes of the poplars being such liars, Janet. Never trust no poplar. When things was only sand and beginnings in these parts, all the trees sprung up together. But the poplars, being snoopier than common, shot up considerable and took a look around. Lordy, what did they see but the ocean a-roarin'? 
and making as if it was coming straight over the dunes. And the poplars passed the word down to the little oaks, what was just getting their bearings. It scared him so it gave him a setback from the first. But them tall liars wasn't content with stating truths day after day when the sea lay smiling like a baby. They handed down a bigger whopper than what they did when they first saw the water. Nearer, nearer, it's coming. That's what they said, mingled long with powerful yarns as to how the monster looked. Naturally, the scared oaks didn't take no interest in shooting up when they thought they was so soon to be eaten. So they got the habit of crouching low and depending on the poplars for information. They got a notion, too, of turning away from the sea. Sort of sought their faces again it, so to speak. The pines, every once so often, shamed them till they blushed deep red. That comes long about spring and fall. But no amount of shaming ever started them into springing up and seeing for themselves and giving the poplars the lie. Don't ye place no dependence on a poplar, Janet. They be shivery, whispering critters. They turn pale when there ain't nothing the matter. They keep their shade to themselves, just plain miserly, and they pry too much. Tain't proper. Tis most human-like. Janet recalled the old fancy now, leaning against the tall poplar which, indeed, was whispering in nervous fashion to the blushing scrub oaks clustered close. Someone was coming up the road from the station. In the far distance, the girl heard the panting shriek of the engine of the morning train from the city. Could that shambling, weary figure approaching be Mark? Why, he looked older than Pa Tapkins. Janet waited until he was abreast of her. His hands were plunged in his pockets, his shabby valise slung over his shoulder, and his head was bowed upon his chest. "'Mark!' she cried cheerily. "'You look just worn out.' The man raised his dull face, and an awakening of interest and hope lit it. "'Mornin', Janet,' he replied, and came to the tree. "'Davy managed pretty good. I was kept longer than any reason. I hope Davy ain't petered out.' "'No, I helped some. Did you get Maud Grace's young man, Mark?' The amusement in the laughing voice made Mark shiver. All the pleasure dropped from his face like a mask. I found where he was all right, but I got there a day too late. He was off for... for... For where? There was no finding out. He's just clear gone and vanished. Well, I'm glad of it. I think Maud Grace ought to be ashamed of herself to want him when he did not want her. I'm out and out thankful she cannot have her way. The effect of this speech upon Mark was stupendous. His jaw dropped, and a slow fire seemed to gleam in his pale eyes. Part of his nature rose in gladness because the girl could speak in that fashion. She had no knowledge within her to cause her to falter or stand abashed. But the tired man in the poor fellow cried out to this strong, brave creature 
to aid him understandingly where his own knowledge and slowness of nature made him a coward. And so they stood looking in each other's eyes. I don't see why, Mark, you should try to help Maud. She's silly and has acted like an idiot with every man boarder her mother has had. She's turned her back upon you. This, maybe, will teach her a lesson. Like as not, it will. Mark's words came with almost a groan. Like as not, it will. What strength was in him conquered. This girl, so detached from him, must keep her childish faith. Whatever was to be borne and suffered, he, in his bungling fashion, must bear it and suffer alone. He knew the Quintonites, poor fellow. He knew there was work for him to do, but he would do it alone. "'Where are you going, Janet?' Mark took up his burden of duty with a sigh. He was awake to life and its meaning at last, and the reality steadied him. "'On an errand.' "'Where?' "'That's tellin'. the girl laughed mockingly. "'And, Mark, as soon as you can, go up to the light. "'I'll soon be back. "'Davy and I are going on a pirate hunt this afternoon.' "'Uh, what kind of a hunt?' "'Pirate. It's going to be great fun. "'Davy needs a change.' "'Mark watched the brilliant figure vanish around the curve of the road.' that any being on earth could be so gladsome puzzled him vaguely. "'Bluff head,' he muttered. "'Well, tain't as bad as the hills, but it's all bad in muddling, and I don't feel equal to tackling it. A dear Lord knows I don't. I hate to have a job what I know from the start I'm going to botch, but the Lord's got to take the consequences if he calls upon me. Tweren't any of my doings. Lord knows that. Bluffhead was closed, whether for the season or not, Janet did not care. From the region of the barns, James B.'s voice came, singing a hymn. But Eliza Jane had either gone for the day or for altogether. Janet ran around to the cellar window, keeping the house between her and the barns. The window still swayed inward to her touch. The long skirts and new womanhood retarded movement somewhat, but the agile body had not forgotten its cunning. In a minute or two, Janet stood in the vacant library. She drew in long breaths. Eliza Jane had aired the room well, but there was a hint of tobacco smoke still. Upon a stand was a vase of goldenrod, yellow and vivid amid the rich coloring. "'Some people leave a house a great deal lonelier than others,' whispered the girl. "'It will never be quite the same.' Devant's presence, his vital personality, seemed near and potent. She and he had been reading a book together in that early summer time before guests had appeared to disturb the quiet happiness. She would go back to the book and begin alone what they had eagerly pursued in company.' Janet went to the bookcase. The book was gone, and its neighbors were leaning over the vacant space endeavoring to conceal its absence. Failing to find the volume, 
the girl went to the table and took up, one by one, the magazines and books which covered it. "'Ah!' she said suddenly. "'I have you!' Under a pile, near Devant's leather chair, was what she sought, a copy of Bacon's essays. Devant had taken a curious interest in leading this untutored girl into all manner of paths and bypaths. It was a never-failing delight to him to watch her crude but keen gripping of the best from each. Alone now, and with a shadow across the path where once companionship and pleasure had borne part, she took the essays to the deep window, raised the sash, and nestled down to what comfort was hers. As was ever the case, the subject caught her fancy, and in seeking the pearl she forgot the effort. Presently she was aware of a key grating in the lock of the hall door. Eliza Jane was perhaps returning, or, more likely, James B. had an errand inside. Janet raised her eyes. From her nook she could see distinctly through the hall. The outer door opened, and in came Mr. Devant. He had apparently walked from the station, and was unexpected by the caretakers. He had been, without doubt, on the train with Mark, but had taken a longer path from the station, or had dallied by the way. For a moment, Janet feared he might be followed by the girl she most dreaded, or Thornley, perhaps both. But Devant was alone. He closed the door after him, hung his coat and hat upon the rack, and came directly to the library. His keen eyes saw Janet at once. "'History is never tired of repeating itself,' he cried with a laugh. Outwardly, he was rarely taken off his guard. "'The surest way of getting you here,' he went on, "'is evidently for me to go away. Don't you like me any more?' He lounged against the heavy table and folded his arms. He was looking at the lovely face beneath the vivid cap. The first impression of the girl's beauty was always puzzlingly startling. Devant had noticed that sensation before. After a moment, it grew less confusing. "'I like you,' Janet dropped her eyes, recalling the day upon the hills. Devant had met her repeatedly since that morning and had always been jovial and easy in his manner but the recollection intruded itself at every meeting. "'Perhaps you like me at a distance, but object to my company?' "'I object to some of them.' A wan smile flitted across the uplifted face. "'Well, I am alone now,' Devant nodded cheerfully. "'Alone and likely to be. I'm going to remain all winter, perhaps, Janet.' You must teach me ice-boat sailing, and let me into all the other debaucheries of the place. He came near the window and looked out toward the barns. Then he called, Mr. Smith? James B. showed his rough red head at the barn door. Yes, he called back. I ran down today instead of tomorrow. If Mrs. James B. can come up this afternoon and get me a dinner, I'll be much obliged. I'm sorry, 
James B. expectorated musingly. "'But she's gone to get beach plums.' "'All right,' Devant returned cheerfully. "'I'll starve, then. "'Saxton won't be down until tomorrow.' "'That's so?' James B. had returned to his work unconcernedly. "'Why, this is dreadful.' Janet could but smile at Devant's indifferent face. "'I suppose you couldn't cook for yourself even if you were starving. "'I wonder if I might do something for you now?' "'Take no trouble,' Devant waved her back. "'I took precautions before I left town, "'and Mrs. James B. will be over as soon as she hears I'm home. "'I'm getting initiated. "'What are you reading, Janet?' The essays. I found the place where we left off. They're rather dry, but I like them. When you do not like a really good thing, Devant said, going to his easy chair, read it until you do. Bring the book here, child. I haven't read aloud since you and I were alone before. Janet arose, and as she did so, something dropped at her feet. She stooped to pick it up, looking a bit surprised and confused, and slipped it into her blouse. "'What was that?' Devant asked. "'My—' Janet paused. "'It was my mother's picture. I always carry it in my waist now. I dropped it.' "'May I see it?' "'Captain Daddy said—how long ago it seemed—' "'that I had better not show it. "'It seems as though she belonged just to Captain Billy and me. "'But then you are different. "'I think Captain Billy would not mind if you saw her. "'She was so pretty.' "'Janet came to the table, laid the book upon it, "'and then drew two photographs from her blouse. "'Why!' she exclaimed, turning pale and stepping back. "'Why, I'm... I'm... Why, something has happened. Look here. She extended her hand, and in both was the likeness of the dead past. Identical they were. Both well-preserved and arisen to face this man and young girl at God's own time. How shriveled the memory of the grim error was. How weird and pitiful it arose against the youth and beauty of the vital creature who, with outstretched arms, challenged him to explain the black mystery. This is my mother. I must have dropped one picture from the book. What do you know of my mother? It was only a palpitating question, but to Devant it bore the awful condemnation of outraged girlhood. "'My God!' he gasped, taking the photographs from her. "'My God!' There could be no mistake. Both had been taken from the same negative. Old Thorndyke had lied then. This girl, with her memory-haunting, elusive beauty, was... He sank back and stared at her. "'No, it could not be. Whatever the meaning was... He dared not think that she was his daughter. If Thorndyke had lied once, he probably had many times. There may not have been a child, 
but that would have been a senseless invention, and Thorndyke was not the man to waste his energies. Perhaps the first child had died. Perhaps there had never been a marriage such as Thorndyke had said. That might easily have happened, and then the mother could have drifted back to the dunes with her pitiful secret hidden forever. Her marriage with Captain Billy, in that case, might have resulted quite naturally. So dense was the darkness that Devon dared not move. He was afraid he might bring down upon this innocent girl a shame that in no wise concerned her. "'How came you to have a picture of my mother?' Janet's eyes were gray-black. An answer she would have, and her heart demanded truth. She saw Devant's panic, and it filled her with sensations borne upon the instant. "'I knew her when she was a girl. A girl like that,' he nodded toward the photographs, as they lay side by side upon the table where Janet had placed them. "'Where?' The relentless voice was hard and cold. "'Here, and later in the city.' "'Did—' Janet paused and bent forward, her tense face burning and eager. "'Did you love her?' Why this question was wrung from her, the girl could not have told. It was in her heart and would have its way. "'No.' Devant's voice was husky, but he would save the future from the clutch of the past if it were in his power to do so. But she loved you. For the life of him, the man could not face his accuser. His eyes dropped. I know, I know, you need not tell me. That is the reason she let you keep her picture. She swayed. For the first time in her vigorous young life, Janet felt faint. Devant sprang toward her. "'Don't, please!' she cried, recovering herself almost at once and turning toward the door. "'I'm going to my Captain Billy.' "'Janet!' He tried to stay her. He had much to say, if only he knew how to say it. She might be going to... what? An awful danger seemed to yawn at her innocent feet, but his early sin forbade his interference. "'I'm going to my Captain Billy!' There was no backward glance. Devant heard the outer door close. Then he sank in his chair and bowed his head upon the two photographs. "'Where your mother went before you,' he groaned. "'Poor little Flotsam and Jetsam!' End of chapter 10 Recording by Roger Moline Chapter 11 of Janet of the Dunes This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline Janet of the Dunes by Harriet T. Comstock Chapter 11 "'There goes Janet like a shot from a gun.' "'Where?' Davy and Mark were hauling oil up to the lamp. They stood upon the little balcony, 
and had a good view of the girl as she ran like a wild thing over the stretch of ground between the lighthouse and the wharf. "'Oh, Janet!' shouted Davy, leaning over the railing. "'What's got you? Ain't you gonna wait for dinner and me?' Janet paused, and the face she turned up to the balcony moved the hearts of both men to alarm. "'I cannot wait!' she called back. "'I'm going to Captain Daddy.' Then a thought caused her to add, "'Don't either of you come after me. "'I want nobody but my Captain Billy.' "'Now what's knocked her endwise?' groaned Davy, staring blankly at Mark. "'Like as not, she's been getting a cargo that she don't fancy up to Bluff Head.' Mark's face was drawn with pity. "'I come down on the train with Mr. Devant. Maybe he set her straight about that landlubber of the hills. Poor Davy, detached by his duties and environments from the common gossip of his kind, bent a puzzled look upon his companion. Landlubber of the hills? What in the name of sin be you talking of? Don't you know what they say about her? asked Mark, his dull eyes fixed on the sail of the comrade as it put off from the dock. "'No, I ain't never had time above my duties to do more'n sleep and eat,' David replied. "'But I've got time now to stand up for that girl yonder "'if any consarned gossip takes to handling her name lightly. "'That girl's put in my care by Billy, "'and Billy and me have stood by each other through many a gale. "'And now, Mark Tapkins, I'd like to hear what you've got to say "'out plain and unvarnished. I don't want no jibin'. I only got one way of hearin' and talkin'. Mark drew back from the calm, lowering face of the keeper. Nation, he gasped. You don't think I'm again her, do you, Davy? I ain't carin' whether you be or no. Like as not, if she shook you, you're full of resentment. Them is young folks' ways. But fur or again her, if ye can harbor scandal about Billy's Janet, you've got to share it with me what knows how to strangle it fust and last. Spit it out now. Mark drew himself together with a mighty effort. Recent events were wearing upon his vitality. They say Janet is mixed up along with a feller what painted her over on the hills. He spoke as guiltily as though he alone were responsible for the report. "'Who says so?' Davy's bushy eyebrows almost hid his kindly eyes. "'Well, Mrs. Joe G., for one. "'Ye can't knock a woman down. "'Ain't there someone else that I can begin on?' "'Well, it's kind of common talk. "'Floatin' round like eelgrass up the creek.' I suppose it's sunk into some kind of bottom of fact as to who started the rumor, but it's just slipping around now on top. Tis, eh? Well, tain't the first time I've clutched eelgrass and tore it from its muddy bottom. That gal, Davy pointed a trembling finger duneward, where the comrade was bobbing over the roughening water. That gal ain't going to be soiled by any slime, if I know it. She belongs to Billy and me, and by thunder, 
We can sail her bark for her when her little hand grows tired on the tiller. Mark was wiping his eyes. Davy had made him feel himself a blackguard, but he could not see just where he had erred. Davy, however, took small heed of Mark. "'I'm going down to get dinner,' he said suddenly. "'And I ain't going to follow her, because she's going to Billy, and there ain't no call I should inflict myself on him. But I'm going visitin' in the village this afternoon.' He nodded ominously. "'I'm going to pay up some of my funeral calls. I hope I ain't going to cause any more funerals, but it all depends on how bad the disease is.' Mark's inclination was to hold Davy back from his march of devastation, but he felt his impotence. "'Once you put Davy on the scent,' he whimpered as he listened to the keeper's departing footsteps, "'you might as well give up. Davy's a terrible one for running down the game. Nation, I hope he won't fall foul of Maud Grace and fling her at her mother.' The cold perspiration rose to Mark's forehead. "'Nation, I wish I hadn't mentioned Mrs. Joe G. I wish to gracious I'd laid the hull-blamed business to Pa, for Pa can stand it being so soft-like.' Janet reached the dunes in good time, but the distance had never seemed so long before. The throbbing, hurt heart outstripped the faithful little comrade, doing its best before the favoring wind. Every tack seemed a mile, and a fever rose in the blood of the silent girl of the tiller. She had time to think. She had time to grow old during that passage. One figure stood out alone from the confused tangle, her mother. Around that form much centered. She must know all, all about her mother. She must not break upon Billy with her startling news. Billy was so easily driven into an impenetrable silence. She must draw him out by old familiar methods and not frighten him into caution. By the time the comrade was fastened to the station wharf, the girl had got herself well in hand. The men of the crew who were not sleeping were engaged indoors, a lonely stillness brooded over all. Janet went up to the government house and looked in at the open door facing the ocean. "'Where's Cap'n Billy?' she asked. The two men, preparing food at the table, raised their eyes with no surprise, and Captain Jared Brown replied, "'Oysterin'!' Then, with a huge clasp knife, he opened a can of tomatoes, raised it to his lips, and drained the contents. Tomatoes were Jared's only dissipation. "'Has he been gone all day?' Janet waited until the empty can was set down. "'The better part of it.' The man wiped his lips with the back of his hand. "'Does he have a patrol tonight?' "'No, no,' Jared began to show an interest. I'm going to surprise him. Don't let on, Jared, if you see him. Who is in the lookout? John Thomas. Janet went to the stairway. John Thomas, she called up. Don't let on to Captain Billy that I'm here. 
"'I don't report no derelicts,' shouted John from aloft. John Thomas was an unsmiling humorist and the idol of the undemonstrative crew. He had seen the girl's approach and was ready with his answer. Then Janet went across the sand hill to Billy's little house. Inside, all was as neat and trim as a ship's cabin. Billy ate with the men at the station, but the tiny kitchen was ready for Janet whenever she came, as also was the orderly bedchamber beyond the living room. Billy kept to his lean-to when away from the government house. The rooms were too stifling for the girl. She could not bear the loneliness that only empty houses have. She went out and sat upon the sand dune on the ocean side. It was never lonely in the big open world. Presently, small things caught and held her excited mind. Far out, a sail was passing beyond the bar. And away, where? Then a gull swooped low in wide free circles and passed. Whither? Closer at hand, the stiff grass, stirred by the wind, made perfect circles upon the white sand. Deeper and deeper the grass cut until there were little ditches, and then the sand fell in, and the patient grass, guided by the unseen power, began again. Janet's unrest found peace in these small happenings. This was home. Safety and Billy would soon come and gather her into the strong stillness of love. "'I told him I was afraid of the city folks, and he laughed,' she whispered. "'But they've caught, or they have nearly caught, Billy's poor fish.' She flung her head up with an air of defiance. Whatever came, she must meet it as Billy had taught her to meet the storms of childish passion. Suddenly she became aware of a sound behind her. She turned, and there was Billy. The surpriser was taken by surprise. "'My captain!' Janet rushed to him and flung her arms about him. "'Oh, there!' he cried. "'I'm all over oysters, Janet.' "'Oysters and eelgrass and water.' "'Never mind, Cap'n Daddy. You are you. "'I am never going to leave you. "'I've come home.' "'In her raptures she had shaken Billy's hat off "'and now stooped to pick it up. "'I'm going to be an oysterer myself "'or some other man-thing that will help. "'But, Cap'n Daddy, I'm going to tie up close to you.' Billy was in no wise deceived by this loving outburst. He had kept guiltily away from the girl with the knowledge he knew he must impart to her some day. Mark Tapkins had informed him of the artist's departure, and that, together with Susan Jane's death and funeral, had given Billy, never before cowardly, a time of grace. But he knew that his girl had come to him in some trouble. Every expression of the dear face was known to him, and he was ready to throw out the line of help as soon as the signal was sure. "'Janet,' he said, "'I'll fetch a mess of something from the station, and we'll take it together. You lay out the table, same as you used to. 
you might happen to like to fry up some oysters. I've had uncommon luck, and you always sought considerable store by the first oysters. The very thought of them makes me hungry. Hurry, Captain Daddy. I want you right close. Billy was not gone long, and when he returned, the two made ready the evening meal. They tried to be gay, but between the attempts at merriment, each was watching the other. The sun went down behind the hills, and Davy's light sprang to its duty on the point. Billy got up stiffly, lighted the little glass lamp, and set it upon the table, amid the dishes of food from which neither he nor Janet had ravenously eaten. "'We must rid up,' said Billy, eyeing the disorder. "'Once you're done with food, tain't a pleasant sight hanging around.' When this was finished, Janet drew her chair close. "'Captain Daddy!' No longer could the girl hold herself in check. "'Captain Daddy, I've got something to tell you.' Billy's heart smote him as he looked at the pretty head, bowed now upon the folded arms. He put out his rough hand and smoothed the ruddy hair. "'Steady,' he murmured. "'Tain't no use to lose heart, Janet. "'I done wrong not to give you a clearer chart to sail by, "'but you'll get into smooth waters again, please God.' "'How little he realized her true trouble. "'Janet tried to still her sobs, "'but they eased the strain, and she sobbed on, "'while Billy made the most of the time to take up his neglected task.' "'It was just the kind of shoal your little bark was like to steer for,' he went on, never raising his hand from her dear head. "'And I ought to have told you. I always have thought that most of us would keep off rocks and shoals if we knowed they was there. Janet, I've got to tell you something about your mother. It ought to come to you from a woman, God knows, but there ain't no likely woman to hand.' and I must do my best. She, your mother, was powerful afraid you might wreck yourself on the same kind of reef what she struck. She wanted you should be a boy, long of that fear, but she allowed if you were a girl, it was to tell you in time if I saw danger, and, Janet, I ain't done my duty. Billy's voice was hoarse from intense feeling. Captain Daddy... Janet's voice shook with sobs. Don't you blame yourself. You're the one perfect thing I have in my life. I know it now. I always knew it, and I never wanted to leave you. Shutting your eyes from danger ain't strength given, Janet. Keep a watch out and be ready. That's what life means. His voice drew the girl from the shelter of her arms. She looked steadily at him through wet lashes. Janet, your mother sunk long a lovin' a man, a man, well, like him, on the hills. What? The girl bent forward, and the fire of her passion dried the tears from the troubled eyes. She would hold her news back. Billy had the right of way. Yes, yes. Billy let go his grip of the present. 
He forgot the girl opposite and her personal claim upon him. He was back in his own youth and in arms to defend the one woman of his love, while of necessity he must use her against herself. It ain't no harm in lovin' if love on both sides means right. Mary, that was her name, Mary was cursed, yes, cursed with a handsome face and a lovin' little heart what she didn't know how to steer true. That's what she always struck to later, that education would have teached her to know better. She was the heartsomest gal that ever was raised in these parts. Her and Susan Jane was about as friendly as any, and I will say for Susan Jane that with all her cantankerousness, she stood by Mary. David and me never sought our fancy on anyone but Susan Jane and Mary. And Davy and me weren't doomed to happiness. Least not in our own way, though it was to give to us both to help when everything else failed. Mary, she went to the city and took a place in a store. She had ambitions to soar and be something different. Once or twice she came home all dressed up to kill and looking just like nothing but a picture. And once I went to the city just to see her. I took special care of my get-up, knowing how much Mary sought by such things. I thought I was all right till I reached the town. Then it broke on me like a clap of thunder that I was about as out of place there as a whale in a freshwater lake. Mary was real upset about my coming unexpected and looking so different to city folks, and she out and out told me twarn't no use. She was being courted by a city man as was rich and was going to make a real lady of her. Poor Billy's weather-beaten face twitched under the lash of the old memory which had never lost its power over him. Janet did not take her eyes from him, nor did she break the spell by a word of hurry or question. Presently, Billy went on. And then she came back here. Davy, he brought her across the bay after dark one evening. No one on the mainland knew. When I went on the midnight patrol, she met me and told me. Told you what? No longer could Janet hold the question back. She knew Billy's method of going around a dangerous spot, and her womanhood and daughterhood demanded all. About him in the city. The past misery shook Billy's voice. He, he didn't marry her. He went away and left her. The poor little wrecked soul came back here, having no other harbor in all God's world, and she knew she could trust me and the love I always had for her. Her faith steered her true. She didn't want to let me take the course I laid out. She said it wasn't fair to me. Lord, not fair to me. She never would tell me his name. She wanted to forget everything. It made her shiver to talk, even, of the city. She didn't want no help, along of him who had deserted her, and I never pestered her none. Then I married her. 
Davy, he backed me up, and he and Susan Jane went to Bay End and saw us married. Susan Jane kept her visitin' over at the light till I took her, calm and easy-like, to the parson, and most folks never guessed the real truth. And then we came over here for a little while, such a little while. I never seen a more grateful critter than she was. She never seemed to take into count the joy t'was for me to serve her and chirp her up. I fixed the little place for her, and I took my traps to the lean-to so as to give her plenty of room, and by and by, like it sometimes happens after a stormy lowering day, the sun burst through, and toward the close the glory seemed right startling. I can see her face a-shining now every time I shut my eyes. And she grew that wise and far-seeing that it made me uneasy. It weren't natural, and she's such a soft little thing. Billy passed his rough hand over his dry, hot lips. Then you come, and she slipped her moorings. The two were staring dumbly, sufferingly at each other. Billy saw the agony he had awakened, and his heart sank within him. After a moment of silent doubt, Janet arose and stood in front of Billy, laying her cold hands upon his shoulders. There was no need for her news now. "'My captain,' she whispered, with a fervor Billy had never heard in her voice before. "'My captain, I am a woman, a woman like my mother.' Tell me, as true as heaven, am I your Janet and hers? Billy's deep eyes pleaded for mercy, but the woman before him would not relent. There was a heart-rendering pause, then... No, you ain't. God help us, you ain't. But he's let me love you like you was, and that's been my reward. Janet shut her eyes for a moment and clung to Billy. In that space of time, it was given to her to see a way to redeem the past. When she opened her eyes, the misery was gone. She was smiling, and there was no mist between her and Billy. She went beside him and drew his shaggy head upon her strong breast, as a mother might have done. Then she bent and kissed him. Dear, dear Captain Daddy, I see it all. My mother was wondrous wise when she took you for her pilot. Oh, my Daddy, for you are my father. In all the world, there never was such a father. We'll cling close, Daddy, won't we, dear? Nobody shall ever come between us. Promise that. Oh, promise it. As God hears, never. Poor Billy broke under the load of love and gratitude and bowed his head upon the table. But the girl, her face glowing with a strange radiance, did not loosen her hold. She bent with him. Had Billy been more worldly-wise, he might have suspected that this vehemence had root in something beside filial love. But Billy was never one to question a gift from God. Whenever his simple soul, chastened by suffering and earnest endeavor, took courage, 
he always thanked heaven and returned to his common task. When he looked up now, the old calm had settled upon his face. "'And so, Janet,' he said, "'you can tell me free and easy about that painter chap over to the hills.' The girl started. "'I know all about him,' soothed Billy. "'And I don't hold it again ye that ye let me think it was a woman painter. "'Them is young folks' ways, and you didn't lie, Janet. "'You just didn't tell straight out. "'But Mark and me, we had our eyes upon ye, "'and was looking out for your interest.' "'Billy paused for breath. "'In your future dealing with the painter man, Janet, "'just do according to your new light.' I ain't going to worry or fret. You always was one to act clear-headed if you had hold of facts. Janet dropped upon Billy's knee and hid her face against his. From such a shelter she could speak more freely. But, oh, how different the confession was from what it once might have been. It was the first time I ever deceived you, Captain Daddy. I hated myself for it. But, Daddy, he never cared for me in that way, dear. He cares only for his beautiful pictures. He used me to help him with them. It was I who did not know the difference, just at first. Even after I knew, I wanted to have a share. But, Daddy, dear, women cannot help in that way. More's the pity, or mercy. I see it all very, very clearly now. But, dear... Here a kind of fierceness shook the low voice. He is not like the one who broke my mother's heart. You and I must remember that. When I wanted to help him, no matter what anyone thought, he would not let me. He saved me from myself. I understand it now and I shall bless him while I live. I... I flung myself at him, Daddy, but he went away because he was too noble to hurt me. He did that? Billy held the girl close and smiled radiantly. Yes, yes, he did that. Billy recalled his and Mark's visit to the hut and a feeling of shame stilled all further confession. He, as well as Janet, was beginning to understand. It seems like the clouds has lifted, Janet, and I'm thinking there'll never be no more betwixt us. Never, dear, dear Daddy, the girl hugged him to her. I ain't been so happy and carefree for years, Janet. It seems like we've cleared the decks, not for action so much as smooth sailing. That's it, Daddy, smooth sailing. Just you and I to the very end. Come, Janet, we must get to bed. We'll sleep on all this new happiness. Your room's ready. It was her room first. She said over and again that it was a safe harbor. And so it is, Janet, so it is, and always shall be, for whatever was hers. Good night, child, and God bless you. 
if you're only fair-minded, you can see that you don't get any more storms on your voyage than is good for you. That night, Janet lay wide-eyed and sleepless upon her mother's bed. Her fancy wandered far, and her young blood coursed hotly through her veins. But always she came trustfully back to the thought of Billy's patient love and courage, and it gave her heart to face the future, whatever it might be. End of chapter 11 Recording by Roger Moline Chapter 12 of Janet of the Dunes This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline Janet of the Dunes by Harriet T. Comstock Chapter 12 The master of Bluff Head had the disconcerting impression borne in upon him that the getting ready for winter at Quinton had a moral and spiritual significance, as well as a physical one. He felt a cold exclusion round about him, as if the good people did not quite know what to do with him. He belonged to the summer. For him and others of his world they had braced for action and thawed out to the extent of making him feel he was not intruding while occupying his own house. But they resented his prolonged stay and necessary infringement upon their well-earned liberty. Not that Devant imposed his presence upon them. He rigidly observed a decent dignity, and he was more than willing to pay a high price for any service he required. But James B., while accepting large wages, fretted under the necessity of holding to a sure thing while a vague possibility lay outside. James B. had learned, in his secret way, that Captain Billy had been told, when he went for the physical examination at Bay End in September, that his heart wasn't up to the requirement. A lesser man would have been dropped from government duty with such a handicap as that, but the physician, knowing Billy and his steady life and good record, passed him for another year. James B., like a vulture, had been hoping for a place on the crew for many a day. The hope gave an excuse for idleness. Eliza Jane knew Billy's symptoms and was willing to countenance James B.'s indifference to other business propositions of a steady nature, while that possibility of the crew was apparent. However, there was no reason why James B. should not turn a penny in a temporary way at Bluff Head while waiting, and that Eliza Jane insisted upon. "'But,' sighed James B. as Mr. Devant stayed on, "'if he would only go, then, like as not, Eliza Jane would let up on me about laboring while I'm waiting.' This state of affairs became known to Janet through the tactless remarks of Mark Tapkins. She went at once to Billy to find out exactly what the doctor had said. Billy, from the highest moral position, prevaricated nobly and left the girl with the impression that the condition of the suspected heart was really very desirable. "'It's this way,' he explained. "'All hearts is tricky, and once you know the tricks, why, there ain't no danger. "'It's like knowing the weak points of a vessel.' He ain't going to strain the weak points once you know them, and like as not, the vessel'll last twice as long as a seaman's sound boat. Don't you fret, Janet. 
James B. can loaf a considerable spell, if it's my going he's dependent upon. And no one more than James B. will be thankfuler for my hanging on. Davy's funeral calls had had a beneficial effect upon the community. More than one woman said afterward that it looked as if Susan Jane's mantle had fallen upon Davy's shoulders. He said to me, and Mrs. Joe G.'s cat-like eyes glittered, he said as how to his mind a gossiper was like a jellyfish, sort of slimy and transparent, and when you want to clutch it, it stung. I asked him right out flat-footed what he meant, and he told me to think it over. More than Mrs. Joe G. thought Davy's words over, and, as a result, turned their attention to getting ready for the winter. The oyster boats dotted the bay, the wood was piled near the kitchen doors, and the Methodist minister, with a sigh of relief, came down from the mental pinnacle upon which he had endeavored during the summer to attract strangers, and preached sermons from his heart to the hearts of the Quintonites. A donation party was in the air, too, and the needy pastor grew eloquent along generous, ethical lines. Eliza Jane, in a detached and injured manner, continued to cook up at Bluffhead. The master, feeling that at least he paid for the necessity, ate in peace, but Saxton, who fell between the aristocracy of Devant's ideas and the Quintonite ideal, suffered cruelly from his plebeian position. Only a vague hope of city life and pleasures held him to his position. And Devant was undecided as to what he should do. Thornley had not looked him up after seeing Catherine. Indeed, that rigid young man had sailed within the week for Point Comfort, and Devant, fearing to meet Catherine alone, had hurried back to Bluff Head, there to be confronted by his past in a most crushing manner. So unlooked for and appalling was the resurrected ghost that it had stunned him and left him unable to act. He feared to make a false move and waited for Janet to point out the way. But the girl remained upon the dunes with Billy, and the bay seemed an impassable barrier between them and Bluff Head. To go to Billy and demand the sequel to the pitiful story of Mary Andrews's life was out of the question. Mr. Thorndyke was long since dead and had left no papers nor books to help any of his clients in their affairs. While he lived, he had served them faithfully, according to his light, but he felt that in dying he canceled all obligations. Suppose Mary Andrews had gone to Captain Billy with her secret buried from sight, who was he that he should deal the faithful man at the station a blow that might end his life? surely his trust and peace? But Janet, there was the awful doubt. Thorndyke had said there was a child. Had he spoken true? If there were a child, was it that beautiful girl of the station? Devant's blood ran hotly as he thought upon his belief in heredity. Might it not be himself instead of the poor mother who was accountable for the pimpernel? "'Good God!' he muttered. "'What would I not do for her? "'Train that keen mind so apt and greedy? "'Fit her for a high place and, in small measure, "'redeem the brutal past. 
give her, perhaps, to Thornley. This thought stayed him. It might be by that power he would prevail, if only he were sure. He was standing before the mirror, tying his cravat, as these thoughts ran through his tortured mind. Suddenly his hands dropped at his sides, and he strained his eyes at the reflection that met him. First it was the color of the eyes that held and amazed him, then an expression at once familiar and baffling. Was his own face, for the first time in his life, becoming known to him? Or was the face of that girl of the dunes crowding all other faces from his vision? Once, when first Janet's beauty had stirred him, he had noticed her perfect ears set close to her head. The ears were shell-shaped and pink. The left ear, near the lobe, had a curious inward curve, unlike the right, a fascinating defect that added to, rather than detracted from, the beauty. It was like a challenge to attract attention. Devant now observed his own left ear. There, in coarser fashion, was the same mark. Through familiarity it had, before, passed unnoticed. Now it forced itself upon his consciousness like a witness for the truth. Slight as these things were, they turned the strong man weak. He dropped into a chair and rang for Saxton. "'Bring me some coffee,' he said. "'Make it yourself, and make it strong.' "'Yes, sir. And if it ain't presuming, I would like to say that there is more than the coffee what is weak, sir. The cooking here ain't what you're used to, sir.' The club table, or that at the hotel, is more nourishing. Saxton had put in his suggestion and went his way comforted. The coffee braced the shaken nerves, and again Devant went to his mirror as to a friend. The color of the eyes had changed. Janet's eyes were never so pale and dull. The complexion was grayish-white, the haunting lightness was gone, but the curious curve of the left ear stood in bold evidence and called for recognition in the final reckoning. A thousand might have the same, thought the troubled man, but he had never noticed it but twice in all his long life. After breakfast that day, he went for a walk in the scrub oaks. He dared not go to the lighthouse, but he saw no reason why he should not walk upon the path leading to it. The damp, sodden leaves sent up a pungent odor as his feet crushed them. A smell of wood smoke was mingled with the salt air from off sea. It was a perfect late autumn day, with a warning of winter in its touch. Devant walked slowly with bowed head. He was pondering as to what he should do in the future. His life had never seemed more useless than it now appeared with the glaring doubt in his mind. Suddenly he was aware of someone approaching, and he raised his eyes hopefully. It was Janet, and the breeze, lifting her hair from her face, left the little ear exposed. It was that upon which the man's gaze rested. "'Good morning,' said the girl. "'I was coming to Bluff Head.' Janet was the one more at ease. Her struggle had been along clearer lines." "'Going up to read?' 
asked Devant uneasily. "'The library is yours, my child.' The last words had a possible significance that was well-nigh heartbreaking to the man. "'No, I... I want to say something, to you. I did not seem to be able to come before.' A rare dignity touched the girl. Her womanhood appeared to have taken on a queenly attribute, but the language of this new womanhood was still to learn. She had spent the night at the light, and the latter part of it she had shared Davy's watch. Together they had freshened up from the little balcony, and the calmness of the stars and David's philosophy had set their seal upon her. She was brave and tolerant. She had chosen her path, and with the courage of the dunes, she was ready to tread it wherever it might lead. "'Shall we walk on?' asked Devant. It was easier than to stand still. So they slowly turned and went toward Bluff Head. "'I know,' the even voice fell to a whisper. "'I have just found out that—' That Captain Billy is not my real father. Devant staggered under the blow. The terse directness, a part of the girl's nature and training, was embarrassing to the man of the world. You are sure of that? he asked, when he could control his voice. Yes. Do, do you know who your real father is? Janet looked fearlessly up into the haggard, eager face. "'Yes, I know.' "'Who told you?' "'Captain Billy told me that he is not my father. He does not know who my father is. "'My mother was very faithful to you and to him. "'He told me how she came to him afterward. "'She did not want Captain Billy to save her his way.' She thought it was not fair to him, but Captain Billy had but one kind of love. He married her, and he took care of her. You don't know how cruel these people can be to... to girls like my mother. But Captain Billy knew, and he saved her. The dark eyes were blazing. Be less hard, my child, groaned Devant, turning his face away. God knows I have suffered. Janet paid small heed to the words, or to the man beside her. At the last, she went on bravely, they were happy in a beautiful way for a little while. Then she died, but I was left, and Captain Billy loved me and cared for me. He was father, mother, playmate, everything to me. The eyes softened and the girl turned and faced her companion. "'And,' she breathed hoarsely, "'you and I must keep him from ever knowing the rest.' "'The rest?' Devant asked slowly. "'Yes, about you. "'I am not doing this only because I love him better than anything else on earth. "'I am doing it for my mother. "'It is all that she and I can do for him.' Will you promise? Devant leaned against a tree. Motion was no longer possible. Janet stood in the path and waited. The brute instinct arose in the man's heart. 
This was his child. In doing for her lay the only expiation possible for him in the world. What were the claims of that man over on the dunes compared to his, should he powerfully press them? What if Captain Billy had given his life to the doing of a duty belonging to another? The tempter now took on a virtuous, unselfish guise. Think what the girl's life might be. Could any true love, even such stupid love as Billy might bear her, stand in the way? No. Billy would be the first to relinquish his hold upon her. With the calm, steady, waiting eyes upon him, Devant dared not urge his first claims of parentage. He would appeal to her reason. "'This is hardly a question for you to put to me,' he said. "'I must see Captain Billy and talk to him man to man.' "'What for?' There was a dangerous light in the girl's eyes. "'Because you have suffered for the wrong you did. You think you can ease your conscience by confessing to Captain Billy and making him suffer again?' Devant stared at her. "'You think it is for myself?' he asked. "'Who, then?' "'Why, for you. "'Can you not see what it would mean to you?' Janet drew back. "'You... you want to do things for me? "'You who left my mother to die?' "'A fine scorn shook the low voice. "'My God, do not be so hard.' Only because you are young and blind can you speak so heartlessly. Do you not see it is because I cannot do for her that I want now to do for you? I want it with all my soul, for her sake, as well as yours. I wish to undo, as well as I can, the bitter wrong. Devant moaned. Captain Billy did that for you long ago. Your silence must be his reward. Janet's face shone. Can you conceive, asked Devant hoarsely, what you are giving up? Yes. Now the shining eyes were misty. Over on the dunes, after Billy told me and I had chosen my course, I did think of the other way, just as I used to imagine things when I was a lonely little girl impossible things, you know. I thought of books and knowledge and of the great beautiful world and all the soft, pretty things that I know I should love. I did not think or imagine in my fancy that you would want to give them to me, but now that I know that, it doesn't make any difference. Every time I think of my Captain Billy, nothing else matters. Two large tears rolled down the uplifted face. Devant felt himself baffled, and anger rose within him. "'Suppose,' he said hoarsely, "'suppose I could offer you Thornley's love.' The stab was cruel, and the wound smarted. Under the soft brown skin the color died away, and the eyes widened and deepened. "'That is no gift of yours,' she whispered proudly. "'And I know now what happens to girls like my mother and me when we forget.' Devant recoiled. 
then a shame humbled and stung him. "'Do not judge him by me,' he said. "'I do not.' The words were hardly above a whisper. "'But you know, and he knows, there is a bar between us, and we must sail wide if we would not be wrecked. He would not hurt me, nor let me hurt myself. That is why he went away.' But, and Devant was himself again, broken, beaten, but himself, if Captain Billy should ever leave you, should die, you understand, will you not promise to send for me? When you are older, you will judge less harshly. Will you promise to let me come next to Captain Billy? He stretched out his hands, pleadingly. Janet hesitated for a moment. Then she placed her slim brown hands in his. "'I do not know. How can I tell? I thank you, but I cannot see any further than Captain Billy. Goodbye. "'Goodbye, my child.' Their hands dropped, and they went their ways. Janet was not permitted to reach the light without further trouble. The day was doomed to be freighted with heavy cares. In the depths of the scrub oaks she came upon Mark Tapkins, sitting upon a log and looking as nearly tragic as he, poor slow fellow, could look. When he heard Janet, he raised his heavy eyes to her face. "'I've been waiting for you,' he said. "'I saw you talking to Mr. Devant as I came across lots. "'I've got to tell you.' "'Tell me what, Mark?' The girl thought another outburst of love was coming, and it seemed such a shabby, poor little thing in the gloom of recent happenings. And yet this roused her pity. It was so much to Mark, and it was his most sacred offering. She should not despise it. "'Bout Maud Grace!' Janet started. So it was not herself after all. "'What is the matter with her now?' she asked. "'She's gone.' "'Gone where?' "'The nation only knows.' "'Well, Mark, I never have understood your interest in Maud Grace. "'You couldn't act more devoted if you were her lover, "'except in that case you would not have gone on that foolish hunt for her border.' "'Janet was impatient.' She wanted to get away over to the dunes, to Peace and Billy. When Maud gets ready, she'll come home. Doesn't her mother know? Janet, you've got to stay and listen. Mark, I'm tired. I cannot help any. I want to go home. You've got to listen, Mark repeated doggedly. And as the girl took a step forward, he caught her skirt in his trembling fingers. First, I took an interest cause, cause I thought I loved you and I didn't want you smirched. The words were flung out desperately and they had the desired effect. Janet started and then stood rigidly intent. Smirched? She repeated slowly. What do you mean? And yet, as she asked the question, Light was borne in upon her, light that had had its origin in the awakened womanhood. 
I kind of guess you didn't know what I mean, Janet. And I wish to the Lord I had let you help from the start. There ain't another soul as I can go to here until it's too late to do for Maud Grace. Not a soul but you. And God knows, I don't understand how it is I can hope from you, but I can. I just can. You won't be hard, for all you don't love Maud Grace much. I know, true as heaven, you'll be gentle to her now, when you wasn't before. The poor fellow's face was distorted and quivering, but he had no need to hold Janet. She had come close and was resting her hand upon his bowed shoulder. Mark, she whispered, you mean, you mean... The man nodded dumbly. And, of course, they would all turn upon her. They do not seem to know any reason for showing mercy. Oh, I do understand. The dark eyes blazed, then softened under a mist as memory recalled the pitiful story of that other Quentin girl, and Mrs. Joe G.'s kindness that black night when she, Janet, was born. But now there was no Cap'n Billy to pilot this sad little wreck. I don't know what to do moaned Mark, covering his face with his thin, rough hands. I can't bear to think of her drifting off, Lord knows where, and I don't believe she's got a cent, and even if she walked to the city, she can't never get him. No, Janet was thinking quick and hard. When did she go? She went for breakfast, and she told her little sister to tell her mother she'd gone to you. To me? Yes, and of course that was just a spare for time. Of course. Well, Mark, we must find her, and then she may stay with me. Janet drew herself up very straight, and there was defiance in her action and expression. Are any of the boats gone? Lord knows, shivered Mark, but she wouldn't try a boat. She can't sail fit for anything. She's got the fear so many down here has, for the water. Don't you remember? But the suggestion brought a new agony to the poor fellow. Whatever made you think of a boat, he said. Suddenly a further knowledge, born of the new womanhood, almost blinded Janet. This simple fellow, suffering at her feet, had never loved her. She had but led him far afield in some strange fashion. He had always loved the missing, giddy girl, and this awful trouble had driven the dense fog away forever. In the clear view, Janet's heart arose in sympathy. "'You love her, Mark?' she whispered. "'Oh, I understand.' The man looked at her stupidly, clasping and unclasping his bony fingers. "'Do I?' he said brokenly. "'I thought it was you. "'As God hears me, I thought it was you. "'But now this has happened long of the... "'the poor little thing. "'It's kind of knocked me down. "'I always felt sorry for her. "'You had so much, and she had, what you might say, nothing. "'I always was a master hand for wanting to help.' And when I saw you drifting off to the hills, 
I wanted to help you, and I thought I loved you. And now I want to help her. I'm poor shucks, Janet, and not over keen, but I'm fairly full of trouble now. He bowed his head, and the big tears splashed upon his rough hands. In all the past, Janet had never so respected him as she did at that moment. Almost reverently, she touched the bent shoulder. "'It may not be too late, dear Mark,' she comforted. "'We'll find her, and all may be well. "'The best man I ever knew did what you may have to do, Mark. "'Forgive and forget, and let a great love have its way.' The poor fellow could not see into the future. The remorseful past and the pain-filled present engulfed him. "'She used to want me,' he groaned out, "'before the boarders come. "'She used to come up to pause and act up real pert and comical. "'Maybe if she hadn't, I'd a noticed her more. "'Ah, if I'd only been content to see it then, I might have saved her.' I was only up to Maud Grace's limit, but I was always a-thinkin' I was more. And then when she took to the boarders, I got mad, and, and... Janet knelt upon the leaves and bent her head upon Mark's knees. Never in her life before had she so touched him, but she knew now that he and she were out in the open where no future misunderstanding would darken their way. He needed her, and she needed him, and poor lost Maud needed them both. "'Don't take on, Janet,' Mark touched the bright head with clumsy, reverent hand. "'It weren't any fault of yours. I did all I could to bring myself up to a point that I hoped I could reach you from. But it weren't in me. I was about Maud Grace's limit, as I say.' "'but I didn't want to own to it, and now,' he gulped bravely, "'it ain't much of an offering. "'I'm a poor shoat, but if I could, "'I'd use my worthless life for her. "'It's about all I can do. "'And it is the greatest thing on earth, Mark.' "'Janet smoothed the rough hand. "'Maud will never come to you. "'You must bring her back, and I will help you both. "'Go, Mark, go look at the boats. "'She had no money. "'She could not hope to walk far. "'In desperation she may have tried to get away by water.' "'Mark shook his head, but started obediently. "'Once he was out of sight, Janet turned into a side path "'and ran like a mad thing to the lighthouse wharf. "'The comrade was gone, "'and nowhere on the bay was the white sail visible.' Janet raised her eyes and looked at the autumn sky. The calmness was ruffled near the horizon by ragged little clouds. "'The wind is changing,' she murmured. "'The oyster boats are coming in. "'There is going to be a wicked storm before nightfall.' The bland sky seemed to give the lie to such reasoning, but the trained senses of the girl could not be deceived. She trembled as if the coming cold already touched her. Her eyes widened, but her lips closed in a firmer line. Away around the cove, she saw Mark putting out on the bay in one of James Smith's boats. 
He was reefed close and was making for the inlet, up Bay End Way. He had discovered from afar the absence of the comrade. If the men see the comrade, Janet thought, they will think I am aboard and no one will worry. But, oh, poor frightened Maud. By two of the afternoon, the autumn sky was storm-racked. The wind came up out of the sea with a fury and an icy chill. The oyster boat scurried homeward, and afar, Mark's lonely sail was a mere streak of white in the dull gray. "'Nobody must see me,' Janet mused, clutching her hands close. "'If they have seen the comrade, they will think I am safe with Captain Daddy by now.' If Maud's on the bay, Mark will find her and bring her home. With that thought, the girl ran to the house. Davy met her at the lighthouse door. He looked like he'd been blown from kingdom come, he said. By gum, this is a breeze. Had your dinner? Dinner? Oh, yes, I had dinner, all I wanted. I didn't mean to be so late, Davy. I meant to get your dinner. You're kind of pale around the gills, Janet. Davy looked keenly at the drawn face. Maybe you eat something that didn't set right in your stomach. Better take a spoonful of cure-all. Susan Jane always thought considerable of that. I could have sworn I saw the comrade putting off this morning. I thought you'd taken a flying trip to Billy. "'Seen anything of Mark?' "'Oh, yes. I nearly forgot, Davy, but Mark may not be here tonight. He's... he's got business over at Bay End.' "'How did he go?' questioned Davy. "'By train?' "'No. He went in one of James B.'s boats.' "'He's a tarnal idiot to do that in the face of this gale.' He ain't no shucks of a sailor. John Jones comes off from the station today, and he ain't over-careful, being what you might say half-fish and half-daredevil. But John, he started right back when he left an order for me. Mark ought to have known better. Janet, what is the matter with you? Here, hold on, gal, till I get that cure-all. Janet held on and smiled feebly as Davy poured the burning liquid down her throat. "'Thanks,' she whispered presently. "'I was mistaken. I did not eat any dinner. Davy, I am hungry. I always need my food, Davy. You know how I am.' She was laughing nervously. "'Come on, then,' commanded Davy, eyeing her critically. I ain't never seen you done up so by going without one meal before. I believe you're threatened with spepsy. It comes now and then with that emptiness in the pit of your stomach. That night Janet tried to sleep in her little room, but the fury of the storm and her heavy anxious secret forbade an instant's rest. At last, about midnight, she dressed and went up to Davy. He was standing near the entrance of the lamp, and his tired face was drawn and pitiful. "'By gum!' he ejaculated when he saw the girl. "'This wind comes straight from Greenland's icy mountains, 
and ain't losing any of its temper as it comes. The waves could be seen over the dunes long before sundown, and just hear that. What is it, Davy? Janet pressed beside him. It sounds like someone knocking on the glass. And so it is, so it is. Least it's birds. Poor dumb things, blown on land and making for the light. Being seafarers, like as not, they know the light is to guide them, and they come to what they think is safety. Poor, poor things. They beat the glass as if asking for mercy and shelter, and here I be a-listening to them knocking themselves to death and unable to help. If the good God takes heed of the sparrows what falls, he ain't going to overlook the gulls. But it ain't much comfort to think on that when he lets them die, die right again the light. Gum, we ain't had anything like this since Tom Davis was caught in his skimmy over by the dunes twenty-five years back. Least we haven't had anything like it as bad so early in the fall. Come down, Davy, pleaded Janet. Don't stand and hear the poor birds beat themselves to death. Tomorrow they will lie thick in the garden. Oh, it is a fearful gale. And Tom Davis was so near the dunes that night, wasn't he, Davy? When his boat went over, he could have waded ashore. Only he did not know where he was, and the fog hid the light. But everyone knows about Tom Davis, and if a boat did go over, a, a person would try to wade ashore. Don't you think so, Davy, remembering as he would Tom Davis? You got Mark on your mind, eh? Davy came down to the little sitting room and turned up the lamp wick. Well, you bet Mark put in somewhere for this gale struck him. Tom Davis was different. He didn't take no precautions, ever. He was in his oilers and boots when he went over, and he wasn't reefed none. He wanted to get here quick with a fair wind, if such a foul gale could be called fair. He wanted to take part in a show down to the church. But his time had come and the curtain went down on him out there alone in his water-sogged boots and heavy oiler coat. Tom Davis was born for misfortune as the sparks fly upward. Him with them boots and oilers on in a gale such as that war. Davy, what was that? Janet clung to the keeper, her eyes dark and fear-filled. It sounded most like a human call now, didn't it? said Davy raising his head. It's a gull, that's what it is, Janet. A more knowing gull than the rest. Are you sure, Davy? It could not be anybody calling, could it? Gosh, no, no. What do you suppose anyone would be calling for? Why, if he were in danger. Tain't anybody on the bay, Janet. City folks is gone, and the Quintonites ain't chancing a pleasure trip in this gale. Get downstairs, Janet. It's just possible someone's knocking and calling below. Janet waited for no second bidding. Down the iron stairs she ran, and never paused until she reached the lower door. This she opened cautiously, and braced herself against it to keep out further entrance of the terrific wind. 
"'Anyone there?' she shouted. The noise of the storm alone replied. "'Anyone outside?' again she called. A soft something fell at her feet with a dull thud. It was a gull, broken-winged, its life beaten out against the glass of the light. Once again she shouted, "'Anyone there?' On the wind came that strange, weird call that had frightened her in the tower. It rose and fell piteously and passed on with the blast. "'I never heard that before tonight,' Janet murmured as she forced the door shut. "'It is new and awful.' She went into the living room and lighted the fire. She would not try to sleep again. She made some coffee and carried it up to Davy. She dared not stay alone. For the first time in her life she was afraid and thoroughly unnerved. That morning, before Davy had come from the lamp, there was a knocking on the outer door and a pushing as well. Janet, coming down the stairs with the empty tray, saw the door open, and in the light of the gray still morn, for the storm was past, she recognized Mark in a yellow oiler with a sou'wester nearly hiding his wet and ashen face. "'You found her?' The words broke from Janet like a sob. "'Not yet,' Mark's voice was slow and weak. "'We want Davy to come and help soon as he can. "'And can you let me have a cup of coffee, Janet? "'I'm most done up. "'The... the comrade is bottom up round by the point, "'and I... I guess she was being beaten toward home. "'But... but...' "'Janet dropped the tray and ran to Mark. "'She drew him into the room.' and pushed him toward a chair. "'Sit down,' she said brokenly. "'Sit down. You look as if you would drop. "'See, I have the coffee all ready. "'It will take but a minute.' She hurried the preparation, and after she saw Mark gulp the strong hot drink, she asked quietly, but with awe in her voice, "'Can you tell me now, Mark?' "'There ain't much to tell.' When a boat's bottom up in such a gale as was a-blowin' last night, and only a poor little frightened gal was at the tiller, why, why, there ain't, what you might say, anything to tell. Mark stared dully before him. He was tired and soul-weary. She's got away fast enough this time, Janet, he went on drearily. It ain't likely anyone will be troubled settin' things for her now. "'Don't! Don't, Mark!' Janet was crouching by his chair, her tear-filled eyes looking wildly at his dull, vacant face. "'We, you and I, were trying, you know.' "'Yes, but it was uphill work, and would have been wuss, like as not. It ain't easy setting straight a botch like that. I guess this is the best way. Don't take on, Janet.' Seems like she always got the rough part, but you couldn't help that none. I guess you'd been the quickest one to help her if she'd cried out to you. But even you couldn't have helped much. Janet heard again in fancy the weird call of the night. No, I could not help, she shuddered. Where are you going, Mark? 
Back to the bay. They're dragging round by the point. Her father's there, and some others. I found the comrade for daybreak and got them up. If Davy can lend a hand later, tell him to come along. He was the one what found Tom Davis, they say. Davy seems to have a sense about where to look. With his heavy oilskin coat hanging loose and his head bowed, Mark went back to do all that could be done for poor Maud Grace. End of chapter 12 Recording by Roger Moline Chapter 13 of Janet of the Dunes This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline Janet of the Dunes by Harriet T. Comstock Chapter 13 Bluff Head was closed. The master had left word with Eliza Jane Smith that after his departure the house key should be delivered to Janet with a note of explanation. The note reminded her that next to Captain Billy, he was the one upon whom she must call in case of need, and he left the library in her keeping with a list of books for study and recreation. Snow was on everything, even on the new little grave in the desolate churchyard where poor Maud Grace and her pitiful secret slept. They had found the child late in the morning of that awful day succeeding the storm, in the small, clenched left hand was a bit of water-soaked paper. No one but Mark had taken heed of it, but he guessed that it was the card which was to guide the girl to the man who had deserted her. Perhaps in that last hour of struggle and fear she had taken from its hiding place for comfort, or, perhaps, to destroy it when hope was past. But it gave no clue. It was merely a wet pulp in a thin little rigid hand. Mrs. Joe G. took her grief stolidly. It was not in her to cry out or moan, but she felt her loss and sought to explain the strange ending to the young life. "'Twas this way,' she said to Eliza Jane Smith. "'The boarders in all the life of the summer had unsettled Maud Grace considerable. She wanted company all the time. She sort of turned to Janet, and, like as not, that morning she went to the light to see her. Not finding her, and seeing the comrade at the dock, and John Jones's boat putting back to the station, like Davy said he had done, Maud Grace just fixed it in her mind that Janet was with John Jones, and so she took the comrade and went after them. Then, when the wind came up, she lost her head, and so... Mrs. Joji, at this juncture hid her face in her checked apron and silently rocked back and forth. She could not think of the night and storm, the lonely, frightened girl dashed hither and yon in the little boat without breaking down. Life near the dunes was stern, and the people had learned to accept calmly the storm and danger, but just at first it was always hard. Mark Tapkins divided his time between his home and the light, but no longer did he raise his eyes to Janet. Mark had got his bearings at last, and was steering his lonely way through sullen and bitter waters. Trouble had set a strange dignity upon him. 
Davy, seeing others downcast, rose to tuneful heights. Not only the landings, but the house, the long flight of steps, and the windswept balcony and shining light knew his cheerful songs. "'Singin's a mighty clarifying exercise,' he said to Janet. "'It opens the body and soul, so to speak, and lets more in the tune and words out. The angels sing in glory, and I mind how it is said the morning stars sang together. So long as I've got a voice, I'm going to sing and drown the sound of worse things.' So Davy sang and guided many a sad thought into safer channels. Over at the station, the crew patiently went through their routine. The short, dark days passed with the monotony that was second nature to the brave fellows. Perhaps their greatest courage was displayed in their homely, detached lives. They cooked, they slept, they drilled and patrolled the beach. They talked little to each other, but they were ready for near and far-off duty, should a signal be displayed. Small wages repaid them for their faithful endurance. They were not permitted to add to their income by other labor, and they knew that when age or weakness overtook them, the government they served as faithfully as any soldier could would discard them for younger or stronger men. Nevertheless, they bore their part uncomplainingly through deadly loneliness or tragic danger. "'It looks like it was going to be a hard winter, setting in so early and so persistent,' said Billy one day. Billy took more heed of the weather than did the others. The patrols tired him more now than they ever had before. "'Like as not,' agreed Jared Brown, "'I saw a skim of porridge ice this side the bar as I turned in this morning.' Billy nodded. "'Janet coming on this winter?' "'No, she's mostly going to stay off. "'Davy needs her more'n I do, "'and it ain't no fit place over here for just one woman.' "'It ain't that,' the smoke rose high between the men. "'Heard how Mark Tapkins seemed to feel Joe G's gal's death?' "'Yes, yes.' "'I thought once it was your Janet.' "'Well, it weren't.' Billy felt justified in this denial, though at one time he had thought so himself. "'There don't seem to be anyone likely for Janet hereabouts. A little learning spoils a gal, Billy.' "'Is them your sentiments?' "'They be.' "'Well, folks differ. Janet pleases me.' "'Yes, but you can't expect to handle Janet's craft forever.' She's got to rely upon her own sailing some day. Like as not, but when that time comes, Janet'll take the tiller without any fuss. That's the way she's built. Like as not. Over on the mainland, James B. was comfortably happy. With the closing of Bluff Head, his unmistakable duty ended. He could take no other job while waiting for Billy's delayed surrender and he could loaf at the village store or sleep behind his own kitchen stove in virtuous comfort. He was at peace with the world and had no desire to see Billy resign from the crew in his favor. Social functions grew apace as winter clutched the coast in real earnest. The donation party was a brilliant success, 
from the congregation's point of view. They had a good time and made deep inroads into the provisions they had brought, leaving the cleaning up to the minister's wife. Christmas festivities lightened the time, too, and for a space made the hard-working men and women as gay as little children. Several traveling entertainments later had shown a fraternal spirit and stopped over at Quentin. They were always generously patronized and left a ripple of excitement behind them. One inspired some of the young people of the place to start a dramatic society. It began with an energy that threatened to swamp all other social and religious functions. After many rehearsals, a play was announced, and the entire population turned out in force. The play was given in Deacon Thomas's parlor, because that had a rear room opening into it that could be used as a stage. But one scenic touch in the stage property doomed the aspiring artists to defeat and the society to annihilation. A donkey was required in the play. No one had genius nor ambition enough to create an entire one, but a very realistic head was constructed, and this, fastened to a broomstick and thrust forward at the psychological moment, produced a startling and thrilling effect. The audience was stirred to its depth. Most of the young people were either on the stage or behind the curtain, but the few who were in the audience broke into cheers, which were quickly quelled by Deacon Thomas, whose son John had led the applause. He bent forward and gripped Deacon Farley by the shoulder. Silas, he said, I don't see anything sinful in the speaking part, but that animal is too much like a theater. That was the battle cry of defeat. The theater to Quentin was as pernicious as a bullfight would have been to a Puritan. Janet, who was accountable for the donkey head, felt a real disappointment in the downfall of the dramatic society. It had appealed to her artistic, imaginative nature. In it, she saw a glimmer of enjoyment which all the other village pastimes lacked. She loved dancing, but without knowing why, she disliked to dance with the young men of the place. With the yearning of youth for popularity and companionship, she felt the growing conviction that she was outside the inner circle. Davy had closed the lips of idle gossipers, but even he was unable to open the hearts of suspicious neighbors. The girl longed to draw to herself human love and loyalty, but her every attempt failed. Davy, she said with a deep sigh, I reckon I'm just a bungler. Everything I do seems wrong. I'm afraid, and here she grew dreamy, I'm afraid I'm like the poor poplars. I see over the dunes. I see too much, and I frighten others. It ain't overwise, Janet, mused Davy through the tobacco smoke, to get to thinking what you are and what you ain't. Let other folks do that. Just be something. Yes, yes, Davy, but what? Everything I try to be, I fail in. Janet thought of the chance that lay in the distant city and wondered if she would have failed there. Well, I always take it, Davy replied, that the good God gives us just as much to do as we're able to do, and he wants it well done. 
he ain't going to chuck jobs around to folks that ain't equal to doing well what they has in hand. For instance, Davy pointed his remark with the stem of his pipe, he ain't such an all-fired good housekeeper as you might be. I know it, Davy. And your clothes, while they become you like as not, have a loose look in the sewing that might be bettered. The fact is, Janet, you ain't particular about the fussin' things, and it may be your way lies in perfectin' yourself in the fussins of life. Oh, you dear Davy! Janet was laughing above her inclination to cry. I do believe you are right. I'm going to pay particular attention to the little fussy things. Dear knows, if I do them all well, I'll have little time for discontent. She stood up, she and Davy were in the living room while Mark was doing duty aloft, and flung her strong young arms above her head. Davy, I wish just once in my life I could let myself go. I don't care much how, but just go. I'd like to take a ship out to sea, not the bay, but the open middle ocean, and just go where I please. You'd get wrecked first thing, broke in Davy. But I'd be doing something big until I got wrecked. Or I'd like to be alone on a great desert where I could shout and dance and sing, and no one would be there to call me mad. But you'd be mad just the same. Davy was watching the flashing face uneasily. The gossip that had drifted to him had but strengthened his love and care for Billy's girl. He was a hearty support now, protecting this free nature from outer harm and inward hurt. No, no, Janet, don't hanker after the ocean or the desert till you know how to handle yourself. Oceans and deserts ain't no jokes for greenhorns. I heard Mark say the bay was froze over. That don't happen often so early as this. I'm going to get my ice boat out tomorrow, Davy. Life on an ice boat is life. A sailboat is not bad with a good wind, but you always have to take the water into your reckoning then. But the ice, ah, there's nothing there but you and the wind to consider. And holes... Davy added. You're just an old pessimist, Davy, Janet laughed. Like as not, Davy agreed. He hadn't an idea what a pessimist was, but he never wasted time inquiring as to the labels others attached to him. That night, winter, in its grimmest sense, settled upon Quinton. The bay became a glistening roadway between the mainland and the dunes, Children on skates or in iceboats filled the short, cold days with laughter and fun. Sleighing parties flashed hither and yonder with never a fear of a crack or hole, and beyond the dunes the life crew kept a keener watch upon the outer bar. Chunky ice formed near shore, and the tides bore it inward and left it high upon the beach. Day by day it grew in height like a shining, curving line of alabaster showing where the high-water mark had been. And upon a certain threatening day, John Thomas came off and stopped at the light to have a word with Davy. He didn't want me to say anything to you, 
but it don't settle on my mind as just right not to. Billy's had a spell. Davy pulled up his trousers, with him a sure sign of deep emotion. What kind? he asked. Sort of peterin' out. He was peelin' taters in the station, when all of a sudden he sot down kind of forcible on a chair, dropped the knife and tater, and looked at me as if I'd done something to him. I ran cross to him and stood by, so to speak. Then he kind of laughed and said, distant and thick, That was comical. I felt like my works had run down. Billy ain't what he once was. Davy set his lips in a grim line. He ought to have a lighter job, he muttered. How is he now? Oh, he's come around. But spells is spells, and you got to look out. Don't tell Janet. Billy was sot against that, something fierce. I don't know as Billy should want to shield her more'n common sense points. I feel she ought to know. It ain't pleasant to get a knock in the back of your head, and that's what Janet's going to get some day about Billy. He says she knows enough, and he ain't going to have her pester. Well, tomorrow I'm going on, nodded Davy, and Billy ain't going to honey-fugle me none. After I cast my eye on him, I'm going to give myself orders. Sighted anything lately? A schooner got mighty near the bar, long about sundown last night. Kind of skittish actin' hussy she was, but she turned out and cleared off without much trouble. We was all ready for her. Big sea, too. Powerful. And I told Captain that I've got kind of superstitious about them boats as make a near call and then sidle off. Twice during my time a real thing has happened soon after. Seems like they come to see if you're watching, kind of getting your attention, so to speak, and warning you that you ain't there for fun. I'm going on about three this afternoon. Sky looks nasty. It does that, agreed Davy. And it's my turn up aloft tonight. I somehow feel more certain when I'm there myself in foul weather. Mark ain't never done anything to cause me to distrust him, but Lord, he's got that unfortunate air of making you distrust yourself about him. Mark lacks salt, John laughed good-naturedly. If he and Pa had a dash of seasoning in them, they'd be all right. They're flat, that's all. Like as not, Davy said. But flats ain't the best kind of things to run on in a storm. So Davy held his peace regarding Billy's spell until he could have a look at Billy himself. And all that cold, dreary day, Janet worked at the small fussy things of her daily life, keeping her hands busy, but having time and to spare for her active brain to wander far. She lived over again the summer, the wonderful summer. She felt the yearning for books and the quiet of the Bluffhead Library. She recalled Devant with a sense of hurt and pity, but Thornley came to her memory with a radiance that grew with absence and, perhaps, forgetfulness on his part. With the proud young womanhood that remained with the girl like a royal birthright, 
The knowledge of all that Thornley's renunciation of her help in his art meant brought the warm blood to her cheek and a prayer of gratitude to her lips. She could afford to live and work apart. She could be glad in worshipping her ideal of all that was brave and manly, even though she knelt forever before an empty shrine. Billy and Davy loomed upon her near horizon in added splendor. Ah, she had known such good men. She was very blessed, and so she sang as she worked. About noon of the winter's day, James B. slouched down to the light and entered the living room where Janet sat darning Davy's coarse gray socks. "'Has John Thomas gone on yet?' he asked. "'No,' said Janet. "'His boat is at the dock.' "'I'm thinking of going on with him. "'Looks like a rough enough storm was coming up, "'and if anything should happen, "'an extra hand or two over at the station wouldn't come amiss. "'Eliza Jane's been having feelings in her bones "'that I'd better be over there.' "'Janet's eyes flashed.' but the drooping lids hid them. She could not tell why, but every time James B. went over to the station, she resented it. It seemed as if he were keeping an eye on Captain Billy, and it aroused her dislike and suspicion. "'Eliza Jane's bones must be troublesome for the rest of the family,' she said. "'They be,' nodded James. "'I told Eliza Jane today,' that to be rooted out in the teeth of the kind of storm this one is like to be, just for feelings in her bones, weren't exactly fair to me. "'Why do you go?' The girl raised her great eyes and looked full at him. His furtive glance fell. "'Cause Eliza James said to,' he answered doggedly. "'She was down to Miss Thomas's, and when she knew John Thomas was off, she sat her mind on my going on with him. I kind of hoped he was gone. Well, he isn't. There he goes now, down to the dock. It's queer he doesn't stop and speak a minute. James B. slouched toward the door. Any message for Captain Billy? he said. Just my love, and tell him I'm coming on tomorrow or next day. Shut the door, James. The wind comes in as if it were solid. She watched the two men make ready the little ice boat. She saw them get aboard, and almost on the instant, the steadily increasing wind caught the toy-like thing and bore it with amazing speed past the point and over toward the dunes. Then an anxiety grew in her heart. Of late she had been subject mentally to sensations that, in a measure, were similar to those that affected Eliza Jane's bones. She was depressed or elated without seeming cause. It annoyed and shamed her, but she could not control it. John Thomas's return to the station without a word to her, his visit to his mother, and Eliza Jane's prompt dispatch of James B. to the dunes, grew to ominous proportions as the lonely girl dwelt upon them. "'I wonder if my Cap'n Daddy is all right,' she thought wistfully. She was merely carrying out Billy's desire in remaining so much upon the mainland. Her own inclination was for the desolate little cottage near the station and the loving companionship of Billy. "'I don't care what he says,' she whispered to herself. 
I'm going to go on and stay with him part of the time. I need him, even if he doesn't need me. She wiped her tears upon the rough gray sock that covered her hand. I'm just like Mark. Because I cannot do what I'm fit to do, I'm failing in everything. There is no use. I must go to Cap'n Billy and learn to be happy with him and nothing else. The determination to go to the dunes brought a sense of comfort with it, but a nervousness grew apace. It was as if, now that she had decided to go, she was in a hurry to start. She was conscious of a trembling eagerness in every act. She put her mending away. She prepared the noonday meal with vigor and intensity, selecting what she knew Davy most liked. "'This is a feast!' gloated Davy, looking around his humble board and sniffing appreciatively the steaming favorites. "'Looks like you'd caught on, Janet.' "'So I have, Davy. I've gripped for sure and certain.' "'Didn't tell you, did I, that Mark is going?' "'Going where?' Janet laid down her knife and fork and looked interested. "'Him and Pa is going to build, twixt here in the hills, and open an inn. They plan to move the old house down and join it on.' "'An inn?' Janet laughed. "'Them was his words. An inn.' Sometimes it seems like Mark was walking on a dark night on cold, wet sand. He slaps down his foot, sort of careless, and strikes phosphorus. He ain't got what you might call seeing qualities, but he strikes out light. That's the way it was with him telling Pa about selling crullers. The old man made a small fortune. And now this inn will pan out. You just mark my words. It stands to reason folks would rather go to an inn than to a boarding house. Davy grinned at Janet over a cup of tea, green enough and strong enough to curl any ordinary tongue. Pa's gonna cook, and Mark's gonna run the business, added Davy. Well, they'll have good cooking, Janet smiled as she thought of the scheme. Maybe they'll let me wait upon table. "'Like as not, they will if you want to. "'Well, it ain't any more than fair, you consarn little trap, "'but that you should do your turn at waiting on Mark. "'Sho, just hear that gale, will you? "'It's steered around and is coming straight off sea. "'By gum, if any craft drifts onto the bar tonight, "'there's going to be a spry dancing at the station.' "'Davy went to the window and peered out. The early afternoon was bitterly cold and darkened by wind-driven clouds full of storm and fury. "'They've got an extra hand such as it is,' Janet came and stood close by Davy. "'Who?' "'James B. He went on with John Thomas.' "'Did, did he? Well, by gum!' "'Janet, I wish to thunder I could get Billy to give up the life crew and take Mark's place here.' "'Why, Davy?' There was intensity and pathos in the question, and trouble in the gentle eyes. "'Cause,' vouchsafed Davy. "'Just cause. That's why. "'Fetch me a bite in the lamp, Janet, long about sundown.' 
I ain't coming down once I go up this afternoon. I ain't looking for trouble. Tain't my way, but somehow, when such a night as this is like to be settles down, it don't seem anything more'n friendly for me to bear the light company. So Janet cleared the dinner away. She found little tasks to fill the darkening hours, and with eagerness prepared the tray for Davy and took it aloft at sundown. By that time the wind was almost a hurricane, and before it were driven sharp sheets of snow that cut and sounded as they sped madly landward. The tower swayed perceptibly. Davy's face was grimly careworn, and his manner forbade sociability. Janet waited a few moments, then, realizing Davy's mood, left the tray and went below. But now a trembling and inward terror possessed her. She tried to shake off the feeling with contempt for her folly. She sang, remembering Davy's philosophy. When you sing, you open the safety valve for more to get out than words and music. But this song gave relief only to sound and mental action. Early night came with eagerness, as if, for the doing of what was to be done, the black pall was alone appropriate. Why, anyone would think... Janet stood by the window, and her teeth chattered as she spoke. Anyone would think I was that white girl at Bluffhead instead of Captain Billy's girl. I, afraid of a storm. I, housed and safe at the light. I, who in many such a gale trotted after Captain Billy just for pure fun. It's time I went on and got the dune tonic for my foolish nerve. Me with nerves. Then she ran to the door and opened it slowly, pushing against it to stay the wind. I thought, she moaned, I thought I heard a call. The memory of the night that poor Maud Grace went down beyond the point added keenness to her fancy. It sounded like that call. Ah, as long as I live I shall remember it. I do believe it was Maud. I always shall, no matter what they say. The howling of the wind drowned the girl's words, but her strained face pressed against the opening and her senses were alert. I hear it, she panted. I hear that call. Suppose, oh, suppose that it is my Captain Billy calling. If he were on the patrol and in danger, he would call to me. He would know I could not hear, but he would call just for comfort. Again the burdened wind shrieked outside. The face at the door grew ghastly and the eyes terror-filled. There are more ways of hearing than one, she muttered. Captain Daddy, I am coming. Who was there to stay her with word of caution? Who was there to control her as she made ready to answer the heart call of her beloved Billy? Now that doubt had fled, a calmness possessed her. She was indifferent. First she wrote a note to Davy, and placed it, open and conspicuous, beside his plate. She had laid the breakfast table half an hour before. I've gone to Billy, took my ice boat. That was all, but Davy would understand. 
Then she wrapped herself warmly, covering all with an oiler and pulling a sou'wester well down over her ears. Finally, she extinguished the lamp, let herself out of the door, and ran in the face of the gale to the dock. There she paused. "'I'd have to tack miles off my course,' she muttered. "'I had forgotten the direction of the wind.' There was nothing to do but take to the ice and walk and run as she could. It was an awful undertaking, but the girl did not pause. The call for help came only when she hesitated. While she acted, her nerves were calm. So, with head bent forward and low, Janet set out for the dunes. Once she looked back at Davy's light. Through the scurrying snow and sleet, it shone steadily and hopefully, unaffected by the wind and fury that waged war outside. "'It is like a thought of God,' she whispered, and her courage rose. Only a dune-bred girl could have withstood the force of the storm, but by pausing for breath now and again, by sliding and gaining strength walking backward, she made fair progress, and, guided by the light, headed for the halfway house." In that, she would wait and hide. If it were Billy's patrol, she would be there to see him. If not, well, time enough for future plans. She knew Billy would disapprove her action, but she must know. Once the dunes were gained, their landward side was sheltered. Janet sat down in the long grass to rest before ascending. The snow cut her face, and the thunder of the waves deafened her. After a few minutes, she started on. Davy's light was straight behind her, so the halfway house lay directly before. On, on in the dark and noise, she felt her way with hands outstretched in front of her. At the dune top, the real magnitude of the storm was apparent. On the mainland, it was comparatively mild. Here, wind, tide, and heavy sea were let loose and were battling in ferocious freedom. Ah! Janet caught her breath and staggered back, clutching the tall, dry, ice-covered grass to steady herself. But a few more steps brought her rudely against the sheltered house. She pushed the door open. Neither man had as yet arrived, so there was no fire lighted in the little stove. Janet began to gather the wood and coal together in her stiff fingers. But something stayed her. She felt ill and weak. So, instead, she crawled under the bench that ran across the side of the tiny hut and hid in the darkness. She began to fear Billy's displeasure. For a moment, the faintness and nausea made cold and weariness sink into oblivion. And before they reasserted themselves... The door was opened, and someone came in. The dense darkness hid him, and Janet waited. The man struck a match and hurriedly started the fire. By the sudden blaze, she saw that it was I. Truman, one of the crew from the farther station. Once the fire was kindled and burning, the man sat down in the corner of the bench directly over Janet's hiding place, and shook his sou'wester free of the ice and snow that had collected upon it. 
It was not long before the door opened again. The fire was ruddily lighting the shed by this time, and Janet, from her cramped position, saw Billy. Something in his appearance made her catch her breath in alarm. It was not his ice-covered garments that glistened in the red light, nor his grim, rigid face, but the strange stare of his wide-opened eyes that caused her alarm. "'Bad night,' said I. "'But we've made good time.' Billy had dropped upon the opposite bench, and the ice crackled upon his garments. "'Petered out some?' I now looked at Billy. "'You look kind of done for. "'Take my check out of my pocket, left-hand one.' Billy's voice sounded far off and thin. "'And put yours in. "'My hands is bit. "'The lids of my eyes got froze down on my cheeks and I couldn't see, "'so I thawed him out by holding my hands up and, and my hands caught it.' "'Janet dared not move. "'I exchanged checks, and then he bent over Billy. "'You all right?' he asked doubtfully. Sure. Billy tried to laugh, but his voice shook. A frostbite don't count none. I'm thawed out enough now for my own comfort. I daren't take my eye off the bar. I tell you, I, if there's trouble tonight, it's gonna be real trouble. Tis that, said I, and the two men stood up. Good night, I. Good night, Billy, and let's hope for a safe walk back. They were gone. Then Janet came from her hiding. Her sickness had passed. She was warmer and more comfortable, but she meant to keep close to Billy on that return patrol. If all went well, he would forgive her by and by. She was on the point of pushing the door open, when suddenly the full blast of the gale struck her in the face. Someone was coming back. It was Billy, and he stood before her. Her face was away from the light, and her sou'wester, drawn close, misled Billy. But Janet saw his eyes wide and staring. "'Aye,' he panted, and his voice was thick. "'I... I can't do it. The, the works are running down again. It's better to tell you than to drop out there in the sand and no one ever know. Hurry back, man, and watch both ways as long as you can. Billy swayed forward, and Janet caught him. She laid him upon the floor and bent above him. My captain, she moaned. Oh, Captain Billy. But Billy heeded her not. He's dead. The horror-filled words startled even the speaker. Dead, my Billy. But no, he breathed. I must do his work and get help. The girl started up wildly. He isn't dead. He shall not die. She took his check from his pocket and his coston light. Then she gently moved him nearer the stove put coal on the blaze, and loosened the heavy coat. "'Now,' she muttered, and rushed out into the night and storm. The strength of ten seemed to possess her, 
and the calmness of desperation lent her power. The noise of the wind deadened the sound of the surf. Sometimes she found herself knee-deep in icy water, for the tide was terribly high. Then she crawled up to the dunes and felt with mittened hands for the stiff grass. Presently she came to a rock, a rare thing on that coast, and she clung to it desperately. It was as true a landmark to the girl of the station as a mountain peak would have been to an inland traveler. "'Only a mile more,' she panted, and then a memory of one of Davy's old hymns came to her. "'The shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land.' She recalled how she, as a little child, had often crouched beside this very rock when the summer's sun beat hot upon the sand. Summer! Was there ever such a thing as summer on this ice-bound shore? She dreaded to set forth again. A stupor was creeping over her, a stupor she had been trained to fear. She struggled to her feet, but the mad thought of summer would cling to her benumbed fancy. It fascinated and lured her dangerously. She saw the hills rise, many-colored, in the blackness. She saw Thornley's little hut with its door set open to the cool, refreshing breeze. It was a breeze then, this fierce, cruel wind. It was a gentle breeze when summer and love held part. She heard again the call of the golden whistle, and this fancy made her draw her breath in sharp gasps. She shut her stiff lids and saw Thornley coming over the sunlighted hills with his joy-filled face shining in the summer day. Oh, if she could but hear that golden call just once again, how happy she would be. Maybe when death came, God would let Thornley call her in that way, just as God had let Susan Jane's lover come to her upon the shining incoming wave. But then Thornley was not her lover. She was his, and that was different. Death! Again the girl struggled forward. She must not die. Why, Billy was there alone in the halfway house, and Billy's duty was still unperformed. On, on, once again. The wind was blowing in gusts now. It was reckoning with the near-coming day and was lessening in fury. But the sudden blasts were almost worse than the steady gale. Janet, weakened and numb, was hardly upon her way before she was knocked from her feet by the cruel force and lay face downward upon the icy sand. Hurt and discouraged, she yet managed to rise. The pain roused her dulled senses and in the lull that followed, a strange ghostly sound was borne seaward. She stopped and stood upright. Again it came, plaintively and persistently, rising and falling. As if the faint note had power over night and tempest, the blackness seemed to break, the snow ceased, and overhead, through a riven cloud, a pale, frightened moon peered curiously. Then the wind shrieked defiantly. But again it came, that tender, penetrating call, nearer, nearer over the dunes, 
and down toward the thundering sea. Still, as if frozen where she stood, Janet waited for, she knew not what. Someone, in the dim grayish light, was coming toward her. Someone tall and strong, but well-nigh spent. The man had seen her, too. "'How far am I from the station?' he shouted. It was Thornley's voice. It was the little whistle's call that had stilled the storm and brought hope. Janet could not answer. All power seemed gone from her. When he came close, he would know her, and then... Why? Why had he come? The girl had forgotten her disfiguring garments. Thornley was within a foot of her before he understood. Then he reeled back. The moon, for another still moment, shone full upon the ice-covered figure and the upturned face framed by the old sou'wester. "'My God!' he cried and stretched out his arms, hardly knowing whether he were warding off an apparition or reaching out to the woman he was seeking so earnestly. "'You!' he whispered. "'You! Alone out here in all the storm and darkness!' She tried to answer, but words failed her. She smiled pitifully and put her hands in his. "'I have wandered for hours!' Thornley was holding the girl closer. "'Do you hear and understand, Janet? I went to the light. I saw your note lying open on the table. I was afraid for you. I lost my way on the ice.' I had only Davy's light to guide me. I landed, heaven only knows where. But I wanted you. I've got you at last. A fierceness shook the eager voice that was raised above the noises of the night. Yes. Janet spoke low and dreamily. Again the cold stilled her pain. The moon was hidden and grim darkness held them. You, you want me to help you finish your picture. It really was a small matter, but even in the strangeness and numbness, the girl wished he had not come. He was greater and dearer when he had stayed away and sacrificed his picture for her honor and his own. My picture? Good Lord, what do I care for my picture? "'Child, I want you. "'Oh, I want you to help me to finish my life.' "'Thornley shook the girl gently. "'She was in his arms. "'She was leaning against him heavily, "'her icy garment striking harshly against his. "'How he blessed his great strength that terrible night. "'He reasoned that Janet had crossed the bay as he had, "'bent upon some errand at the station.' He had overtaken her in time, thank God, for her strength was fast failing. "'I must carry you,' he cried, but his words were drowned in the wind's howling. "'Here, I have my flask. Drink, Janet, drink, dear. It will give you new life. We must make the station together.' Janet swallowed painfully, but the liquor brought relief. Clinging to Thornley, she went silently on. Between the last two dune tops, 
Davy's light again shone. "'Only a half-mile more,' panted the girl. Thornley knew the value of making the most of what they had, and without speaking he pressed forward, holding her close. Suddenly Janet stopped and pointed stiffly seaward. "'The bar,' she groaned. "'See? A rocket!' Thornley strained his eyes. "'Another!' The girl's voice was tense and hoarse. "'They are on the outer bar. God help them. Here, get the costin out. Strike a light. My hands are stiff. Oh, it rises. They answer. They know we have seen them. Poor souls. Come, we must run.' And she, who but a moment before was half dead from cold and exposure, now ran as if sand and heavy icy clothing had no power to stay her. Thornley, filled with terror at this new development, and fearing that the girl beside him would not be able to reach the station, seized her more firmly and rushed forward. "'Oh, the station! Do not lift me! I can make it now!' Thornley did not relinquish his hold, and together they flung themselves against the heavy doors of the little house. The light and warmth were in their faces. A ring of startled men stood before them. "'They're on the outer bar. Two rockets. I've answered.' The words came in hard, quick breaths, and Janet swayed forward. It was Thornley who bore her to a chair most distant from the red-hot stove. The men had vanished like specters. There was a hurried noise in the further room as the big cart bearing the apparatus was pushed into the night and storm. "'Opposite Davy's light, between the last two dunes,' called Janet. "'All right,' someone replied from beyond. Then a stillness followed. Thornley stood guard over the girl as she sat helplessly in the wooden chair. The ice was melting and dripping from her clothing. The sou'wester had fallen away from the sweet, worn face, and the pretty cheeks showed two ominous white spots that bespoke frozen flesh. "'I dare not take you nearer the fire,' Thornley's voice was unsteady. His own returning circulation and consequent pain made him cruelly conscious of what he knew she was suffering. She looked up bravely and smiled. "'It's pretty bad,' she said with a quiver. "'It hurts, doesn't it?' Then, noticing for the first time that Thornley was less protected than she, for he wore only his heavy overcoat, which was crusted thick with ice, she forgot her own agony in genuine alarm. "'Take off those frozen things,' she commanded. "'You must be drenched through and through without an oiler. "'Make yourself comfortable. I must go.' "'Go? In heaven's name, go where?' Thornley paused as he was taking off his cap, over which he had tied a silk muffler, and stared at the girl. "'Why, to Captain Billy. You do not understand.' He is back in the halfway house. He may be dead. A shiver ran over Janet, and she struggled to her feet. 
It is awful for me to sit here. You know nothing. I must go. Thornley firmly held her back. His check, she faltered. Take it out of my pocket, please. No, the left-hand pocket. That's it. Hang it there on the rack by the door. I may not return, you know. There's no time for explanations, Janet. Thornley had followed the girl's directions mechanically and now urged her back in the chair. Of course, I will not let you go, but I am going to Captain Billy. Whatever can be done, I will do. I will bring him on here, or I will stay with him there until help reaches us. But you must obey what I say and wait for us. You must trust me. She looked up at him, tear-blinded and pitiful. Let me go with you, she pleaded. I am used to it, and, after all, what matters now? Thornley seized an oilskin coat from a peg on the wall and thrust his arms into it. What matters? he stopped to ask, looking at Janet with a puzzled stare. Why, don't you know, little girl, that this is the beginning of everything for us? Can't you understand? Over his anxiety and excitement, a sense of joy flooded. Here, he cried, trying to cheer her. It's going to be all right with Captain Billy and everyone else. Give me that rear-decked boat you have on your head, Janet, and you'll promise to stay here until I return? He bent over her and drew the icy mittens from the stiff little hands. Then he raised the cold fingers to his lips and looked into the depths of the upturned eyes. He had gone through his doubts and struggles since he had left her on the hills. She, poor girl, had long ago relinquished her hope and love. But as she gazed now into the eyes bent above her, she understood. It was the climax of their young lives. Whatever lay beyond, they could not know. Whatever forces had driven them into their sanctuary, they neither of them sought to question. It might be their only moment. "'I will wait,' Janet whispered, clinging to him. "'I will wait for you and Captain Daddy.' After Thornley was gone, the unreality passed. The howling of the gale and the memories that flooded the present loneliness drove the sudden dream before them. While she stood housed and protected, all that was dear to her, all that meant life to her, was out there in the storm. Captain Billy dying, perhaps dead, three miles beyond. The crew manfully doing their duty by the men on the outer bar. Thornley struggling to perform a task that might be beyond his strength, while she, amid the danger and storm, stood idle. "'Why,' she cried, "'this is as bad as that drowsiness out on the shore. I must do something. I had no right to promise.' She ran to the window and tore aside the little curtain. Her heavy coat fell from her and with it seemed to drop the weight and burden that had oppressed her. The sluggishness of mind and body was gone. She was herself again. "'No promise must hold me from my Captain Daddy,' she whispered in a soft defiance. 
Just then the darting lanterns of the crew far down the beach attracted her, and through the grim grayish light of the dying night shone Davy's light, faithful and strong. She stood surrounded by courageous duty. Her life lesson had been one long training for duty. Was she to fail now? But what was her duty? Slowly a radiance spread from brow to chin. The livid spots on either cheek smarted into consciousness at the rush of blood that bore surrender with it. Above even Billy's claim to her faithfulness was her promise to Thornley. There was one greater now in her life than Captain Billy. And he has undertaken my task. She pressed her burning cheek to the frosted glass. I will trust him, and he shall trust me. So, while Davy tended his light, while the crew gave heart of hope to the wretched men upon the outer bar, while Thornley in the dark and storm struggled onward to the doing of a duty he had taken upon himself, Janet made ready for what might lie before. She ran to the loft above and carried down cots and blankets. She heated kettles of water and fed the huge stove until it blazed and roared. Then she brought from the captain's room the medicine chest and the liquor that were kept for emergencies. Still, no one came. Janet gave herself no time for idle thought, nor did she permit her fevered fancy to run free. There was still something to do. She must provide for them who were risking their lives for others. She made strong coffee and cut slices of bread from the massive loaves. Then, suddenly, like a flash of humor in the tortured loneliness, she remembered Jared Brown's liking for tomatoes and set forth a large can. The homely tasks were steadying the strained nerves, but every time the wind rattled the doors, the girl started. The hours dragged on. The gale began to sob spasmodically as the day conquered it. The grayish light outside brightened. What was that? The shed door was opening. The panting wind tore the kitchen door wide, and Janet saw three men advancing. She tried to run to them, but the body refused to respond to the eager will. She could not anticipate a knowledge that might mean so much. Thornley and I Truman came into the glow of the hut kitchen, and between them they dragged Captain Billy. Janet saw that he was alive, and when he realized that it was she who stood before him, the old comforting smile struggled to the poor worn face. "'Don't take on,' he panted as they placed him upon the nearest cot and began to strip his icy clothing from him. "'This ain't what you might call anything at all.' Janet knelt beside him. "'My captain,' was all she could say. "'My own dear Captain Daddy.' "'You little specimen!' Billy closed his eyes luxuriously. "'They've told me what you've done.' "'I found him in the halfway house,' I explained, while Thornley mixed a hot drink for Billy. "'You see, 
I was nearly back to the station when I saw that signal from the bar. My crew had seen it, too, and they come racing down as I was making for them. On the way back, I noticed the door of the shelter open and a tearing fire lighting up the place. I stopped to see that all was safe, and there, on the floor, acting like all possessed, was Billy. He was for going with the men, but he couldn't stand on his legs. It was something fierce the way he took on. I sort of hauled him up and swore I'd get him down to the shore somehow, when this gentleman, I waved one of Billy's boots, which he had just managed to get off, toward Thornley, come in and he kind of took command, as you might say, and ordered us on to this here port. Janet was pressing her face against the weary one upon the pillow and murmuring over and over in a gentle lullaby, My captain! My captain! Thornley came over to the cot and raised Billy to feed him the drink. Billy looked up and smiled feebly. If I ain't needed here, I said, I'll take a haul of coffee and then fetch some down to the men. Janet started. Oh, I forgot, she cried. What about the wreck? The tide's turning, I replied from the depths of a bowl of coffee. Like as not, the ship will lift by morning. More frightened than hurt anyway, I guess. They've signaled us to stand by till daybreak, but I'm thinking they'll hist before then. When I had gone, Thornley put the cup down and placed Billy back on the pillows. The heavy eyes opened and fell upon the two faces near. Then a puzzled expression settled in the kindly gaze. "'You've got your chart to sail by, my gal,' he whispered, going back in memory to that night when he had told Janet of her mother. "'I ain't going to worry any more.' The words trailed off into unconsciousness, and Captain Billy swung at anchor between this port and that beyond. End of Chapter 13 Recording by Roger Moline Chapter 14 of Janet of the Dunes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Janet of the Dunes by Harriet T. Comstock. Chapter 14. A southwest wind howled around the little hut upon the hills. The season was in one of its humorous moods, but the day was almost summer-like in spite of the wind's noisy insistence. Between the tops of the highest dunes, the white-crested heads of the waves could be seen at times, and the deep, solemn tones announced that there was a heavy sea on. The nearer water of the bay, in imitation of its mighty neighbor, echoed in mildest tones its restlessness and tossed its feathery foam high upon the pebbly beach. Thornley had found the first May pinks by the roadside that morning, and Mark Tapkins had mentioned, in passing, that Captain Billy was soon coming off. By these signs, and the singing in his heart, he knew the spring had come. 
he was sitting before the easel upon which rested the Pimpernel, finished at last. The work had been his salvation through the long weeks of waiting since that night upon the beach. Alternately exulting and despairing, he had painted in a frenzy born of starved desire and memory-haunted love. Only once had he seen Janet alone since that eventful night, for Billy's dangerous illness claimed her every thought and hour. But that once, while Davy sat beside his friend, she had walked with Thornley upon the sands and had told him her life story. Very simply she had spoken, watching, meanwhile, the effect upon her listener. He had been startled and shaken by the recital, and for a time Janet had misunderstood him. "'You must go away and think it over,' she had said. "'I am not the same girl, you see.' "'Great heavens, Janet!' Thornley had exclaimed when once he recovered from his surprise. "'Do you think anything can make a difference now?' Why, you are dearer a thousand times in ways you cannot realize. For I know Mr. Devant better than you do, and I am glad for him. Janet shook her head. Captain Billy must never know, she whispered. There may never be a chance, but in any case he shall never have that hurt. It would be an added joy, little girl, Thornley insisted, but Janet would not consider it. "'So please go now,' she had pleaded finally. "'Go and think and think. "'Perhaps by and by, who can tell? "'Just now it must be only my Captain Daddy.' "'Thus with the courage and patience of her nature "'the girl had set aside her own love and yearning, "'and Thornley took to the hills "'and the unfinished picture of the Pimpernel. The glorious face upon the canvas changed and assumed character, according as the master's mood swayed him. One day it would shine forth with the sweet questioning of joyous girlhood. Then Thornley, remembering how the question had been answered on a certain summer day when ignorance died and knowledge was born, wiped away the expression while his heart grew heavy within him. Then he would paint her as he recalled her on that black night upon the beach, when, her uplifted face touched by the fleeting rays of the white moon, she had asked him if he needed her to help him finish his picture. No, no, he could not paint her so. That was no face for a flower wreath, and the flowers he must have. Again he painted her as he had last seen her. The love-light shining in her eyes, while courageously she put her joy from her until her duty to Billy was ended and her lover had had time to think. Thornley had thought. Never in his life had he thought so deeply and intensely, and from out the thought and love the soul of Janet had evolved and become fixed upon the canvas. "'It is a masterpiece!' cried the artist and the man as he gazed upon the glorious face. "'It is my woman,' responded the man and the artist. "'My spirit of the dunes, with the strength of the hills and the mystery of the sea.' A sudden knock shattered the ecstasy. "'Come!' called Thornley, and turned to meet his guest. Mark Tapkins awkwardly entered. Mark had been a great resource to Thornley lately. 
Unconsciously he had been a link between Janet and the hills. In his slow, dull fashion he repeated all he saw and heard at the station, and Thornley, trusting to Tapkins's uncomprehending manner, sent messages to the dunes that he knew Janet's keener wit would interpret and understand. But Thornley had still something to learn about Tapkins. "'Any news this morning?' he said cheerily, pushing a stool toward Mark. "'She's come off,' said Tapkins, with his eyes fixed upon the pimpernel. "'Is already off?' Thornley's color rose. "'You know you said they were coming soon.' "'They've come. Her and Billy is down to Davies.' "'And Billy, how is he?' asked Thornley. "'Middlin', but he ain't complainin' none. "'Say, Mr. Thornley, I don't know as you understand why I've been runnin' here so much lately. "'You see, I wanted, so to speak, to get the lay of the land twixt you and... her.' Tapkins kept his eyes upon the vivid face. Only by its inspiration could he hold to his purpose. "'Have you got it, Tapkins?' Thornley bent closer and gazed at his visitor keenly. "'I seem to sense it,' was the low reply. "'Travel and city ways, Mr. Thornley, make men understand each other.' The old foolish conceit added dignity to the evident purpose with which Mark was struggling. "'Now, over to the station, the crew think you're a investigator. So they had been talking him over, those quiet, apparently unobservant men. "'What do they think I'm investigating, Tapkins?' Thornley's gaze contracted, and he clasped his hands rigidly around his knees. He felt as if he were before a bar of justice, and he must weigh the evidence against himself. "'The sandbar,' Mark replied. Every once so often some fellers come down here with a fool notion of cutting down the sandbar and dredge deep enough to make an inlet into the bay. Perhaps they may, some day, Tapkins. Thornley felt that along this line he might sooner reach his friend's purpose in calling for the second time that day. It's not a bad idea, you know. It would sweeten the waters of the bay, carry off the stagnant growth, and let in a lot of new life. But you do not think I'm an investigator, eh, Mark? Tapkins turned suddenly and faced his host. Not that kind, Mr. Thornley, he said in a tone that brought again the color to Thornley's face. And what's more, Tapkins continued, I don't think same as you do about the inlet neither, Mr. Thornley. Nature is pretty much alike in sandbars and folks and what not. God Almighty knows what he's about when he piles up them dunes what divides ocean and bay and folks and folks. Go on, Tapkins. This was worthy of Captain Davy. The sojourn at the light had had its influence upon the assistant keeper. Mark gulped and turned his gaze upon the picture. It ain't no good trying to mix things, Mr. Thornley. That's what the crew tells them fellers about the bar. They don't listen none. 
They work like beavers, and we hold off and have our laugh. Then they go away real pleased after they've cut through, but nation, tain't any time at all before the sand's piled up again. It's awful foolish working again nature. Just what kind of an investigator do you take me for, Tapkins? Thornley felt he must know the worst, and at once. The look Mark cast upon him was full of trouble. He did not want to wrong this man he had grown to like, but a sense of duty lashed him on. "'Lord knows, Mr. Thornley,' he faltered. "'I don't want to make any mistakes. "'It's terrible confusing when you try to label folks. "'The same acts mean different according to the handling, "'and a good man and a bad man bear a powerful likeness to each other on the outside, sometimes.' Once I didn't speak out to a friend when I ought to, and, and, well, there was what you might say, a wreck. I ain't gonna hold back another time. Mr. Thornley, you're staying on down here, cause you have some sort of idea of opening up an inlet twixt such folks as you and Mr. Devant, and her. Mark waved his cap toward the easel. Tain't no use, Mr. Thornley. Suppose you did cut through and clean and honest, too. Don't you see a little craft like that one couldn't sail out into deep waters? And the Lord knows, big craft like you and him would get stranded in no time down here. Folks is separated for a good reason. It ain't a question of one being better nor the other. Tapkins raised his head proudly. It's just a case of difference. Cutting down barriers ain't going to do nothing but cause waste of time in building them up again. Never before in his life had Mark spoken so eloquently nor so lengthily. A dimness rose in Thornley's eyes, and a respect for the awkward fellow grew in his heart. He arose and stood before Tapkins, his hand resting protectingly upon the pimpernel. "'You're one of the best fellows I've ever met, old man,' he said. "'And you've lived pretty deep. "'But there is another point of view about those sandbars of yours. "'There is going to be an inlet all right, some day, over on the dunes. "'When that time comes, besides sweetening the waters of the bay and doing all the rest, "'something else is going to happen, and don't you forget it. Craft from outside will come in and not get stranded either. And what's more, some craft of yours that is stronger and better fitted than you know of is going to sail out into the open, test its strength, and not get wrecked. Sandbars are for nothing in the world, Tapkins, but for conquering. Take my word for that. It all depends upon who tackles the job of the inlet, see? Mark got upon his feet and took the hand that was suddenly stretched out to meet his. Thornley held the poor fellow's tear-filled eyes by the radiance of his own. "'We understand each other, old man,' he continued. "'I am going, please God, to cut through a barrier that has no right to exist. I'm going to let as brave and trusty a little craft as ever sailed go out into the broad waters where she belongs.' Do you catch on, Tapkins? I do that, murmured Mark, and he dropped Thornley's hand. 
watch out, Mr. Thornley. It's my way to watch, and I'm learning one thing over and over. In this life, there's plenty to learn if you've got power. Mark had done his duty and departed. Thornley watched him from the open door until he shambled from sight. Then a new doubt arose. While he had waited alone upon the hills, working and loving without distrust of the future, they, these patient conservatives of Quinton, had discussed him from every point of view and were ready when he pressed his claim to judge him. How different from his old world was this one of the dunes? What different standards existed from those which swayed Catherine Ogden and her kind? Unless he met their demands, he could mean nothing to them. How far had time and discussion influenced Janet? Might she not fear to try the larger life with him? She, who had, without a quiver, discarded Devant with his claims and yearnings? For a moment the day seemed chilly and the sky darker, but Thornley was not one to hold back when even the slightest hope beckoned. He would not wait for her to call him. He would go to her. He closed the door and strode down the sandy road. He passed the new inn at the foot of the hills and returned the salute that Pa Tapkins waved to him with a kettle from the kitchen window. As he neared the bay, the salt smell of the water seemed to give him strength. There was James B.'s little boat at his wharf and Eliza Jane in the doorway of the low, vine-covered house. "'You just better be going on,' she called to James B., who was loitering on the village side of the garden. "'I ain't more'n just come off,' James B. answered. "'I ain't any more'n had time to swallow my dinner.' "'Well, what more do you want?' snapped his wife. "'You go on now and do what I tell you. "'And there ain't no use to turn the point to the village, neither. "'I can see your sail till you reach the station, "'and if you don't go straight on, "'I can reach the village store for you can. "'So it ain't no use, James B.' "'James B. evidently agreed with her, "'for he turned and went disconsolately toward the wharf.' Thornley smiled, and his old cheerfulness returned. He was seeing these people, slowly, through Janet's eyes. They were so brave, patient, and humorous. They were so human, and faulty, and lovable. Among them, she, poor little wayfarer, had got her life lesson. How would she apply it now? Before him rose Davy's light its glistening head ready for duty when the night should come. Someone was waving from the balcony up aloft. Someone had been watching the road from the hills. Thornley's heart beat quicker. Was it Davy? Just then the playful wind caught the loosened, ruddy hair of the watcher above, and Thornley hastened his steps. The rooms of the lighthouse were empty, and silence brooded over all. Thornley mounted the winding stairs, and as if Davy's personality pervaded the way, his heart lightened perceptibly at each landing. In the little room below the lamp, Janet met him. "'We're freshening up,' she said with the old half-shy laugh. 
Davy, Captain Daddy, and I. Come. Thornley stretched out his hands toward her. Janet, he whispered, one moment, little girl. She turned a full look upon him, a look of love, of question, of joy. Not yet. Come, she repeated, and paused at the foot of the steps for him to join her. On the sheltered side of the tower, in an easy chair, sat Captain Billy. Davy was hovering over him, good-naturedly scolding him for the exertion he had made in getting to the balcony. "'Next time, Billy, that you take it into your head to come up here, by gum, I'm gonna hoist you up from the outside, same as if you were oil. "'How are you, Mr. Thornley?' he cried, turning quickly. "'Take a seat on the railing. They ain't what you might call soft and yieldin', but there's plenty of it, there being no beginnin' or endin'. He laughed and sighed in quite the old way. Billy's sickness had brought back the sigh. Thornley bent over Billy in greeting, and then seated himself where he could look into all three faces. Janet sank upon a stool at Captain Billy's feet. "'You know why I have waited, Captain Billy, for this day?' he said. He could not resort to lesser means when simple directness would be better understood. Davy plunged his hands into his pockets and clutched the courage that was supposed to lie there along with the pipe and tobacco. Captain Billy, with quaint dignity, put his thin, brown hand upon Janet's bowed head and answered in kind. "'I do that, Mr. Thornley. Out there on the beach, after I come into consciousness, I'd done a heap of thinking, and today I told Davy I knowed you'd would come, and I wanted to freshen up on the balcony before we talked over the present and the past.' "'Can't we let the past go, Captain?' Thornley asked gently. "'You know it can never matter to me. The future is all that I want.' Billy shook his head. "'Them's good heartsome words,' Davy broke in, tugging energetically at his pockets. "'And spoke like a man, by gum. Let well enough alone, Billy. You and Janet is going to stay right on at the light.' and we'll start in fresh from now. When had Davy been a coward before? But Billy's works might take to running down again, and that fear quelled Davy's daring. But again Billy shook his head. "'Course the government ain't gonna take on an old feller like me,' he said, especially when he has to be towed in himself when he's most needed to lend a hand.' "'and I ain't above taking a place in the light, Davy, "'when I pull myself up sufficient. "'But I want once and for all to clear the air about Janet.' "'His troubled eyes looked pleadingly across the sunny bay "'toward the station that had been his resting place and home for so long. "'The old sea mighty clear, Mr. Thornley,' he said, "'turning his gaze to the present. "'And as you get near port,' It's amazing how the big things, the real things, hold your thoughts and longings. I ain't done my whole duty by my little gal, and the fact shatters my days. Don't say that, Captain Daddy, Janet pressed closer to him. 
You have done your own duty and the duty of the whole world by me. That's like you, Janet, to say them words, but you don't know all. That's where I've wronged you. Davy saw that he must take a hand in what was going on. It would ease Billy and spare Janet. We've got, so to speak, he commenced with grim determination, to open up the graves of the past. He was always poetical when emotion swayed him. You see, Mr. Thornley, to put it plain and square, me and Billy knows that you have some idea of Janet, and Billy ain't gonna let you take her under no false pretenses. As to giving our consent to you paying your respects, so to speak, to Janet, me and Billy don't know, according to law, as we have any right for giving or holding our consent. And now you have it straight and fair. Thank you, Captain Davy, Thornley replied. But, I repeat, the past can never mean anything to me. But you see, Mr. Thornley, Billy clung to his purpose, this girl, properly speaking, don't belong to me. She drifted into port early, and from, as you may say, a wreck. I kept her and loved her, God knows, as if she were my own, but she ain't. This confession brought the beads of perspiration to Billy's brow, but Thornley's unmoved expression calmed him. My Captain Daddy, Janet turned her face to the agitated one above her. I've told Mr. Thornley this already, and he does not care. Billy drew a long, relieved sigh. I only want Janet, Thornley hastened to say. Whether she belongs rightfully to you or not, Captain Billy, you have trained her into exactly the kind of woman I would have her. That's the kind of talk, ejaculated Davy, and he drew out his pipe, lighted it, and inwardly gave thanks that they had all passed the bar so successfully. But that ain't enough, Billy insisted, shattering Davy's calm. I knowed who Janet's mother was, but I never knowed her father. I never tried to find out. I always were afraid I would somehow, and that's what's clutching me now. I ain't acted wise or square. It comes to me lately when I look at Janet and see how much she favors someone what I don't know, that I ain't only cheated her, but I've cheated some man out of his own, no matter how you look at it. She might have been the means, so to speak, of bringing him to grace. And times is when I've wondered if Janet won't blame me some day. Never, never, my own Captain Daddy, Janet reassured him. But her eyes were troubled. An old doubt rose to take sides with Billy against her own determination. That's what you say, not knowing, my girl. Poor Billy's wrinkled face twitched. If your true father be among the living, and suffering has eaten into his soul, then don't you see, I've stood twixt him and his chance of somewhat undoing a bitter wrong? It ain't no light matter to take the settling of things out of God Almighty's hand. I wish I'd hunted him up. Twas my plain duty to have done that. I see it now.' 
I wish I'd given my gal the choice between him and me. It's a growing trouble as time passes. The slow tears were rolling down Billy's suffering face. Janet had no comfort for him now. In her ignorance, she had pushed aside her chance to give him what his honest soul had longed for. Recalling Mr. Devant's words, she bowed her head upon Billy's knee in contrition and pressed her lips against his work-worn hand. Thornley stepped beside the crouching girl and laid a firm hand upon Billy's shoulder. He must give no shock, but his time had come to take another duty of Janet's upon himself. "'Captain Billy,' he said slowly, and Davy eyed him closely. "'I know Janet's other father.' The sun crept around the tall tower. The wind fell into a lull after its day of play. A silence held the little group for a moment, and then Thornley went on. "'He has suffered a lifetime of remorse. He is a lonely, sad man.' "'You hear that, Janet?' whispered Billy hoarsely, but his yearning eyes were fixed upon the little house across the bay. "'Yes, my captain, I hear,' came in muffled tones. How much the dear voice sounded like that one which years ago had so named him. "'And God willing, you can have a choice, my girl, even now. I ain't going to stand twixt ye in an open course.' You've got his blood as well as hers. You must choose yourself, Janet, and do it just and honest, like I've tried to show you how. Captain Billy, Thornley pressed the thin shoulder firmer. The real test was coming now. Our little girl has had her chance. She knows her father. He came and offered her a life of luxury and pleasure, and she chose you. God, burst from Davy, and his pipe lay shattered upon the floor. Billy breathed quicker, but the habit of a lifetime helped him bear this crowning bliss. To such as he, it sometimes happens that an inner sense prepares the soul for its mounts of vision. In the silence that followed, Billy struggled in memory from that long-ago time when his love was young to this hour when he was to know. And he is... He spoke waveringly, like a child feeling out into the darkness for an object he knows is there. Thornley waited for what his love trusted. Mr. Devant, my Captain Daddy. The answer was in Janet's voice. I... I sorta sensed it, whispered Billy. And you chose me when you had such a chance? Wonder thrilled through the question. Was he to know more joy? Yes, my own daddy. I chose you because I loved you. I never even wanted you to know, but Mr. Thornley knew you better than I. You are nobler than I thought. And ye loved me like that? A shining joy broke over Billy's face, a joy that drove pain and remorse before it. Do you hear that, Davy? And you once said God couldn't pay me for what I'd done? Why, man, 
God paid me all along the way, and now he's added more'n I ever earned. The weak voice rose rapturously. Mr. Thornley, I want that you should send for Mr. Devant. I ain't going to prove unworthy of the Lord's trust in me. Daddy, Daddy, broke from Janet. Billy stayed her with a look. No, my gal, this ain't no matter for you. This be man's work. Right you are, Captain, Thornley grasped the old hand. Davy drew near and looked upon his friend as if he were seeing him for the first time in years. By gum, he said, and that's what has been dragging on you all these years. Why, Billy, you and me is going to take a new lease of life. We are that, nodded Billy. Then he turned to Thornley. I ain't never going to doubt a man like you, Mr. Thornley, he said. But, you see, I could only train Janet one way, having, as you know, no other experience. I ain't used to such waters as you sail, and Janet ain't much wiser. I'm thinking... He paused and tried to see his way. I'm thinking Mr. Devon might help you on this track. Sort of steer this little craft, so to speak, till it's able to keep upright. Quietly, the girl by Billy's knee arose. She stood just where the westering sun touched her with a golden glow. Thornley drew his lips in sharply as he looked at her, and even Billy and Davy were awed by what they in no wise comprehended. "'Daddy, dear,' said the sweet voice, "'I am going to be very fond of Mr. D—' "'Of my father, by and by.' We are going to be great friends, I know, and that will make you glad. But I must always be your girl. I am not afraid to sail out upon the broad middle ocean. I used to tell Davy that I longed to go, but I want no other help than your chart, my captain, and my Davy's light. Her lifted eyes were tear-filled as they rested in turn upon the two rugged faces. Then she looked at Thornley, and her tears were dried as desire grew to trust and perfect understanding. He opened his arms to her, and she came to him gladly. "'And my love, my Pimpernel,' he whispered as his lips pressed the soft, ruddy hair. The birds twittered among the nooks and corners of Davy's light. The bay sparkled, and across the dunes the ocean's voice spoke in the deep cadences of a mighty organ's tone. "'And there was glory over all the land,' Davy chanted as he turned to his evening duty. "'A flood of glory!' End of chapter 14 Recording by Roger Moline End of Janet of the Dunes by Harriet T. Comstock 1905-1910